Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. In a niche all his own, apart from other great tellers of tales of terror, stands the moody, dark, and devious genius, Edgar Allan Poe. Obscure and ambiguous, the rolling periods of his prose are not for the casual reader, no more than for the casual listener. But for sheer suspense compounded of horror piled upon horror, literature offers nothing more awful than the pit and the pendulum. The terror of the black pit would have sufficed a lesser imagination, but to this, the macabre intellect of Poe added the inescapable doom of the razor-sharp pendulum, and then piled on the rats and the moving walls of red-hot iron until the edge of the unbearable is reached. Can you take it? Can you listen through the next half hour? Try. Try to listen to Mr. Vincent Price, starring in The Pit and the Pendulum, which begins in exactly one minute. This is Bob Wright, with the answer to the greatest challenge in cigarette history. The challenge was... Can a cigarette be made that will give decidedly better filtration and also give easy draw with full natural tobacco flavor? The answer is Kent. Kent with a revolutionary new Micronite filter that gives Kent decidedly better filtration, definitely less tars and nicotine than any other leading filter brand. Kent filters best. The answer is Kent with the full, rich flavor of the world's premium quality natural tobaccos and an easy draw. Yes, of all leading filter brands, Kent filters best. Kent filters best. Tomorrow, pick up a pack of Kents with a revolutionary new Micronite filter and enjoy the most important advance in the progress of filter smoking. Kent filters best. And now... Mr. Vincent Price stars in Edgar Allan Poe's immortal story of punishment by terror, The Pit and the Pendulum. A tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. I was sick, sick unto death with that long agony. And when at length they unbound me and I was permitted to sit, I felt that my senses were leaving me. The sound of the inquisitorial voices seemed merged in one dreamy, indeterminate hum from which emerged the syllables of my name. Captain Jean d'Albret. Good fathers, gentlemen. We hear you, my son. Even now I have no knowledge of where I am or to whom I may be speaking. You're speaking to me, my son. I am Fra Pedro Despia, prior of the Dominicans of Segovia and Grand Inquisitor for all Spain. This, then, is the court of the Inquisition? It is. But I am a French officer. That is true. A soldier and creature of the arch-fiend, the Antichrist, Napoleon Bonaparte, who even now is at the gates of Madrid, while his general LaSalle menaces our city of Toledo itself. Nonetheless, I am a prisoner of war. By what right do you try me in this court? Let the clerk read the charges against the prisoner. Item, that on the fourth day of September, in the year of our Lord, 1808, the said Captain Jean d'Albret did wed and espouse that most noble lady, the Doña Beatriz Valdez, niece and ward of the illustrious... One moment. 
Excellency? This marriage was a deplorable thing, if you like, but lawful marriage, however regrettable in a case like this, is no sin nor crime. There are other matters in the indictment. Then continue, but give us nothing that is not material. Item, that on the 12th of October, 1808, the said Jean d'Albray, being in command of a battery of light artillery, did direct the fire of his guns against the Holy Church of Santa Marta the Innocent, and thereby... Of his wicked malice, destroyed that church utterly. Captain Dalbray, is this charge true? Yes. You admit it. Good father, the church blew up, did it not? Would you boast of your sin, young man? It blew up because it was stored with kegs of gunpowder for your army. I had every right to fire on it. And that is all the defense you have to make? I tell you, I had every right to fire on it by military law. Is military law above God's law? I don't know. I did my duty. Long live the emperor! Captain Dalbray, mark what I say. No man, however great his heresy, is condemned to be burnt in the fire if he first recant and acknowledge the error of his ways. Do you so? I cannot. I was under orders. I obeyed them. Then, Jean d'Albray, there can be no mercy, no pity, since there is no atonement. The sentence of this court, therefore, is... I had swooned in terror, yet I will not say that all of consciousness was lost... In the deepest slumber, no, in delirium, no, in a swoon, no, in death, no. Even in the grave, all is not lost, else there is no immortality for man. We continue with the second act of Suspense. But first, some big news. Long pole, new Pontiac, the pole, new Pontiac, the pole, new Pontiac is here. With the Pontiac front seat that lets you in the back seat. Pony automatic on me. Moves up and back just like that. Automatically, a portable radio that pulls right out and plays all alone. When you plug it back in, it's a car radio, high fidelity too. What a nice tone! Set your speed on the new speedometer. Honey, automatically. If you go too fast, a buzzer goes buzz. Honey, automatically. More good reasons you love the bold new Pontiac. Pony automatically. The bold new Pontiac is here. And now, Mr. Vincent Price in The Pit and the Pendulum by Edgar Allan Poe. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. No, even in the grave all is not lost There were shadows of memory which told me indistinctly of tall figures that lifted me 
and bore me in silence down, down, still down, until a hideous dizziness oppressed me at that descent into the earth. There was a vague horror at my heart because of that heart's unnatural stillness. Then, as consciousness swam back to my wits again, darkness, a damp stone floor in darkness. Oh, Beatrice, oh, my wife. Did you call me, Jean? Beatrice, you here in the dungeons of the Inquisition? No, my poor Jean. I am only here in your imagination. Am I mad, then? No, but your brain is fevered. You only think you hear me. I hear you clearly. You won't leave me. As long as I am in your heart, I shall be here. Have they chained you to the wall? No. No, they, they've taken away my uniform. They've given me sandals and a robe of rough cloth. But I'm unchained... Beatrice, suppose, suppose they have buried me alive. Have courage, Jean. You must have courage. Then tell me, tell me where you are now, Beatrice, in the flesh, I mean. In the old house by the olive grove, scorned of my people. Yes, yes, I know. Each morning I climb to the hilltop and watch for them. Yes. Sometimes I think I hear gun wheels rumble in the hills and long moving columns with the red dust rising above them. Go on, go on. First come the heavy cavalry in plume-crested helmets, on their flanks wheeling like hawks, like hussars in blue and scarlet, and behind them in a glitter of bayonets as vast as light points on the sea, rank upon rank. The long gray coats and tall bearskin caps. And the old guard and the grand army. It's only a vision, my dear one. They do not come. Will they ever come, Beatrice? I cannot tell. Then, then I must face, face what has been prepared for me. Can you stand up, Jean? I, I think so. Then walk. Yes. Walk as far as you can. Measure the limits of the cell. If this is not a tomb... Uh, I'll try, Beatrice. I'll try. This robe impedes me and the floor is treacherous with slime, but but I'll try. I'll... Look out! Jean! Oh. I'm all right. I, I fell on my face. The robe tripped me. But... What, Jean? But my hand is in front of me. Lower than my face, but I... I feel nothing. Nothing, Jean. It's a pit. A deep circular pit, and I fell on the very edge of it. They would have had you walk into it. Yes. But you didn't. You're saved, Jean. Saved, Beatrice. Saved. My torture has been merely postponed. At last, it Deep sleep fell upon me, a sleep like that of death. How long it lasted, I know not. But when I opened my eyes once again, I I could see. Yes, see. My prison was large and lofty, its walls formed of massive iron plates. A wild, sulfurous luster, I, I could not trace its origin, lit up the dungeon and the circular pit. I could see, but I could not move. 
I lay on my back on a low framework of wood, securely bound by a long fastening resembling a surgical bandage. The bandage passed round and round my body, leaving at liberty only my head and my left arm. With much exertion, I could supply myself with food from an earthen dish on the floor beside me. It was meat, highly seasoned, and there was no water. Beatrice... Beatrice, where are you? I am here, Jean. Your voice sounds stronger, and I I can see you. You are weaker, my dear, and more fevered. Look, Beatrice. Where? At the ceiling of this room, 30, 40 feet up. What do you see? I see, painted on the ceiling, a figure of Father Time. Yes, but this Father Time carries no scythe. It carries instead what looks like a gigantic pendulum from an ancient clock. And the pendulum is moving. The painting cannot move. But I swear the pendulum did. It swung a little back and forth, just like a real pendulum. Beatrice, take care. Take care of what? Take care of the rats. The rats from the pit. They're swarming out in dozens. You can see their eyes glitter. What do they want? What do they want? have caught the scent of the meat in the dish beside you. They'll not get it. Go! Go away, you vermin! Au revoir, Jean. Au revoir. Beatrice, where are you going? I can hardly hear you. You are sending me away, Jean. I'm sending you away. My poor loved one. You can't bear to see the rats running about my feet, can you? Even when you know I'm not here. Beatrice. It is true, Jean. You are sending me away. Yes. Yes, it's true. In a cell swarming with vermin, there are others I would rather see here. I would rather see. Did you call me, Captain Dalbray? Then in spirit, I am here. Go. I command you, Fra Antonio. Go! Not until I have first told you what is in store for you. Which is? Listen. Do you hear anything? Yes, yes, I, I hear something. Turn your eyes upward. Look at the ceiling. The pendulum. Aye, the pendulum. It is descended. Only a foot or so as yet. As you notice, it is not really a pendulum. No? No. Its underside is a crescent formed of razor-sharp steel. You mean... You mean... The ponderous weight, Captain Dalbray. Its movement is slow now, but soon it will take on momentum. It will swing wider and wider. And with each broad movement, it will creep a trifle lower. The steel is directly over me. Yes, above the region of your heart. How long before? You need have no immediate fear. It will not be too soon. But how soon? Who can tell? Minutes, hours... Days. Who can say how long it was? It might have been many days before that hideous blade swept so closely as to fan me with its acrid breath. Down. Still unceasingly, still inevitably down. The sharp steel flashed past within three inches of my chest. And then, only then, Beatrice... Beatrice. I hear you calling, Jean. I am here. Oh, Beatrice. Is there no hope, my dear? How can there be? Ten, twelve more vibrations and it will fray the threads of my robe. 
comely lightly as a razor in a delicate hand. There will be many sweeps down before it bites deep. I can't escape it, and yet... And yet... And yet, if only I could use my wits... You kept me away from you, Jean. You locked me out of your thoughts. If I am here only in your thoughts, why should I fear the rats? The rats? The rats? Do they still swarm here? Across the floor and over the meat platter. Yes. They have taken nearly all your food. Yes, they are ravenous. They have sharp teeth. The meat is oily and spiced. If I take what remains of it... Scatter, you vermin! Rub that meat on the bandages that hold me here. Try it, Jean. Try. It may be too late. If I move my body of a fraction of an inch up, I... Try it, I tell you. Try. Can I stand those rats crawling across me? Can the flesh bear it? Oh, one of them has leaped on the wooden framework. Another follows. They are gnawing at the bandage. Seven, eight more sweeps of the pendulum. Does the bandage give way? Lie still, Jean. Lie still. Ten, a dozen rats now. Is death, I wonder, worse than this disgust? A dozen sharp knives could do no better. The bandage has loosened to ribbons. If you move sideways, yes. carefully, and drop to the floor. Beatrice. Beatrice, I, I, I can't move. My arms and legs are numb. There is no this power to... This frayed your robe a minute more will be too late. Try. Then with all the strength that is in me and the hatred I bear my enemies... <laughs> I'm free. See, Jean, the pendulum stops. They are drawing it back up through the roof. Each move I make is watched. You never doubted that? No. Yet with all they could do to you, they have failed twice. They will not fail a third time, my dear. Listen. What do you hear? A groaning... Grinding is of metal. It is only the cogwheels of the pendulum. I think not, Beatrice. Why not? It seems to come from behind these iron-plated walls. It seems to shake the dungeon as a mill wheel might shake it. it... Stand up, my bourgeon. Get up off your knees. I can't. I can't endure any more. Don't you sense even now the odor of the heated iron? Heated iron? Yes, the walls are beginning to glow red. Oh, Beatrice, I have been much humbled. But I, I won't have you see me in tears. I order you to go. Sure, in the name of heaven. Yes, in the name of heaven, go. In just a moment, we continue with the third act of... Suspense. More families, far more families, use X-Lax than any other laxative. X-Lax is the preferred laxative for one important reason. X-Lax helps you toward your normal regularity, gently, overnight. Today, many doctors recommend trusted X-Lax for youngsters as well as grown-ups. That's because X-Lax gives you the relief you want, the gentle way that nature wants, without upset. When you take chocolated X-Lax at night, it does not disturb your sleep. And X-Lax is so effective that the next morning you'll be well on your way toward your normal regularity. Seldom, if ever, will you need X-Lax the next day. Little wonder that of all the laxatives made today, tablet, powder, or liquid, X-Lax is the most popular. Next time, any time that you or any member of your family needs a laxative, make that laxative pleasant-tasting chocolated X-Lax. Introductory size, only 15 cents. And now... 
Act Three of The Pit and the Pendulum, starring Mr. Vincent Price. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. A suffocating heat pervaded the prison. I could draw no breath of air into my lungs. Against the loom of that fiery destruction, the thought of the pit and its coolness came like balm. Does the pit please you, Captain Dalbray? You again? Do you find its contents pleasing? Not the pit. And how shall you avoid it? Look! This dungeon has changed its shape. That is true. The walls are closing in. It was formerly a square, and now it it is... It is flattening slowly towards the center to force me into the pit. Of course. It will force you along with me. Again, apparently, you must be told, Captain Dalbray, that you are speaking only to your own sick fancy. I am not here at all. Farewell. How flatter and flatter grew the red-hot walls. I shrank back. But the closing walls pressed me relentlessly onward toward the loathsome pit. At length, for my seared and writhing body, there was no longer an inch of foothold. I screamed once. I tottered on the edge of the pit. I averted my eyes. Then there was a discordant hum of human voices. And then a loud blast of many trumpets. The fiery walls rushed back. An outstretched arm caught my own as I fell fainting into the abyss. It was that of General LaSalle. The French army had entered Toledo. The Spanish Inquisition was in the hands of its enemy. Suspense, in which Mr. Vincent Price starred in William N. Robeson's production of The Pit and the Pendulum by Edgar Allan Poe, adapted for suspense by John Dixon Carr. In a moment, the names of tonight's supporting players and a word about next week's story of suspense. Here's good news for everyone who appreciates fine music. Hein Soups offer you the LP record bargain of the year. The best of 57 in classical music by famous RCA Victor. It's a genuine Red Seal LP of $3.98 quality. Yet it costs you just $1 in cash and four labels from any of Heinz condensed soups. That's right, just a $1 bill and four Heinz soup labels. Think of it, 43 minutes of the world's great music. Highlights from eight RCA Victor albums, performed by famous orchestras directed by Morton Gould, Arthur Fiedler, Fritz Reiner, and others. Here's the only way you can get this wonderful 12-inch record. Send a $1 bill and four Heinz soup labels to Best of 57, Box 57, Rockaway, New Jersey. I repeat, Best of 57, Box 57, Rockaway, New Jersey. Send for yours right away. Supporting Mr. Price in The Pit and the Pendulum were Ellen Morgan, Jay Novello, Ben Wright, and John Hoyt. Listen. Listen again next week when we return with another tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. America listens most to the CBS Radio Network.
now. The Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the series of radio dramas dedicated to the supernatural, the unusual, and the unknown. Come with me, my friends. We shall descend to the world of the unknown and forbidden, down to the depths where the veil of time is lifted, and the supernatural reigns as king. Come with me and listen to the tale of The Telltale Heart. had nothing against the man. I didn't want his money. And those who say I did are crazy. He was always agreeable and liked me. But there was one thing about him that bothered me. That eye. That eye of his. That pale blue vulture eye. Why did you do it? That, that voice. It's always with me. It's always with me. Why did why did you do it? Listen. Can't you hear it? So rhythmic, beating, beating. It's with me. It follows me wherever I go. The pounding of his heart. The pounding, beating rhythm of the telltale heart. Be quiet. Be quiet. Be quiet. In just a moment, the Hall of Fantasy will present The Telltale Heart. And now for our story. Adapted for radio by Richard Thorne, entitled The Telltale Heart. Yes? Uh, there was an advertisement in the paper. I'm here to answer it. I see. Won't you come in, please? Yes, thank you. Are you the one I'm supposed to see? No, I'm Mrs. Gorman, the housekeeper. Mr. Lawrence, the old gentleman, he's the one you ought to see. You'll just wait here. I'll tell him you're here. Yes, thank you. Of course. Mr. Lawrence? Yes? Someone here and asked for the advertisement you placed in the paper. Uh, send him in, Mrs. Gorman. Sir. Mr. Lawrence will see you now. Thank you. He's over by the desk, sir. Yes, ma'am. I see him. Thank you. Come in answer to the advertisement in the paper. Yes, sir. Care to sit down? No. No, I'll stand, thank you. What's your name? Uh, Crowther. David Crowther. Aside from my housekeeper, Mr. Crowther, I live here by myself. I feel the need of a companion. Someone to whom I can talk. Mrs. Gorman is a housekeeper. She doesn't talk very much. Very competent person, but very uncommunicative. You have references, I suppose? No, Mr. Lawrence. I, I haven't. Oh. Uh, what work have you been doing? I'll be completely honest with you, Mr. Lawrence. I I haven't been working for the past year. I was only released from the hospital two weeks ago. I noticed you looked rather pale. Are you well now? Oh, yes. I've completely recovered. Well, uh, you don't have references. I don't uh, know. Please, Mr. Lawrence. I need employment. My money is all gone, and I must work in order to live. I see what about your family? I have no family. No other attachments? No, sir. 
I'm going to take a chance on you, Mr. Crowther. Thank you, of sir. Of course, your salary won't be too large. But you'll have a roof over your head and plenty of food to eat. When can you start? Tonight, if you like, Mr. Lawrence. Excellent. You know, Mr. Crowther, David, if I may call you that. Yes, sir. I have the feeling that we're going to get along quite well together. I was with him for several months. I don't know when the idea first entered my mind, but once it was there, it haunted me day and night. It enveloped my brain with its cunning. I had nothing against the man. He was always agreeable and liked me. But there was one thing about him that bothered me, that I, that I of his. One day I asked the housekeeper about it. Mrs. Gorman. Yes, David? The old gentleman. One of his eyes. Is there anything wrong with it? Well, I don't think so, David. I, I hadn't noticed. To me, one of his eyes resembles that of a vulture. Pale blue it is with a cloudy film covering it. It didn't bother me at first. And, well, in fact, it doesn't bother me now unless he looks at me, but... Unless he looks at you? Why? Well, every time he looks at me, my blood runs cold. That pale blue vulture eye... I think I... you're imagining things, David. <laughs> Yes, yes, Mrs. Gorman. Perhaps I am imagining things. You won't say anything about it to Mr. Lawrence, will you? Of course not, David. <laughs> I don't know what came over me. Of course, there's nothing wrong with the old gentleman. Nothing at all. <laughs> yes, but there was. That eye of his. That pale, blue, vulture eye. Little by little, I began to hate him with all my heart. One evening, a few weeks later, the old man and I sat in the living room. We had just finished dinner and we were talking as we usually did. <laughs> just as you say, Mr. Lawrence, we'll have to wait and... And, well, what are you looking at? What, David? Are you staring at me? No, of course not. Yes, you are. Don't look at me like that. I'm not looking. Don't look at me. Turn it away. Turn it away. Turn your eye away. What's wrong with you? Nothing's wrong with me. Only your eye. Like a vulture's. A few days passed. And I guess he thought I had forgotten about his eye. <laughs> but I hadn't. No, I hadn't. And every night about midnight... If I'd get out of bed, creep from my room to his, I'd unlatch the door and open it. And then, after it was opened wide enough to stick my head through, I would put in a covered lantern all closed so that no light would shine forth. <laughs> and after I had my head in the room, I would undo the lantern so that only... A single ray of light darted out. And I would shine it on his face to see if his eye were open. Well, no, it never was. Not then. I found the eye always closed. And you see, that made it impossible to do my work. For it wasn't the old man that bothered me, but his eye. His evil eye. Unless his eye were open, I couldn't do it. <laughs> but I knew that one night it would happen. Yes, it would open, and then I could do it. 
Then I could kill him. <laughs> <laughs> Back now to our story, adapted especially for radio by Richard Thorne, entitled The Telltale Heart. And so I waited. I went out of my way to make him comfortable. I made sure that I never mentioned anything about his eye to him. And every morning I would go into his chamber boldly and ask him, Well, Mr. Lawrence, did you sleep well last night? Why, yes, David, I did. You didn't hear anything? Uh, any noises? No, not a one. I'm glad of that. Why? Did you hear anything? No, 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 not a thing. And why did you ask me if I had? Oh, I was just asking, Mr. Lawrence. I wanted to make sure. I wanted to make sure. And he thought everything was all right. He was a fool, just like all the others. <laughs> well, how could he know? Yes, how could he know that every night on the stroke of twelve, I looked in upon him as he slept. <laughs> you know, David, I didn't sleep very well last night. You didn't, Mr. Lawrence? No, I had a bad dream. Oh? What did you dream about? I dreamt that someone was looking in at me while I slept. Just waiting for a chance to kill me. Well, that's just a dream, Mr. Lawrence. Nothing to worry about, you know that. Yes, I... I guess it was just a dream. <laughs> because the only people here are Mrs. Gorman, myself, and... Neither one of us would hurt you. You know that, don't you, Mr. Lawrence? Yes. I'm glad you're both with me, David. They're just the same. I can't seem to get rid of that feeling... Me. Don't worry about a thing, Mr. Lawrence. No, don't worry. I'll take care of you. On the eighth and last night, I took special pains to make sure he wouldn't hear me. A watch's minute hand moved more quickly than did mine. I crept out into the hallway, made my way to his door. His room was all black, black as coal, black as midnight. I think he heard me, but I knew he couldn't see a thing. <laughs> the room was too dark for that. I was almost in the room and about to open my lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening and the old man was immediately fully awake. He sat upright in bed and whispered, Who's there? He said, Who's there? I kept still. I didn't say a thing. No, not a thing. And for what seemed like an hour, I stood there and didn't move a muscle. I knew he wouldn't lie down. He was sitting up in his bed, listening. Listening for what it was that had made the noise. <laughs> the old man was in mortal fear. When I had waited a long time... And still had not heard him lie back upon his bed. I resolved to open my lantern a little. Yes, just a little. Just the tiniest bit. And presently, the tiniest bit of light struggled out. I directed it towards him like the thread of a spider. And finally, it 
came to rest upon his vulture eye. And then I seemed to hear something. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't distinguish it at first, and I racked my mind to think of what it was. And then finally it came to me. Yes, that was it. It was the beating of the old man's heart. Who is in here? I could hear it distinctly. He was so afraid. Beat, 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 beat. It went. I could feel its rhythm. The old man was in mortal terror. But I held the lantern motionless. I tried to keep the beam of the light focused on that terrible eye, that pale blue vulture's eye. The incessant drumbeat of his heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker. Beat, beat, beat. Louder, louder every moment. The old man's terror must have been extreme. The sound of his heart was so loud it might be heard by someone else, by Mrs. Gorman, by some prying neighbor. And I couldn't allow that, could I? No. And the beating grew louder and louder and louder until I could stand it no longer. Who's there? Don't be afraid, old man. Is that you, David? Yes, that's right. It's only me. Nothing to be afraid of. What are you doing in my room? Just watching over you, Mr. Lawrence. I thought it was someone else. You have nothing to fear from me, old man. You should... Be asleep. Oh, <laughs> I'll go to sleep. And so will you, old man. So will you. David, what's wrong with you? Nothing. Nothing, old man. Nothing at all. Don't come any closer to me. Stay away from me. Die, old man. Die. Let your heart die with you. Let it go. Die. Die. Close your eye. That vulture eye. Close it forever. I stood there in the darkness, looking down upon him. He was quiet now. Strange kind of stillness was upon him. <laughs> For he was dead. His eye would trouble me no longer, and I knew that I had to dispose of the body, and I racked my brain to think of a place, and then it came to me. Yes, I pulled three boards from the floor. I had to work quickly. The blackness of night was fast changing to gray. I placed his body under the flooring very neatly, and then I boarded it up again. <laughs> I did it so well that even I could hardly recognize the spot under which the body was hidden. Yes, his room looked as if nothing had happened. The striking of the town clock made me realize how late it was. Well... The job was over, and no one would ever be the wiser. Who's there? Mrs. Gorman. Just a moment. Yes. Yes, what is it? Where's Mr. Lawrence? He's not here. Not here? No, no, he... He went out to the country late this evening. I heard something up here. Such as... A scream. No one screamed, Mrs. Gorman. What? I guess I was mistaken. I'll have to send them back then. Who? I was afraid when I woke up I heard or, or I thought I heard a scream. You didn't hear a thing. Mr. Lawrence has been gone for some time. What are you doing up here? I wanted to make sure he hadn't forgotten anything. What you probably heard, Mrs. Gorman, was the neigh of the horse as the carriage carried Mr. Lawrence away. Then I... I must tell him to go. Who? Who's downstairs? Who is it? Well, I... I was frightened. I called the police. 
They're waiting for you downstairs. For both you and Mr. Lawrence. Back now to our story. Adapted especially for radio by Richard Thorne. Entitled, The Telltale Heart. I was so sure that no one had heard anything. But Mrs. Gorman, the housekeeper, she must have heard him scream. Or did she hear the beating of the old man's heart? I went downstairs with her. Here's Mr. Crowther, officer. Thank you. Will you be needing me anymore? No, I don't think so. Good night, then. Well, what can I do for you gentlemen? You'll have to pardon us, sir, for disturbing you. We received a complaint from your housekeeper about some strange noises she heard. Oh, she must be mistaken, officer. Nothing's happened here. The housekeeper said she heard a scream from upstairs. Oh, she must have been dreaming. Perhaps. But I hope you'll excuse us, sir, if we take a look through the house. Why, certainly, officer. I have nothing to hide. Uh, Well, where do you want to start, gentlemen? If you'll just show us around. Pleasure. Just follow me. I led them from room to room. I took them all over the house. I wanted to show them I had nothing to hide. I showed them every nook and cranny in the place Uh, except the old man's room. I wanted to save that to last. (laughs) Finally, I took them into his room. And though they searched exhaustively, they found nothing. I was quite pleased with myself. That housekeeper of yours must have imagined she heard a scream from up here. Probably just a nightmare. Well, perhaps what she heard was me. I, uh, yes, I had a nightmare, and I think it, well, I might have been the one she heard. Well, there you are. That's a simple explanation of it. <laughs> yeah, I, always, I often have nightmares. You know. We uh, ought to go to her room and tell your housekeeper. Don't worry about it, Tom. It wasn't her fault. Yes. Well, as a matter of fact, how will she know who made the noise? She said there was a, a Mr. Lawrence living here, too. Oh, yes. Where is he now? Well, he... He isn't here. Well, that's evident. But where is he? Well, he... He went out to the country for a few weeks. He left tonight. I see. Uh, Sorry to have troubled you, sir. No trouble at all, officer. Well, let's get out of here, Ed. We're keeping this gentleman up. If you gentlemen won't think it presumptuous, uh, won't you have a glass of wine with me? I know how it is after you've been up all night. Oh, I don't know, sir. We're not supposed to drink while we're on duty. Ah, but Ed, we're, uh, we're almost through. Let's have a glass of wine. We finish here, we can go home. Yes, yes, do have some wine. All right, it's a pleasure. All right, I'll get it for you. And Mr. Lawrence always kept a decanter and glasses on that table. Did you say kept, sir? <laughs> a slip of the tongue, officer. <laughs> the hour is late, you know. Uh, don't mind that, Mr. Crowther. He's suspicious of everybody. <laughs> yes, of course. Well, that's your job. Well, here we are. I hope you like sherry. Mm-hmm. Always have it at home. <laughs> Good. Glad to hear that. Well, here's yours, sir. Thank you. And yours. Thanks. There. Well, shall we drink to something, gentlemen? Well, let's drink to you, sir, as a sort of apology for interrupting your sleep. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's very good, you know. (laughs) You did interrupt me. (laughs) I wanted to show off. I had seated them in the old man's room. And after all, in a way, this was a celebration, a token of my ingenuity. I'd seated myself on top of the very spot under which I'd hidden the body. We had one glass of wine, then another, and another. We were talking quite freely when I... when I heard it. Won't you gentlemen have enough... What's that? What's what, sir? That noise. That beating. I don't hear anything. Anything wrong, Mr. Crowther? No, nothing. Nothing's wrong, Have some more wine. 
I wish they'd leave. They were getting on my nerves. I had a terrible headache. I seemed to hear a beating in my ears. They began to look at me queerly. And yet that sound increased. There was nothing I could do about it. It was a low, dull, quick sound. Like the beating of a drum. Where, where had I heard that sound before? They watched me closely. I paced the floor. I, I didn't know where the sound was coming from. Beat, beat, beat. Throb, beat, throb, throb. Where had I heard that sound before? I knew they suspected who wouldn't with that incessant beating that filled the room that seemed to make the very walls shake with its monotonous beat, that rhythm? Where had I heard it before? Where had I? I knew! I knew where I'd heard it before! Beat, drop! Beat, drop! Beat, beat, beat! Yes! I knew where I'd heard it before! It was the beating of the old man's heart! What's the matter, Mr. Crowther? Can't you hear it? Hear what, sir? Perhaps I can push it out. What's the matter with you? What are you trying to do? Stop it from beating. Stop what, sir? Get out of here. Both of you. Get out of here. But you... Get out of here. <laughs> Can't you hear it? Can't you? I can stifle his heart, that throbbing heart. Can't you hear the throbbing? Can't you hear it? The only thing we hear is you, Mr. Crowther. I can't stand it. I can't. She was pounding will never stop till I tell you the truth. The truth about what? About the old man, about Florence. I did it. I did it. What did you do? I killed him. Under the floor. His body is under the floor and he stopped that beat. <laughs> Stop the beating of his guilty <laughs> Always with me. Always with me. Why did you do it? Why did you do it? Listen. Did you hear it? Slow, rhythmic beating. 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 It's with me. It follows me wherever I go. The pounding of his heart. The pounding, the pounding, the beating, beating rhythm of his telltale heart. Be quiet! Be quiet! Be quiet! So runs tonight's tale of the unusual, the terrifying, the unknown. Join us again when next we journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy to hear another strange tale of the supernatural. All characters and events portrayed in these programs are fictional, and any similarity to actual events or persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental.
Phantoms of a world gone by speak again that immortal tale, William Wilson. Laura. Laura. Oh, Charlie Vernon. I thought you weren't going to come to my party tonight. Well, this is one party I wouldn't miss for all the cobblestones in New York. <laughs> Now, here's going to announce your engagement to my old buddy, William Wilson. Well, that was supposed to be a secret until midnight. Who told you? Usual grapevine, all right. No secrets in this clubby little group. Now, where is Bill now? In the library. He hates crowds, you know. Well, he wanted to be alone for a while. <laughs> what, what was that? Come on, all right. Let's find out. Well, I think it's in the library, Charles. Bill! Bill, darling! He's wounded. Get a doctor, somebody. I'll call the doctor right away. What happened, darling? If I were a detective, I'd say he tried to bump himself off and miss. Be quiet, Charles. Oh, Bill. (laughs) It does look like attempted suicide, doesn't it? It's all so strange. So strange. There's nothing strange about this setup, old boy. Gun in your left hand, a bullet hole in your left side. Pretty neat. You're enjoying it, Charlie? Well, I can't say that I'm not. I came to suffer through your wedding. Who knows, I might stay and enjoy your funeral. Really, Charles, your sense of humor's out of place. You hate me, Charlie, don't you? Boo Black, you never could stand a guy with brains. Brains? Those muscles in your head are so twisted they look like handcuffs. Why did you do it, Bill? All right, you've got to believe me, I didn't. I didn't do it. Oh, dear, Bill, then why? Come on, William Wilson. We want the straight goods for a change. But I didn't, I... You might die, mister. Put your cards on the table. Cards on the table. <laughs> you wouldn't believe me if I told you. None of you would. It all started back in college. When you and I were rooming together at the fraternity house, Charlie. There was one night you were sitting at the desk studying and I was trying to shave. I was peering in the mirror at myself. Why are you getting so slicked up, Bill, old boy? Got a date. A Dolly Maysfield? Cute little something, isn't she? Oh, Bill, she's not your type. Hey, she's good for laughs. You don't need laughs every night. What would you suggest? Oh, gee, Bill, if I had your dough, I'd... Well, I'd work hard at college and meet a nice girl and think about getting married. Ouch. I almost cut myself. Oh, I mean it. Think about getting married, Bill. So you mean it. What do you want me to do? Bury myself? Oh, no, but... Oh, gee, take, take me, for instance. I know I'm a dope, but I got just enough money to see me through college. Yeah, I know. The $3,000 your old man left you. You're a boob to spend it in this place. You'll wind up with a blank bank account and a dirty piece of parchment to show for your trouble. You've got the wrong slant on life, Bill. I have. Listen, stupid. You've been seeing Laura St. Clair for three years now. She's alive with money. If you'd get on to yourself, you'd spring the question, put her in double wedlock, and get your fingers on that money. I'm in love with Aura, Bill. Love, love, love. Rot. I'd never touch a cent of her money. You're crazy, Charlie. Well, oh boy, I don't want to be late. Hey, hey, Bill. Hmm? Have you met the new boy in the house? What new boy? A freshman just came in today. Sounds fascinating. What about it? Well, nothing, except he's got the same name you have. Are you kidding? No, I just thought you'd be interested. There can't be two William Wilsons. If there is, there won't be for long. Boy, what an ego you have. A great Scott fellow, you waste more time talking than you do anything else. Yeah, which all adds up to the fact that you want me to stay home and study tonight. Nothing doing, Charlie. I got a date with my dolly. 
Night. That was the first time I ever heard of the other William Wilson. The knowledge that he existed rankled in my soul. That evening, as I stepped out into the hall and walked halfway down the stairs, I was stopped by my double. He looked just like me. Rather like a poor imitation. I felt from the first that he was my evil genius. He didn't act like a freshman when he said, Hello. I've been waiting for you here in the hall. You've been waiting for me? Who are you? I'm your namesake. You can call me Wilson. There's nobody home at the fraternity house except you and me and Charlie. I thought it would be a good chance to get acquainted with you. I'm sorry, I'm busy today. Bill. Where do you get that Bill stuff? It might be worthwhile getting acquainted with me. What do you want, anyway? I'll walk you down the stairs. Don't trouble yourself, Wilson. You might be better off never knowing me. I might be, but, uh... Save it, I said. See you some other time, Wilson. Charles! Oh, Charlie! Uh, something I can do for you, lady? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm Aura Sinclair. I promised to call for Charlie Vernon tonight. What did you call him for me? Well, you're Aura Sinclair. Oh, yes. Well, uh, all right. Um, would you tell Charlie I'm here? Well, uh, I would if I could, but uh, he's not in. Oh, but he promised he... Imagine him forgetting a date with a nice girl like you. Oh, that's strange. Do you know where he is? Yeah. I mean, well, gee, Miss Sinclair, I don't think I ought to tell you. Is he out with another girl? Well, now that you've guessed it, I guess I'll have to say yes. I see. I'm sorry. I don't look like that. Suppose I see you home. That's not necessary. It'd be a pleasure. I'd do anything for Charlie. Come on, Bill. Is that you again, Wilson? Yes, it's me, Bill. Don't you think you ought to stick around here this evening? Don't you think you ought to mind your own business? Maybe you are my business. What? Stop ribbing me, fella. I don't like it. Come on, Miss St. Clair. I think you and I will have a lot to talk about. This is awfully nice of you. But I don't even know your name. William Wilson. Don't forget that, my sweet. The one and only William Wilson. That's how I met her. We spent the entire evening together, Charlie. We had a lot of laughs. It was well past midnight when we said goodnight to each other. And I was about to go home when I remembered that I hadn't even called Dolly Maysfield to tell her I couldn't make it. Knowing Dolly's temperament, I decided to drop up to her apartment, even though it was late. I knocked on the apartment door. Well, well, well. Look what the breeze brought in, Mr. Heartbreaker. Aren't you uh, going to even ask me in? I'll never talk to you again, that's what. Who do you think you are, Mr. King of Siam? Well, that's the way you feel. Oh, wait a minute. Come on in, Bill. I, I've been worried stiff about you. That's more like my doll, baby. Got a kiss for me? Sure. I got a kiss for you. Oh, Bill, I, I love you so much. Come here. There, Dolly. Where were you, Bill? Um, where was I? Don't you trust me, darling? Sure, I trust you. I had something important to attend to. Uh, come on, give us a smile. There. I like to see you smile, darling. I like it a lot. Well, I do most anything for you, Bill. I'm glad to hear that, because I've got to ask you a favor. Anything you want. I want you to stay away from me from now on, baby. You and I are through. Through? 
Oh, Bill, what are you talking about? Don't joke with me. This is no joke. I'm serious. I'm giving it to you right from the shoulder, kid. But you're joking, aren't you? No, I'm not. I found the girl I want to marry. She's class, Dolly. Real class. With plenty of money. You get me? You'll never marry her, Bill. She'll find out what a cheap four-flusher you are, and then I'll tell her. I'll tell her a lot of things about you. You pretending to have so much money and borrowing from me all the time. Pretending to be such a big shot when you got holes in your shoes. Shooting off your mouth. Shut up. Shut up, Dolly, before I make you shut up. Nobody's going to tell anybody anything. That is, if you're smart. And I think you are. Okay. I know what everybody thinks of me. But I made up my mind to marry Aura, and nobody was going to stop me. I saw Aura every day and every night after that for the next three weeks. Things went according to plan. I thought I was rid of Dolly Maysfield for good until... Well, you remember that night, Charlie, you and I and Wilson were sitting around the living room of the fraternity house chewing the fat? It was all Wilson's fault. I knew from the first time I saw him he was my evil genius. And you were saying... I just can't understand it, Bill. I've been calling Aura every night, but she won't talk to me. Yeah, that's how women are, Charlie. Why don't you tell him why, Bill? Keep out of this, Wilson. It won't make any difference now. He said, mind your own business. You are my business, Bill. What are you talking about, Wilson? Ask Bill why you never saw Aura the night she was to call for you. Ask him. Go on, Charlie. Bill? Well, what did Bill have to do with it? What difference does that make now? It's all over and done with. Aura's not interested in you anymore, Charlie. She told me so herself. You... You dirty double-crosser. Sit down, Charlie, and cool off. Why don't you write Aura a letter and tell her the truth, Charlie? Well, what's the use? But I'll get even with you someday, Bill Wilson. Don't think I won't. I'll answer it. Hey, you make a good doorman, Wilson. I told you, Charlie, to grab the girl while you had the chance. You didn't tell me you were going to stick a knife in my back. A smart guy gets what he wants in this world. Here's William Wilson. You have to be smart, like me. He's in the living room. Thanks. Bill? Oh, Bill? Well, look who's here. If it isn't the doll baby yourself. Hello, Bill. Hello, Dolly. Meet the boys. This is Charlie Vernon. The doorman is my double, William Wilson. Hello. How do you do? How do you do? Tell you what I'll do for you, Charlie. I'll give you the doll baby here in exchange for Aura. How's that? That's fair. You make a man sick, Bill. Bill. <laughs> Bill, I gotta see you. Well, you see me. How do I look? How alone, I mean. I told you not to bother me anymore. Oh, please, Bill, if you've any pity. Pity? <laughs> sure, I got pity. Where'll we go? Anywhere you say, Bill. How about the river? Hmm? How about a nice walk down to the river? Sure, Bill. That's a good place for what I want. That's just about... Perfect. to the river, Dolly and I. For a talker, she was silent that night. 
I knew she had more up her sleeve than her pretty white arm. We got to the edge of the river. We sat down to watch the boats steam by. Bill, I can't live without you. So what? I'm going to give you one last chance, Bill, to be a decent guy. You're going to give me a chance. <laughs> what a laugh. Oh, Bill, don't you know what you're doing to yourself? You're trying to marry a girl that ain't for you. You once told me that you and me was cut from the same piece of cloth. Yeah, I once said a lot of things. We are cut from the same piece of cloth. You're a no-good bum, but I, I love you. Oh, we could help each other. You could go straight and be honest and hide work right with you every inch of the way. Nobody else would do that for you, Bill. What do you expect me to do? Chuck $20 million into the lake for you? Listen, Dolly, don't try any tricks. Bill, please, please, You don't fit into the picture anymore. Don't you get it? Oh, what'll I do? Who cares? Why don't you kill yourself? Make it easier all the way around. You wouldn't care? I'd send you a dozen posies. If I jumped in the river, you wouldn't care? Why should I? Oh, watch me, Bill. I don't think any man's as hard as you pretend to be. So I'm watching. You've held me in your arms. You've kissed me. You've said you loved me. Doesn't that mean anything? It did when I said it, I guess. You can never tell what a guy's going to say. Can you really watch me, Bill? Even though I love you. I can watch anything, baby, when I'm sitting on $20 million. Watch me, Bill. What? Ah, you fool. Jump and get it over with. You can't bluff me. I love you, Bill. Don't forget that. Kelly! Help! Help! I can't swim, Bill. Help me! Well, it was your choice, kid. You picked your grave. Not dying it. Nice work, William Wilson. Nice work. What are you doing here? I tried to follow you. I have a feeling I'm a little late. She wanted to kill herself. I wasn't thinking about Dollyville. I was thinking about you. Don't give me that stuff, Wilson. I don't go for it. I'm always thinking about you, Bill. But you're too smart to allow anybody to help you. And I'm afraid it's too late for you to help yourself. Cut it out, will you? Cut it out. Let me worry about my own soul. If it's damned, then I'll be the one to suffer. Not you. Not you. Dolly was dead. Nobody knew about it except Wilson. I knew he wouldn't tell. At least I thought he wouldn't. I don't know why, but I just knew. There was only one other person in the way of my plans. That was you, Charlie. You were in the way, and I had to get rid of you. It took me some time to plan the right attack. It was right after mid-years, remember? How could I forget? I was alone in the room with you, Charlie. I was toying with a deck of cards. Stop that shuffling, will you, Bill? I gotta shuffle him. Gonna play some two-handed stud with Wilson. I'm nervous enough waiting for the mid-year report. You'll pass. Don't worry. Well, if I don't pass, what happens to me then? I got $1,000 left. Not enough to pay for any full year's course anywhere in the country. What makes you so sure you flunked? You know why. Still thinking of Aura? Sure, I'm still thinking of her. Day and night. Bill, isn't there a decent chord in you somewhere? Why don't you go to Aura and tell her the truth? <laughs> why don't you? Hello, Charlie. How are you, Bill? It's about time you got here, Wilson. Sorry, Bill. I hate to keep you waiting. Have a seat. What do you want to play for? Name your own figure. Well, how about a five-dollar limit? Good enough. Want to sit in on a hand, Charlie? No, thanks. I couldn't. Game of stud would be good for you. Take your mind off your troubles. Well, the stakes are sort of high. Well, maybe you'll win some money. Heaven knows you need it. Okay. Well, I might sit in for a while. Cut for deal, Vernon. 
It might bring you some luck. Don't you ever lose, Bill? Not very often, old boy. Not very often. Want to bet again? Easy, Charlie. Quit now while you've still got $600 left. Well, I can't quit now. I can't. I, I tell you, I gotta win. I, I gotta. Let's double the stakes. Double it, triple it. Any way you want, Charlie, old boy. Three o'clock, Bill. It's not up to me to quit. I'm the winner. It's up to Charlie. How about it, Charlie? I haven't got much choice, have I? I'm flat busted. Now, that's tough luck, Charlie. That's real tough luck. You've got my girl. You've got my money. You've got everything, haven't you, Bill? Just everything. You shouldn't gamble if you can't afford it. Come on, Charlie. Take out that check for the full amount, $1,108. I haven't got that much money in the world, and you know it. Well, give me a 1000 then. I'll take an option on that empty soul of yours for the rest. What's the matter? You going to welch? I don't welch. Where's the pen? There it is, Charlie. Don't get sore. Give it to me. Take it out nice and clear, huh? That's a boy. Here you are. Thanks, Charlie. Where are you going, Charlie? As far away from here as I can get. I'm going to get a job. A good, honest job. Someday I'll be back. And I won't forget you, Bill. I'll never forget you, no matter how long I live. Someday I'm going to get even. Keep your shirt on, Charlie. If you'll pardon me, good night. <laughs> nice work, Bill. Keeping an even score. What are you talking about, Wilson? The three aces up your sleeve. And the cards from the bottom of the deck. If you saw me, why didn't you tell him? I don't have to. Other eyes are watching you beside me. Many other eyes. Eyes that keep the records of our lives. So I cheated you, Charlie. You didn't even know it. You left town and it was clear sailing for me. All the way. Yeah, it was clear sailing. Right to the altar. At least almost to the altar. Except for one thing. But you didn't know, Bill. One little thing. I left the fraternity house that night, but I didn't leave town. I went to Aura's house and I told her the full story. Charlie, this isn't a new story to me. All along I've known Bill's pretty rotten. But I'm in love with him. I'm horribly in love with him. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I know exactly what you mean. I'm fascinated by him. And yet there's something almost appalling about him. He's crude and earthy and... How can I make you understand? I think I understand, Aura. Sometimes I wish I'd never met him. You'd have been better off. And then again, I'd... I'd die without him, Charlie. That's my answer. I'm so sorry, my dear. It's all right, Aura. Someday I'll be back. When you need me. I don't mind being an old shoe for you. I'll be back and... I hope you've gotten over him by then. That was a right touching scene. Yeah... Maybe you still got a chance, Charlie, if that doctor doesn't get here soon. But you still haven't told me who... Bill, what happened tonight? Well, I graduated from college. And you and I became engaged. And you sent out the invitations to this ball tonight. To all my old friends. Even to Wilson, 
The one man I didn't want to see. I was standing in the ballroom a little while ago, watching you, Aura, when Wilson beckoned to me. He was in the doorway of the library. Somehow or other, I felt drawn to it. I, I, I had to go there, even though I didn't want to. I walked in, closed the door behind me. Hello, Bill. What do you want? You know what I've come for. Why don't you turn on the lights? Are you afraid of the dark, Bill? What are you talking about, Wilson? The world you'll know will be dark forever. Are you trying to threaten me? I don't think I have to threaten you. You threaten yourself by your mere existence. Who are you, anyway, William Wilson? Don't you know, Bill? Stop looking at me that way. Think back, Bill. Think back a long way. Remember, Dolly. I don't want to die, Bill. I just want to threaten you. I don't want to die. I love you. Remember her screams and your laugh? Remember what Charlie said? You'll pay for this someday, Bill. You'll pay for it. I warned you. I've warned you many times. And I never told on you. Do you know why? I don't care why. Think hard, Bill Wilson. Think hard. I'm the only one who knows the truth. I'm the only one who stands between you and success, William Wilson. You carry a gun, don't you, Bill? Don't you? What's the difference if I do? Why don't you kill me? Kill then you. nobody will know. Hate you. Love you. Hate you. Love you. Hate you. Yes, I will kill you. I will. There can only be one, William Wilson. There's never been more than one, William Wilson. Uh, I'm wounded. I, uh, I aimed the gun at you. At you, Wilson. Wilson. Wilson! Where are you? Wilson! I'm alone. No. No, no, no. I couldn't have dreamed it. I couldn't. And that's the entire story. You don't have to believe me, but it's the truth. Here's the doctor, Bill. Now, just lie still, son. Don't try to move. I, I don't feel sick, doctor. I'm just stiff. Sort of sort of paralyzed, you know what I mean? Now, let's have a look at this. Hmm. Hey, doctor, how bad am I? Just lie still. Uh -huh. Doctor, is it? There's a sudden pain, doctor. Doctor, I felt fine before, but... Oh, oh, oh. I'm afraid it's too late. The bullet lodged near his heart, and the exertion of talking was too much for him. If he hadn't talked, Doctor, would he... No, my dear. He must have had a lot on his conscience to have held up this long. William Wilson, I'm waiting for you. Come along, Bill. Wilson! What are you doing here? Just waiting for you, Bill. Waiting so that two halves of a soul can be reunited. Come along, Bill. Take my hand. Your hand. So dark here, Wilson. So very dark. Yes. I'll have to leave you. And 
be a long journey here, Bill. An awfully long journey on the road back. From the time-worn pages of the past, we have brought to you William Wilson. Bellkeeper, toll the bell. Tonight, two tales by Edgar Allan Poe. First, a story about a phantom that you might see in your own city streets at any time. Here is Bernard Mays to tell you about the man in the crowd. There are some secrets which do not permit themselves to be told. Men die nightly in their beds, wringing the hands of ghostly confessors and looking them piteously in the eyes. Die of despair of heart and convulsion of throat on account of the hideousness of mysteries which will not suffer themselves to be revealed. Now and then, alas, the conscience of man takes up a burden so heavy in horror that it can be thrown down only into the grave. And thus, the essence of all crime is undivulged. Not long ago, about the closing in of an evening in autumn, I sat at the large bay window of a coffee house in London, peering through the smoky panes the street, one of the principal thoroughfares of the city. As the darkness came on, the throng momentarily increased. Two dense and continuous tides of population were rushing past the door. At first, I looked at the passengers in masses, 
Soon, however, I descended to details and regarded with minute interest the innumerable varieties. The greater number had a satisfied, business-like demeanour, others restless, talking to themselves. The tribe of clerks, one breed wearing the cast-off graces of the gentry, another the affectation of respectability. Descending the scale of what is termed gentility, darker and deeper themes, beggars, ghastly and feeble invalids, drunkards. As the night deepened, the late hour brought forth every species of infamy from its den, and deepened in me also the interest of the scene. With my brow to the glass, I was thus occupied in scrutinizing the mob, when suddenly there came into view a countenance, that of a decrepit old man, some sixty-five or seventy years of age, a countenance which at once arrested and absorbed my whole attention. There arose within my mind the ideas of vast mental power, of caution, of penuriousness, of avarice, coolness, malice, of bloodthirstiness, of triumph, of merriment, of excess terror, of intense, of extreme despair. I felt singularly aroused and fascinated. Then came a craving desire to keep the man in view, to know more of him. I made my way into the street and pushed through the crowd in the direction which I had seen him take. I had looked him up within sight of him, approached and followed him closely, yet cautiously, so as not to attract his attention. He was short in stature, very thin, and apparently very feeble. His clothes generally were filthy and ragged. It was now fully nightfall, and the humid fog had ended in a settled, heavy rain. For half an hour the old man held his way with difficulty along the great thoroughfare, and I walked close at his elbow through fear of losing sight of him. Never once turning his head to look back, he didn't observe me. By and by he passed into a cross street, not quite so much thronged as the one he quitted. He walked more slowly, more hesitating. He crossed and recrossed the way repeatedly without apparent aim. The street was a narrow and long one, and his course lay within it for nearly an hour, during which the passengers had gradually diminished. A turn brought us into a square, brilliantly lighted and overflowing with life. He urged his way steadily and perseveringly. I was surprised, however, to find, upon his having made the circuit of the square, that he turned and retraced his steps, repeating the same walk several times, once nearly detecting me as he came round with a sudden movement. In this exercise, he spent another hour. The rain fell fast, the air grew cool, and the people were retiring to their homes. With a gesture of impatience, the wanderer passed into a by-street, comparatively deserted. Down this, some quarter of a mile long, he rushed with an activity I couldn't have dreamed of seeing in one so aged. A few moments later, brought us into a large and busy bazaar, and he forced his way to and fro, without aim, among the host of buyers and sellers. At no moment did he see me that I watched him. He entered shop after shop, priced nothing, spoke no word, looked at all objects with a wild and vacant stare. I was now utterly amazed at his behavior. 
I must resolve to follow him wherever he went. And we should not part until I had satisfied myself in some measure respecting him. By eleven o'clock, the company were fast deserting the bazaar. A shopkeeper, in putting up a shutter, jostled the old man. He shuddered and hurried into the street, looked anxiously around him for an instant, and then ran with incredible swiftness through many crooked and peopled lanes. Until we emerged once more upon the great thoroughfare whence we had started. It was still brilliant with gas, but the rain fell fiercely, and there were few persons to be seen. The stranger grew pale. Then with a heavy sigh, turned in the direction of the river, and plunging through a great variety of devious ways, came out at length in view of one of the principal theatres. The audience were thronging from the doors. The old man gasped as if for breath and threw himself into the crowd. Eventually the company grew more scattered, and his old uneasiness and vacillation were resumed. For some time, he followed closely a party of some ten or twelve roisterers. But one by one, they dropped off. In a narrow and gloomy lane, the stranger paused, and for a moment seemed lost in thought. And then, with every mark of agitation, pursued rapidly a route which brought us to the most noisome quarter of London. Everything wore the worst impress of the most deplorable poverty and crime. Tall, antique, worm-eaten, wooden tenements, horrible, filthy fested in the damned-up gutters. The whole atmosphere teemed with desolation. Yet as we proceeded, the sounds of human life revived. Large bands of the most abandoned London populace were seen reeling to and fro. The spirits of the old man again flickered up. as a lamp which is near its death's hour. Once more he strolled onward. Suddenly a corner was turned A blaze of light burst upon our sight And we stood before one of the huge suburban temples of intemperance It was now an early daybreak And a number of wretched inebriates were still pressing in and out With half a shriek of joy the old man forced a passage within He stalked backward and forward Without apparent object among the throng when finally they were gone, it was something even more intense than despair that I then observed. Yet he didn't hesitate, but with a mad energy, he retraced his steps at once to the heart of the mighty London. Long and swiftly he fled, while I followed him in the wildest amazement, resolute not to abandon a scrutiny in which I now felt an interest all-absorbing. The sun arose while we proceeded. And when we had reached the most thronged part of the populous town, it presented an appearance of human bustle and activity scarcely inferior to what I had seen on the evening before. And here, long among the increasing confusion, did I persist in my pursuit of the stranger. But, as usual, he walked to and fro, and during the day didn't pass out from the turmoil of the street. As the shades of the second evening passed on, I grew wearied unto death. Stopping full in front of the wanderer, gazed at him steadfastly in the face. 
noticed me not, but resumed his solemn walk. This old man is the type and genius of deep crime. He refuses to be alone. He's the man of the crowd. It will be in vain to follow. I shall learn no more of him nor of his deeds, for he doesn't permit himself to be read. That was Bernard Mays in The Man in the Crowd by Edgar Allan Poe. Our second story by Poe is also about a phantom, this one on the high seas. Here is Edgar Allan Poe's M.S. Found in a Bottle. Of my country and of my family, I have little to say. Ill usage and length of years have driven me from the one and estranged me from the other. Hereditary wealth afforded me a life spent mainly in foreign travel, terminated, finally, by the incredible events here related. I had set out from the port of Batavia on a voyage to the archipelago islands, and I went as passenger having no other inducement than a kind of nervous restlessness which haunted me as a fiend. We got underway with a mere breath of wind and for many days stood along the eastern coast of Java. One evening, leaning against the taprail, I observed a very singular isolated cloud to the northwest at sunset it spread, girding the horizon like a long line of low beach. My notice was soon after attracted by the dusky red appearance of the moon and the very peculiar character of the sea. The water seemed more than usually transparent. The air became intolerably hot, and as night came on, every breath of wind died away. A more entire calm it is impossible to conceive. The flame of a candle burned upon the poop without the least perceptible motion. The crew, consisting principally of Malays, stretched themselves deliberately upon the deck. I went below not without a full presentment of evil. My uneasiness, however, prevented me from sleeping, and about midnight I decided to go up upon deck. As I placed my foot upon the upper step of the companion ladder, I found the ship quivering, quivering to its very center. 
And in the next instant, a wilderness of foam hurled us upon our beam ends. And rushing over us, fore and aft, swept the entire deck from stem to stern. The extreme fury of the blast proved the salvation of the ship. She rose after a minute heavily from the sea and staggering a while beneath the immense pressure of the tempest, finally righted. By what miracle I, I escaped destruction, it is impossible to say. Stunned by the shock of the water, I found myself upon recovery, jammed in between the stern post and the rudder. Uh, uh, I, I regained my feet. It seemed we were among breakers so terrible. Beyond the wildest imagination was the whirlpool of, of mountainous and foaming ocean within which we were engulfed. Oh, oh. It was the old Swede. Uh, he came reeling aft. All on deck, with the exception of ourselves, had been swept overboard. And those below must have perished while they slept. The cabins were deluged with water. main fury of the blast had already blown over, and we apprehended little danger from the violence of the wind. For five entire days and nights, during which our only subsistence was a small quantity of jaggery procured with great difficulty from the forecastle. For five entire days and nights, the hulk flew at a rate defying computation before rapidly succeeding flaws of the wind. Uh, our course for the first four days was southeast by south. Uh, on the fifth day, the cold became extreme. The sun arose with a, a sickly yellow luster and clambered a very few degrees above the horizon emitting no decisive light. There were no clouds apparent, yet the wind was upon the increase and blew with a fitful and unsteady fury. About, about noon, our attention was again arrested by the appearance of the sun. Rebel sun, light all gone too. It gave out no light properly so-called, but a dull and sullen glow, without reflection, as if its rays were polarized. And just before sinking, its central powers suddenly went out, as if hurriedly extinguished by some unaccountable power. It was a dim, silver-like rim alone as it rushed down the unfathomable sea. One. Going down to sea. 
We waited in vain for the arrival of the sixth day. That day to me has not yet arrived. To the Swede, it never did arrive. Thenceforward, we were enshrouded in pitchy darkness, so that we could not have seen an object twenty paces from the ship. Eternal night continued to envelop us. All around us were horror, horror and thick gloom. Black, sweltering desert of ebony. Superstitious terror crept by degrees into the spirit of the old Swede. We had no means of calculating time. We were aware of having made far to the south. Every mountainous billow hurried to overwhelm us. The swell surpassed anything I, I had imagined possible. The swelling of the black, stupendous seas became more dismally appalling. At, at times we, we gasped for breath at an elevation beyond the albatross. At times became dizzy with the velocity of our descent into some watery hell. Uh. We were at the bottom of one of these abysses when... Oh! Oh, see! See! Almighty God, see! A, a dull, sullen glare of red light streamed down the sides of the vast chasm where we lay. At a terrific height above us, and on the very verge of the precipitous descent, hovered a gigantic ship. A huge hose of a deep, dingy black and she bore up under a press of sail in the very teeth of that supernatural sea. For a moment of intense terror, she paused upon the giddy pinnacle as if in contemplation of our own sublimity. Then, then trembled and tottered and came down! Ah! Uh, uh, the, the shock of the descending mass had struck us. Ah, ah. I had been hurled here, here upon the rigging of the stranger. Uh, uh, and finally, dizzy, in a dream, I was on the deck. Uh, I staggered to the main hatchway, then secreted myself in the hole. Why, I can hardly tell. An indefinite sense of awe had taken hold of my mind. A feeling for which I have no name has taken possession of my soul. A sensation which will admit of no analysis, to which the lessons of bygone time are inadequate and for which I fear futurity will offer me no key. To a mind constituted like my own, the latter consideration is an evil. I shall never, I shall never be satisfied with regard to the nature of my conceptions. Yet, yet is it not wonderful that these conceptions are indefinite? since they have their origin in sources so utterly novel. A new sense, a new entity is added to my soul. 
It is long since I first trod the decks of this terrible ship. Incomprehensible men, wrapped up in meditations of a kind which I cannot divine, they pass me by unnoticed. Concealment is utter folly on my part, for the people will not see. Just now I, I passed directly before the eyes of the mate. I ventured into the captain's own private cabin and took thence the materials with which I write. I shall from time to time continue this journal. It is true that I may not find an opportunity of transmitting it to the world, but I will not fail to make the endeavor. At the last moment, I will enclose the manuscript in a bottle and cast it within the sea. An incident occurred. I had thrown myself down upon the deck, and while musing upon the singularity of my fate, I unwittingly daubed with a tar brush the edges of a neatly folded studding sail, which lay near me. Now the sail is rigged, and I look up and see the thoughtless touches of the brush spread out in the wind. Spelling the word discovery. I have made observations upon the structure of the ship. What she is, I fear it is impossible to say. Of huge sides and overgrown suits of canvas, simple bow, antiquated stern. There flashes across my mind a sensation of familiar things, indistinct shadows of recollection. There is a peculiar character about the wood which strikes me as rendering it unfit for the purpose to which it has been applied. I mean its extreme porousness. It would have every characteristic of Spanish oak if Spanish oak were distended by any unnatural means. A curious apothem comes full upon my recollection. It is as sure as... As sure as there is a sea where the ship itself will grow in bulk like the living body of the seamen. I stood among a group of the crew. They paid me no manner of attention. They all bore about them the marks of a hoary old age. Their knees trembled, their shoulders bent. Their shriveled skins rattled in the wind. Their eyes glistened with the room of years. Around them, on every part of the deck, lay mathematical instruments of the most quaint and obsolete construction. I see the captain face to face in his own cabin. I regard him with a feeling of irrepressible reverence and awe and wonder. The singularity of the expression which reigns upon the face, the intense, the thrilling evidence of old age, so utter, so extreme, 
His gray hairs are records of the past. His grayer eyes are symbols of the future. His head was bowed down upon his hand, and it poured with a fiery, unquiet eye over a paper which I took to be a commission. He murmured to himself, and his voice seemed to reach my ears from a great distance. The ship continues her course due south. And colossal waters rear their heads above us like demons of the deep. But like demons forbidden to destroy. All in the immediate vicinity of the ship is the blackness of eternal night. And a chaos of foamless water. But now, about a league on either side of us may be seen indistinctly and at intervals stupendous ramparts of ice, ice towering away into the desolate sky, looking like the walls of the universe. The ship proves to be within the influence of some strong current or impetuous undertow, which, now howling and shrieking by the white ice, thunders on to the southward with a velocity like the headlong dashing of a cataract. Conceive the horror of my sensations is utterly impossible. Yet a curiosity to penetrate the mysteries of these awful regions predominates even over my despair and will reconcile me to the most hideous aspect of death. It is evident that we are hurrying onward to some exciting knowledge, some never-to-be-imparted secret whose attainment is destruction. Uh, uh. Uh, uh, the ship is at times lifted bodily from out of the sea. The ice opens suddenly to the right and to the left, and we are whirling dizzily in immense concentric circles round and round the borders of a gigantic amphitheater, the summit of whose walls is lost in the darkness and the distance. But little time will be left to me to ponder upon my destiny. The circles rapidly grow small, smaller and smaller. We are plunging madly within the grasp of the whirlpool. The ship is quivering, oh God, and going down, going down. That was M.S. Found in a Bottle by Edgar Allan Poe. The technical production was by John Whiting, and the story was adapted and performed by your host of the Black Mass, Eric Bowersfeld. And now, good night.
The National Broadcasting Company delays this program to bring you a special bulletin. From the NBC Newsroom in New York, the hurricane raging across the Gulf of Mexico is now expected to strike inland again early tomorrow. The center of the storm hitting the coast of Louisiana, 100 miles south of New Orleans. Thousands of refugees are now streaming inland from exposed coastal spots in the storm-threatened area, which extends from western Florida to Louisiana. This bulletin came to you from the NBC Newsroom in New York. Keep tuned to your NBC station for the later news. Mystery in the Air, starring Peter Lorre, presented by Camel Cigarettes. of this court that you be hanged by the neck until you are dead. And may God have mercy on your soul. No, I, I neither expect nor solicit belief for this wild story. I, I would be mad to expect it yet. Mad I'm not, and very surely I do not dream. But, but while there is still time, I, I don't know why I... I feel compelled to report a series of, of mere household events and their consequences. These events have terrified, have tortured, have destroyed me. Perhaps some are more calm, more, more logical, but certainly far less excitable than I will be able to explain them. I, I cannot. I, I can only tell you the facts, and that I have to do today because tomorrow I die. Each week at this time, Camel Cigarettes bring you Peter Lorre in the excitement of the great stories of the strange and unusual, of dark and compelling masterpieces culled from the four corners of world literature. Tonight, Edgar Allan Poe's immortal American classic, The Black Cat. Mystery in the Air, starring Peter Lorre. Brought to you by Camel Cigarettes. Experience is the best teacher. Try a camel. Let your own experience tell you why more people are smoking camels than ever before. Give your T-Zone the experience of enjoying a camel. And see if you don't join the millions of other smokers who say... Camels suit my T-Zone to a T. Your T-Zone, that's T for taste and T for throat, is your true proving ground for any cigarette. See if Camel's rich, full flavor isn't a delightful experience for your taste. If Camel's cool mildness isn't more than welcome to your throat, try a Camel. No, believe me, that, 
There was nothing, absolutely nothing in my childhood which, which forecast the terrible events that were to come. No, as a child, I, I was very gentle. I, I got along well with everyone, but, but most I liked animals, yes. <laughs> All kinds of animals. And, and then I married quite young and I, I was very happy to find that my wife shared my feelings. <laughs> very soon we, we had quite a collection. Oh, we had, we had birds and goldfish. We had a dog and some rabbits and we had a cat. I'll never forget the day my wife brought it home. <laughs> hello, hello. You're home so early. Look, Charles, look. Look what I brought. Oh, oh, look at it. Oh, the little kitty. <laughs> Where did you get it, darling? Oh, the poor little thing. Some dogs were chasing it, and oh, I just rescued it in time. Yes, it was hello. so frightened. Yes, but it isn't frightened anymore. Oh, it seems to love you, child. <laughs> then that's yeah. not strange. All animals do. Yes, yes, yes. Nobody's going to hurt you, kitty, kitty, no. How about some milk, huh? <laughs> Yes. There, you see. <laughs> oh, you must have been very hungry. Yes. Hey, what's your name, huh? I don't suppose he has a name. He is so young. I don't think he belongs to anybody. Well, then, then we have to give him a name. You mean we can keep him? Keep him? What are you talking about? He has no home. We can't turn him out in the streets, can oh, we? Oh, Charles, I was hoping you'd let him stay. Of course, but he, he must have a name. Yes, let's see. Oh, you're so black, yes. All black, beautiful. Not a single white mark. Oh, oh, I have it. <laughs> He's as black as the devil. Let's call him Pluto. <laughs> yes, we'll call you Pluto. Well, Pluto grew up to be a remarkably beautiful cat, and of all the animals in our house... He became my favorite and my playmate, yes, and until it all changed, yes, and as the years went on, my, my character suffered a radical change and everything changed. Huh? Why? Well, I, I'm ashamed. I, I hate to admit it, 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 through, uh, through, through intemperance, yes, through intemperance. And then as, uh, as drink became more and more necessary to me, I, I became more and more moody and irritable. Charles, where are you going? I don't have to tell you where I'm going. Oh, Charles, what's happening? What do you mean, what's happening to me? Well, you never used to go out every night to those vile places. Please stop nagging. Stop it. I go out because I can't stand listening to you. Nag, nag, nag all day long. I don't know what's come over you. There. Yeah, see? <laughs> Why don't you learn from Pluto? It's only a cat. He he doesn't ask me where I'm going. Yeah, that's right. You never do, no. Come here, Pluto. <laughs> yes, I like you. Come here. Be careful, child. Don't pick him up like that. Uh, yeah. Don't you hurt him. him. Him, I'm never you... hurting. Ouch! He, he bit me. He bit me. You, you devil. I'll show you. Don't, you child, don't. Ah! Don't. Ah! Yes, I, I hate to admit it, but I was so furious, I kicked Pluto, and I kicked him again, and hard, and... Well, the next morning, I... I saw that his ear was torn, and I was filled with remorse for what I'd done. From then on, 
Pluto ran away in terror whenever I approached, and, and that in turn made me more and more irritated, and, and in the end it, it was sheer perverseness, nothing else, yes. Sheer and unexplainable perverseness that, that made me do what I did, yeah. I, I blush to admit it, but, but one morning I, I strangled the poor animal. Yeah, I, I killed it only because I knew that, that it had loved me and, and because, because it had given me no reason for offense. No, I, I'm offering no excuse. I, I'm only recounting what happened. Well, in, in the evening I, I went to the inn as usual and, I came home very late, and I fell fast asleep with my clothes on. Then I was awakened suddenly. What? Charles! Charles, wake up! Charles! What's the matter? There must be a fire. I smell smoke. Good heavens! Look it! It's our house! Our house is burning! Come on, darling! Come! We'll be trapped! Come on, hurry up! Quick! I can't. I don't talk. Don't talk, sweetheart. Perhaps I, I can get you through the flames. Don't breathe, darling. Here. Here. Here's the front door. Yeah. We made it. We're safe. Oh, Charles. Look, our house. Hey, anybody else in there? Oh, no. Nobody else. Ah, uh, just as well. Never could get them out now. Are you the owner? Yes. That was our house. Well, you haven't got much left then. We can't save it now. Stand back! Stand back, everybody! The roof's gonna fall in! Stand back! There it goes! Well, it's down now. Funny, nothing is left but that one wall in the middle. Look at it. Well, what about it? Well, look at it on the wall. Hey, that is strange. Uh, what are you talking about? What's strange? Oh, there, there on the wall. It's still standing. Uh, marks on the plaster. Marks? Huh? What marks? Well, what's the matter? You blind? Right up there in the wall, that black figure. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> It looks like a cat. Yeah, it does. The smoke must have done it, but it certainly does look like a cat. What looks like a cat? There, and it's got one floppy ear. Who's got a floppy ear? Funny, 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 huh? It's not funny. It is not funny at all, you hear? I know what it is. You know who it is? Yes, it's Pluto. I I recognize him. I, yes, there, see? His ear is torn, huh? Oh, you, you beast. That hideous beast. It's, it's come back to, to haunt me. Leave me alone. You hear? I can't stand it. I, I can't. I can't. Get some water, somebody. This man's fainted. <laughs> Mr. Peter Lorre will bring us the climax of tonight's mystery in the air when camels present Act Two of The Black Cat. 
Ask a champion the secret of his success, and no doubt you'll get the same answer every time. Experience is the best teacher. Take Rose Gould, for instance. Featured aerialist of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. Miss Gould says it took experience to teach her that famous 75-foot dive into space. Mildred O'Donnell, diving champion, thanks experience for her crown. Yes, they all learn from experience. Just as smokers everywhere learn from experience about cigarettes. Back in the days of the wartime cigarette shortage, millions of smokers tried brand after brand, smoked whatever they could get. And that experience made people experts in judging the differences in cigarette quality. That was when so many people discovered that camels suit their T-zones to a T. That camels give them the rich, full flavor and the cool mildness they've always wanted. As a result, more people are smoking camels than ever before. Experience is the best teacher. Try a camel yourself. The black cat is dead, killed by its master. The house is burned to the ground, with everything in it completely destroyed. Now the scene is the almost deserted, candle-lit taproom of a local inn. Don't you think you'd better go on home, sir? Hmm? It's getting late. <laughs> home, huh? <laughs> you should see the terrible place where, where we're living now. Yeah, yeah, I heard you. Lost everything in that fire. Lost everything, yes. I, I lost everything. I, I lost my house. I lost everything. Well, uh, how about that black cat of yours you used to talk about all the time? Huh? Uh, what was his name? What was his name? Pluto. Ah. Yes. Pluto's gone, too. Oh, I, I tell you, I miss him. I, I miss him very much. <laughs> and if you miss him that much, why don't you get another cat? Give me a drink. Ah, it's getting pretty late, sir. I mean, well, won't your wife be expecting you? Give me a drink. Yes, sir. I'll have to fetch another bottle. Why don't I get another cat, huh? That's what you say, huh? Well, why don't I? No reason I shouldn't. There's no reason to be in the deeps of despair just, just because of a cat. I get another cat, uh, maybe, maybe I'll be able to forget her. What's that? Oh, there's a cat now. Yes, it? sitting on top of the table. <laughs> Black cat, huh? That's strange. I've been staring at that table for five minutes, and I've I could swear there was no cat on it. Anyway, where did you come from, huh? Oh, you... You're a beautiful cat, yes. You're, <laughs> you're just as black as Pluto. Yeah, yeah except you... You got a splotch of white on your chest, yeah. That's right, yeah. Oh, yes, come. Come sit on my lap, huh? Oh, yeah. Kitty, kitty, yes, you're a nice kitty. You're a nice cat. Yeah. Like... Here you are, sir. Where did this cat come from? Cat? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Big one, isn't he? I don't know where it came from, or how it got in either, for that matter. 
Never seen it around here before. Don't know what it belongs to? No. No, as far as I'm concerned, it belongs to you if you Hmm? want it. Can't keep it here. My wife doesn't like cats. Especially black ones. Doesn't like cats, huh? (laughs) How stupid. Say, I want it. Yes, I I want it very much. I'll take it home with me right now. This is such a wonderful cat. Just since last week, it's made itself so much at home. Well, you think it had lived here always? Yes, yes, I've noticed that. It reminds me so much of Pluto. Yes, but this one has a patch of white on its chest. Don't forget that. Yes, that's right, dear. But I can't help wondering. I wonder what ever became of Pluto. He disappeared the day of the fire. I know, I know he disappeared. and <laughs> Well, maybe he... He knew the house was going to burn down. Oh, see how it loves you. It's rubbing against your leg, just the way Pluto used to. Pluto, Pluto! Stop talking about Pluto! Darling, I didn't mean anything. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, dear. I always talk about how much this new cat resembles Pluto. It, it just makes me nervous. I, look, actually, there, there's hardly any resemblance at all, really. And, except that, Except that they're both black. This one has a white patch on its chest and... Oh, the poor thing. Charles, look, his ear is torn. See? Here under the fur. Oh, I never noticed that before. Neither did I. Why, it's just the way Pluto's... I mean... Go ahead, say it, say it, say it. It's torn, it's torn, yes. Just the way Pluto's ear was torn when I kicked him, huh? That's it, isn't it? Well, he must have been in a fight or something. But it's curious we didn't notice Curious, huh? You have no idea how curious it is. <laughs> no idea. Get that cat out of my sight. Charles, you're mad. Get it out of my How can you act that way about a poor dumb animal? Take Especially it out one that loved you so much. Oh, now you Take frightened it, dear. away from me, you hear me? <laughs> the way you talk, anybody think you don't even like the poor like cat. Like it, huh? Like it. I, I hate it. I tell you, I hate it. I, I hate it. I, I hate it. <laughs> In a short time, the cat had been with us. I had come to look upon it with unutterable loathing. Why, why I don't know. Yet, the more I hated it, the more affectionate it acted toward me. Wherever I went, it followed. Whenever I sat down, it, it would spring upon my knees and, and cover me with its loathsome caresses. As, as if this were not enough to the white patch on its chest, which originally... It, it had been very indefinite in shape, but, but gradually it assumed a, a very definite outline, yes, the, the unmistakable and, and ghastly shape of the gallows, a terrible engine of horror, of agony, and of death. I, I longed to destroy the beast, but I was prevented by an absolute unreasonable dread. I, I was sure I was losing my mind. Are you going out again? Yes, I'm going out. Uh, I don't know when I'll be back. Oh. Before you go, do you suppose you... Why, what is it? Will you help me bring up some wood from the cellar? Why do you always want more wood? The house is cold. 
You know I haven't been feeling well. I'm not strong enough to carry not it myself. Strong enough. All right, come on, I'll help you. You might have thought of this before. Look out! What? Oh, oh that's cat. That's a beast again. It's always under my feet. It tried to trip me on the stairs. Oh, no, I'm sure it did. I'll get rid of that beast. Once and for all, I'll get... Charles! Put down that crowbar. Get out of my way. No, no, stop. I say get out of my way. Let let go of my arm. Please, Charles, you're going to Let go of my arm. Are you going to let go? please. I said let go. Why didn't you let me go? Yeah, she, she'd fallen dead without a groan. Uh, my blind rage, my rage against the cat, uh, I'd struck my wife and killed her. Well, <laughs> nothing I can do about it now. All I could do was, was to set myself to the task of concealing the body. Yes, I, I thought and I deliberated and, and then it occurred to me that, yes, in the Middle Ages they used to wall up their victims and, I determined to do the same thing. Yes, behind the wall in a cellar. I managed to dislodge a section of bricks near the chimney and, and in a hole behind them I propped the body. Then I carefully laid the bricks back in their original position and, and when I had finished, no one, no one could have told that the wall had been disturbed at all. Well, I, I could say to myself triumphantly, here at least, my labor has not been in vain. My next step then was was to look for the beast that had been a cause of so much misery, but, but then I became aware that, that it had completely disappeared. Huh? Three days passed and and still my tormentor did not appear. Oh it's impossible to describe or, or to imagine. The deep sense of my relief. For the first time in months, I, I slept, yes. I, oh, I slept. Even with a burden of murder on my soul. <laughs> yes, some few inquiries were made about my wife's whereabouts, and a search of the house was conducted, but, but nothing was discovered. Oh, I, I finally could look upon my future secure. Yes? Good day, sir. Sorry to disturb you again, sir. Oh, <laughs> it's you, Sergeant. <laughs> Is there anything I can do for you? Well, they're still puzzled about your wife's disappearance. Puzzled, huh? <laughs> well, so am I. Well, some of her friends have been around at the police station. What's that got to do with me, huh? You've already searched us twice. What do you want? Well, I know, sir, but... Well, the captain sent me and the constable here to yes. look around just once more. To be sure there's no clues been overlooked. Mm-hmm. This will be the last time, sir. Only a matter of routine. routine. We won't bother you again. All right. Come in. Thank you, sir. Come on, Joe. Right. Where would you like to look first? Well, we might as well begin with the cellar. Cellar, huh? All right, yes. Right down these steps. I'll come with you. 
Yes, I always say searching a house is like getting ahead in the world. You start at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I see. Uh, it's very funny. Well, come on, Constable. Get to work. Right. While they searched, I folded my arms and watched. As before, they discovered nothing, nothing. But as they were about to depart, the glee in my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say but one word, yes, just one word, by way of triumph. And, and as they started up the steps, I said, uh, See, have you noticed uh, this is a very well-constructed house, you know? Hey, gentlemen, you're not going, eh? Yes, it's a, it's an excellently well-constructed house. <laughs> You've never seen such a well-constructed house in a, in a frenzy of my bravado upon that very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of my wife. I, I rapped with my cane. <laughs> Let me heaven deliver me from the arch fiend. What was that? that? Wind, probably. Wind? That's not the wind. came when you hit this wall here. Whatever it is, it's behind these bricks, Sarge. Yeah. Here, take this crowbar and knock no, that wall down. Right. Wait a minute, you... Keep quiet, you... Can't you can't do this. Wait a minute. Where are you going? Upstairs. You stay right here. Hey, this is new plaster. It hasn't even had time to set yet. Ah. Pull it down. Right. Here she comes. Click out. Oh. There's what we're looking for, all right. His wife's body. What's that horrible-looking thing sitting on her head? It's the cat! How did that cat get in there? I know how it got in there. Yes, I know. I, I must have walled it up in a tomb. And I never knew it, no. Look at that red mouth. Those burning eyes. You, you hideous. You beast, you monster. You, you are the devil. You made me a murderer. Now for three days you've been in there waiting, waiting to send me to the gallows. Well, the hangman will get me. Yes, I, I hope, I hope you're satisfied. I hope you're satisfied. the makers of Camel Cigarettes send free camels to servicemen's hospitals from coast to coast. This week, the camels go to Veterans Hospital, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, U.S. Army McCornack General Hospital, Pasadena, California, U.S. Naval Hospital, Houston, Texas, U.S. Marine Hospital, Baltimore, Maryland, and Veterans Hospital, Dayton, Ohio. When three leading independent research organizations asked 113,597 doctors, doctors living in every state of the Union, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? The brand named most was Camel. 
According to a nationwide survey, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. Next week, Mystery in the Air, starring Mr. Peter Lorre, brings you an adaptation of one of our star's greatest motion pictures, Crime and Punishment, based on the book by Fyodor Dostoevsky, with a special musical score composed and conducted by Paul Barron. Mr. Pipe Smoker, here's proof for you. Proof that Prince Albert is a satisfying smoke. More pipes smoke Prince Albert than any other tobacco, naturally. Prince Albert is a mellow, mild tobacco with a rich, full flavor. Choice tobacco specially made for smoking pleasure. Specially treated to ensure against tongue bite. Crimp cut to burn slow, smoke cool. See if one pipe full of PA doesn't convince you that Prince Albert is your favorite, too. Beginning two weeks from tonight, Thursday, October 2nd, Camel's comedy quiz, The Bob Hawk Show, will be heard at this time over these same NBC stations. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. of finest wine is in a catacombs far under the river. Bones are there too. Human bones. The burial grounds of an old family. And deep in that dark, dank tunnel there is no one to hear a man begging for his life. Hello, creeps. This is Peter Lorre, opening the doors of the Mystery Playhouse. The works of Edgar Allan Poe usually start one's acquaintance with the literature of mystery. Then, as the years pass by, we are apt to forget that Poe is not only the father of the horror story, but truly the master of moral. And so tonight, we bring you one of the very first and very best. It's a story of revenge that communicates its terror to the listener so directly that hours afterward your spine will still feel cold. Here, then, is Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Amontillado. <laughs> thousand injuries of Fortunato I bore as best I could. Neither by word nor deed did I ever give him cause to doubt my goodwill. That was long ago, but I remember it. If ever a man had reason to hate and right to vengeance, it was I, the last of the Montresors. Through a device which the devil himself must have conceived, Fortunato, the noble, high-born Fortunato, had robbed and swindled my aging and sorrowful father of all his vast fortune. As the last of our gold was transferred to Fortunato's already brimming vaults, my father, broken, humiliated, and plagued with anguish, passed off. As he lay dying, his last words to me were, Revenge! 
Revenge, my son, the wrongs done to the Montresors by this fiendish Fortunato. My father had been old and helpless before Fortunato's cruel and evil ways. Now that my father was dead, I would be avenged. I vowed neither by word nor deed would I ever give Fortunato cause to doubt my goodwill. I accepted the small sums of gold which he so graciously offered from time to time, only that I might live to bring upon the noble Fortunato the terrible doom he so richly deserved. Until revenge was mine, I would smile in Fortunato's face, and indeed, for many years, I was smilingly his friend. Scarcely a night passed. The Fortunato did not stop to meet my window. So much did he enjoy the opportunity for further injury. Surrounded by his boisterous and giddy friends, he would call drunkenly up to me. Yes, Fortunato? Come, come, cease your mourning. Lucchese here is opening a cask of sherry in honor of the spring. Put away your sorrows and join us. No, Fortunato, I cannot. Enjoy yourself without me. Fool. A fool like you deserves his sorrows. Come, gentlemen, we are fools for even asking him to join us in our fun. Come. The drink, drink, the wine of something is here. Good night, Montresor. The melancholy Montresor has taken the courage to drink with his fellow townsmen. Good night. As his drunken prattle faded into the night, I would snuff out my candle and toss quickly in the dark, feeling fresh each galling wound Fortunato had ever dealt me, and waiting a moment of my revenge. None in the town ever witnessed my wounded pride. None except Amiato, the wine dealer, my one true friend. To him alone did I dare to mention the name of Fortunato. He must, on occasion, read my troubled mind. For he showed me many kindnesses and much understanding, even at times to Fortunato's disadvantage. Ah, Signor Montresor. Good morning, Amiato. I have a splendid surprise for you today. Have you, Amiato? And what is that? A cask of Contigliano, Signor, the finest wine there is. Here, sample it, Signor. I can't afford anything so rare, Amiato. I only came to call, not to purchase it. It'll cost you no more than the kind he usually buys. Thanks, Signor. Well. Thank you. That's enough. You treat me too well, I think. You. I scarcely know how to thank you. Your expression of delight is more gratitude than I deserve. I was extremely fortunate in being able to purchase the last available cask for you. And there's none meant for Fortunato? You will arouse his anger. The wine dealer must follow his judgment and his heart. Fortunato prides himself too highly on his knowledge of good wines. <laughs> I believe you are more skillful, Signor. Thank you. He and Lucchese opened a cask of sherry last night in honor of the spring. Then he will be in a bad mood today. Uh-huh. Let's see, he approaches, Signor, and looks as dark as your own ancient vault. <laughs> oh, 
Ah, Fortunato, it's good to see you. It was just as well, perhaps, that you refused to come last night, Montresor. Lucchese is a fool about wines. In fact, which I'm doubly sure after sharing his inferior vintages last night. Ah, I see you have Contigliano, Amiato. Signor Montresor has it now to a very wise purpose. Are you joking, Amiato? Where would Montresor find the funds to buy such a rare wine? That is not my affair, Signor. So that is what you do with all your money in your solitary evenings, Montresor. Spend them both on Amiato's rare finds. Well, I will wager you've not a drop left to show for it. On the contrary, Signor Montresor has one of the finest cellars in all the country. You are too kind, Amiato. But Fortunato, why not see for yourself? My vaults are always open to you. Someday I shall. And as for you, Amiato, see that you take care, better care of my vaults in the future. Good day. Good day to you, Fortunato. <laughs> I shall send the Contigliano to your palazzo before evening, Signor Montresor. Now my mind was made up. That moment in the wine dealer's shop gave me the beginnings of a plan. A plan for which I had long been waiting. Fortunato must visit my wine cellar deep down in the catacombs beneath the home of the Montresors. From the depths of my old misery, I began to devise the details of the plan. Ahead of Fortunato, there lay only horror, agony, and damnation. It was about dusk that I finally sought Fortunato out, one evening during the height of his wedding festivities. He was to be married the next day, and gaily he sauntered through the crowd celebrating in his honor. He was dressed in a gay, many-colored costume, and on his head he wore a high, conical cap, topped with brilliant, small, jingling bells. Surrounded by light-hearted friends, musicians, and many curious bystanders, Fortunato was the very center of a magnificent spectacle. It was this scene, both beautiful and terrible, in which I found him. Dear Fortunato, how remarkably well you look tonight. And how lucky to find you. I've just purchased a cask of a Montesorado wine. But, well, I'm afraid I've been cheated. Ah, uh, Montesor? A Montelado? A cask? The time like this? This time of year, impossible. Oh, this was a strange wine dealer, too. And, well, I was foolish enough to pay him the full Montelado price without first consulting you in the matter. A Montelado? So he told me. But uh, since your friends are waiting for you, I must find the case and ask him to take it for me. If anyone's a connoisseur of good wine, Lucchese is. He will tell you. Lucchese cannot tell a Montelado from water. Some people say that his taste is a match for your own. What? Where is this wine? In the vault beneath my home. Come, let us go. Go where, Fortunato? Through your vaults. I will set this. Oh, my friend, no. I won't impose this way on your good nature. You must remain with your friend. <laughs> Casey is not in such great demand, especially tonight. My friends will not miss me for a few moments. <laughs> Come on. No, Fortunato, no, I won't commit. I see you're afflicted with a terrible cold, and my vaults are so insufferably damp, they're encrusted with wine. Let us go, Montresor, nevertheless. Cold is nothing. I'm Montelado. You have been cheated. This for Casey, he is no connoisseur of good wine. Only I am worthy to decide. <laughs> Let us be on our way. Oh. 
Half-running, half-stumbling, shouting his drunken plans. Fortunato pulled me anxiously along the street. I pretended to hold back, to be unwilling to have him leave his friends. Yet each moment, my eagerness to complete my plan grew greater and greater. Soon we reached my home. There were no attendants there. They'd gone off to help in the celebration. I took from their brackets two torches. And giving one to Fortunato, I led him through several suites of rooms and through the archway that led down into the vault. As we descended the long, winding stairway onto the damp ground of the catacombs, I listened and chanted to the delicate bells attached to the conical cap atop the Fortunato's bobbing head. Against the somber shadows of the catacomb wall, Fortunato's gay red-and-yellow costume brought a touch of beauty and lent a moment of holiday to the tears of rare red and amber vintages. His steps were unsteady, and the bells upon his cap jingled even more as he stumbled down the damp stairs. <coughs> the, the Amontillado, Montresor. It's farther on. <laughs> How long have you had that cough, Fortunato? <laughs> it is nothing. Come, Fortunato, we'll go back. Your health is too precious. This dampness is not good for your cough. No, no, no. Let us go on. Do I? But, but you'll be ill, and I don't want to be responsible. Besides, there is always the case of... Enough! Your cough is a natural thing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. True. True. You will not die of a cough. And I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily, but you should take care of yourself. Uh, here, a drink of this wine, this fine aged Redock will defend us from this chilling dampness. Hmm? Here, allow me to break the neck of the bottle for you. Drink. I drink to the buried that repose around us. And I drink... To your long life. Ah. Good, good, excellent. This wine is excellent. Bring it along. But uh, what about the Amontillado wine? Oh, that's farther on, good Fortunato. <laughs> what you putting there, my friend? The ground becomes damper, more slippery as we descend. <laughs> The expectation of making a fool of me through my purchase of the Amontillado sparkled in his eyes, and the bells jingled. We passed through walls of piled bones of casks and broken bottles, intermingling into the lowest depths of the cellar. I paused again, and this time seized Fortunato by the elbow. The line speed increases, hangs like moth upon the vault. We're below the river's bed now. Look how the drops of moisture trickle among the bones. <laughs> oh. Come, Fortunato, we'll go back before it's too late. You're caught. It is nothing. No, let us go on. But first, 
Another bottle of the Medoc. Oh, a better. A bottle of this, the Bananos. Here, Fortunato. Here. You break the bottle this time. Very well. <sighs> Your taste is truly that of a connoisseur, Montessor. I'm amazed. But come, let us go on. And hold up your torch, Mondrasor. I, I, I don't care for this black dress. <coughs> Be it so, Fortunato. Again, I offered him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily, for the wine I'd been giving him was beginning to have... It's desired effect. We continued our search for the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches. Descent. Passed on. And descending again, arrived at the deepest crypt, where my father had been laid to rest. The foulness of the air spiked the dampness. All but snuffed out our torch. Uh, Montso, what... What other secrets do you have hidden here beneath the world? Why do you ask, good fortune? This pile of bones here. Now, how does it happen that the bones from this wall are thrown down in this manner? Why is it you have never replaced them, huh? What secret treasures do you keep in this last small recess? Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, tried to peer into the depths of the recess and to discover within its circumscribing walls of solid granite the rare and exciting treasure which he drunkenly fancied. But it was in vain. His light was too feeble for him even to see where the solid granite walls ended. Go in, Fortunato. Inside is the cask of wine you wish to take. The Amontillado. Amontillado. Careful, Fortunato. Enter slowly. It's dark in that place. And the floor is even more slippery. What's this, Montresor? The niche ends so abruptly. True, Fortunato, it does. But proceed. I'm coming in with you. No need to be so bewildered. What are you doing, Montresor? I cannot see. See, Fortunato? How secure these chains are embedded in the walls. How heavy the iron staples with which they're fastened to the granite. You see this heavy iron lock. The iron twists of the last century knew their craft. There, Fortunato. See how snugly these chains fit about your waist. Oh. And this key. See, Fortunato, how smoothly it fits the lock. Pass your hand along the wall. You can't help feeling the damp line that clings to it. Yes, the wall is very damp, but it'll keep you from falling. Perhaps you've already had too much wine. The Amontillado. True, the Amontillado. Fortunato was still nodding in his drunken stupor. Not yet did he know that he was forever chained to the walls of that black hell. 
I stepped outside and busied myself among the pile of bones that lay at the foot of the wall. The bones which he'd been sure had hidden the treasure. Which, in truth, they did. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar and a trowel which I'd hidden there. With these materials, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the nest. But with the regular sound of my trowel, the occasional jingle of tiny bells on Fortunato's cap, all silent. I made the first tier, and the second, and the third. The masonry when I discovered that Fortunato's intoxication was wearing off. Fortunato was indeed awakened. With fiendish delight, I sat down upon the bones and I listened to his furious attempt to escape. The clanking subsided. I resumed my work with the trowel and I finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tears. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. Again, Paul, and holding the torch over the masonry, I threw a few feeble rays onto the dejected figure within. Trump! Trump, for the love of the Almighty, someone come and stop this bad man! This fool, this devilish thief! Help! 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 You forget how far we are below the riverbed. Perhaps if I shout with you, Fortunato, someone will hear. My prisoner was still. It was now midnight, and my job was almost ended. I completed the eighth, the ninth, the tenth tiers. I was finishing the eleventh and the last. There was only a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight, and I placed it partially in its destined position. <laughs> a very good joke indeed, Monster <laughs> An excellent jest. We will have many of us to laugh about it tomorrow at the wedding. <laughs> Over wine. <laughs> over the Amontillado. Yes, over the Amontillado. It's getting late, Marcus. They will be waiting for us at the Palazzo. The future lady, Fortunato, and all my friends. Let it be gone, Marcus. The joke's over. <laughs> yes, Fortunato. Let it be gone. For the love of the almighty, Marcus. <laughs> I thrust my torch through the remaining opening and let the light fall within. From inside the crypt there came the only answer Fortunato now could summon. I felt sick on account of the dampness of the catacombs. I hastened to finish my labors. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry, I re-erected the old rampart of bones. 
for half a century. No one has disturbed them. The bones of my fathers rest in peace. And so ends the first story of a man who killed to avenge his family's honor. Our next production concerns itself with an expert criminologist, a man who prided himself on his claim of never making a mistake. Follow me to the green room, and we'll eavesdrop at rehearsal. This way. Come. <laughs> come, come. Right, well, the entire case, of course, was decidedly second rate. You probably know the details. No, as a matter of fact, I don't. That's why I came here. Oh? See, I was in Africa just last week. and didn't even know Harrington had been arrested until just before I sailed. I see. Well, I won't bore you with most of it. Uh, suffice it to say that Ernest West had pushed Harrington in the stock market to a point where Harrington had to stop West or face absolute ruin. I see. So Harrington fought West out one night, talked him out at West's home on Long Island, and shot him with a 25 caliber revolver. We found it laid on Harrington's safe. Well, there was nothing for the poor man to do but confess. Harrington was convicted solely on your evidence, Dr. Trevor? Yeah. Otherwise, he might have escaped. But your entire case was constructed around the revolver. Yeah. And his prompt confession put an end to further investigation. Um, now, as I'm uh, saying... Dr. Trevor, I'm interested in that revolver. A twenty-five, you say? Yes, rather uncommon caliber. Yes, with the handle chipped a bit on the right side. Yeah. How do you will? <laughs> it belonged to West. Wife, not to Harrington. What? Yes, yes. It got chipped when she dropped it on a rock while target shooting in Switzerland. You see, I was with her at the time. You mean Alice West gave that revolver to Harrington? Oh, I doubt that. Much as she loved him. You're out of your mind, Gregory. Not at all. I'm afraid that little twenty-five caliber revolver probably resulted in the execution of the wrong man. That's impossible. The right man, you see, was a woman. Alice West. She and Harrington were in love, and West played dog in the manger and wouldn't divorce her. Alice West is the murderer, not Harrington. She killed him? Certainly. There was no reason for Harrington to borrow her revolver. He had quite a little arsenal of his own, as I remember. A forty-five caliber would have been his speed. But Alice West was in Europe at the time of the crime. Ah, before and after, yes. But I happen to know she was in Montreal the very month the murder was committed, and that isn't far from Long Island by plane. Go on, Gregory. Well, to clinch my case, Alice got tight one night in Monte Carlo and told me she was going to kill her husband. I left for North Africa the next day and didn't hear a thing for months. But when I saw the papers, I hadn't any doubts as to who had bumped off Ernest West. Harrington's confession. Oh, Dr. Trevor, that's easy if you know people. The poor ox went to the chair for his lady love. It's been done before, you know. Gregory. What do you say? It's impossible. Why? The man was convicted solely on my evidence. I could never make a mistake like that. Oh, come now. We all make mistakes. I don't. Well, it's a shame, but what's done is done. Obviously. You don't understand, Gregory. My reputation won't permit mistakes. Oh. I simply do not make them, that's all. Don't worry, Trevor. Your reputation isn't going to suffer. Alice West will be dead of dope inside of two years, if I'm any judge. 
And no one else knows you've been wrong just this once. You do. Well, yes, but we can forget all about that. Yes, we must. We must. Right? Don't fret, Trevor. I'll keep my mouth shut. Yes. I know you will. Fine. Now, what about another brandy, eh? Oh, yes, over here on the table. Trevor. What are you doing? Trevor! Yes. Gregory. You will keep your mouth shut. See, the doctor doesn't make mistakes. If he did, it might prove fatal. In our next broadcast, you'll learn how a man committed the perfect crime. Or was it? Now, this is Peter Lorry, closing the doors of the Mystery Playhouse. Good night. Sleep tight. CBS offers you Escape. You are the friend of a man living in death, confidant of a ghoul, witness to a nameless terror. You are a guest in the House of Usher. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and carefully plotted to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to a gloom-shrouded moor in a house where dread holds sway. As Edgar Allan Poe recounts it in his famous story, the fall of the House of Usher. It is with some regret, but I believe advisable that I identify myself only as a friend of Roderick Usher. 
certainly the last and perhaps the only friend of that unhappy man. Having only one sister, he was the last male descendant of the ancient house of Usher. Roderick had been one of my boon companions in boyhood, but many years had elapsed now since our last meeting. And so as I held his letter in my hand, not yet opening it, I reflected with no little sadness upon the devious fates that chart our courses and drive old friends away from one another. But then a sudden feverish and nostalgic curiosity laid hold of me, and with fingers made clumsy by their eagerness, I tore open the letter and read, My dear friend, my need of you has so far outgrown my pride I'm going to request a favor which I realize full well may involve considerable inconvenience to yourself. For some time past, I have been suffering from an acute bodily illness, illness intensified by serious mental oppression, if I may so call it. A horror which looms over me, a horror grown so great I dare no longer face it alone. And so... In all humility, and for the sake of years gone by, I beseech you to come to me at once, here to the family estate in the north. Should events conspire to prevent your coming, then only God may know the consequences. Your friend in desperation, Roderick Usher. <laughs> And so it happened that at the end of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the middle of October, I found myself as the shades of evening drew on within view of the grim and melancholy House of Usher. I confess that the first sight of the house, the fungus-covered walls of stone thrusting their crumbling ramparts against the darkening sky, rising out of the sullen, sluggish waters of the black tarn at their base, the bleak and vacant windows staring blindly, the bone-white trunks of decaying trees, these things filled me with a nameless and desolate terror so that I reined in my horse and sat trembling, half fearing to cross the wooden bridge that led over the waters of the moat and up to the entrance of the house of Usher. Then impatiently I shook off this strange feeling of dread, and was an instant later clattering over the wooden bridge and onto the courtyard. I dismounted quickly, tossed my reins to the silent lackey who approached, strode across the gravel, and up to the massive wooden portal, the door of the House of Usher. Good afternoon. My name I is... I know. You're the friend of Master Roderick. Please come inside, sir. Thank you. But may I inquire how it happens you know me? You have been expected for some time, sir. Yes, true. But also I'm a stranger to you and could be some other visitor. That you could be anyone other than the friend whom Master Roderick expects, sir, would be impossible. You see, no one else 
would ever come to this house. Then I followed his stealthy footsteps through many dark and intricate passages. My earlier foreboding heightened and was made fearful by the somber aspect of the hallways by which we passed. The many unused rooms reaching out with their vast emptiness like some hideous jungle creeper. But at length, we stood before the door of the master's studio, and there the servant left me, departed and left me to go in alone. The man across the room, half reclining on the couch, his back turned toward me, did not hear the opening of the door. For the space of several heartbeats, I saw only the deathly pale and ghastly sunken features of a stranger. Then only with difficulty could I recognize... Behind that mask, my boyhood friend, for surely under light of heaven, no man had ever before so terribly altered in so brief a time as said Roderick Usher. Oh, oh, my friend, my friend, you come at last. Thank God you did come. Oh, Roderick, did you not know I would? Could you not be sure that... No long years would ever dim the friendship we shared in youth. Mm, so many things have dimmed. Ah, youth. It seems so long ago. But now you're here, and we'll find it, relive it all over again, every glorious moment of it. And all these shadows, all these gibbering phantoms that haunt me, they'll be driven out. And then the sun will shine again, and we'll be young again and relive... Roderick! Oh, oh but forgive me, my friend... My excessive joy at the sight of you after so many years drives me into a frenzy of talk. How many years has it? Oh, no matter. It is enough that you are here, here, and brought with you all the lost, all the happy days of my boyhood. But uh, I'd expected from your letter to find you in serious straits indeed. Instead, you seem in the best of spirits. You have the right to know. But... In all frankness, here in your presence, I find it difficult to credit important to those things which only yesterday filled me with terror. True, I've been ill. A nervous affliction, something in the nature of a family weakness, probably. It has affected me with a morbid acuteness of the senses, such that quite often the least sounds and odors and colors become irritating beyond endurance. Then I've eaten but little, as you can see. But surely you've retained the services of a physician. A physician? <laughs> oh, yes, of course. He calls almost daily, though it is more often Madeline that he attends. You remember my twin sister, Madeline? For her, I fear, more greatly than for myself. Even today, she's taken to her bed, and I have no doubt will never rise from it again. Oh, a tragedy. The sympathies of my heart go out to you. Oh, but, but leave it for the present. Leave it to dream of all those happy days we left so far behind. Everything will be different now that you're here. Do you remember when we were... forgetfulness which Roderick found in my coming was short-lived. 
and in a few days he had sunk into a morose torpor, from which only occasionally with frantic difficulty could he reach the joy of our first few hours of meeting. More often his mental apathy was broken by bursts of vicious temper and violent ill-humor, fits I could only excuse on the basis of his illness. And that illness began in my mind to assume a most mysterious character. Being unable to divine its true nature from Roderick's hesitant offerings, I took the liberty of questioning the physician a few days later when I chanced to encounter him in a hallway. Yes, she's resting as well as might be expected. But she continues to decline. Is that not correct, Doctor? That would seem to be the case. And uh, the malady, the illness which has stricken her, is it the same as that which affects her brother, Roderick? I may venture that it is. Might I inquire the nature of this illness? As to that, I am unable to say. You imply, then, that I have no right to the information? Not at all. I am confessing to you quite simply, sir. I do not know what afflicts Madeline and Roderick Usher. And so a week passed. A week in which the sullen, leaden skies darkened into deeper oppressiveness, in which Roderick's deathly pallor and creeping mental dissolution grew more apparent. A week in which the monstrous atmosphere of this ancient mausoleum began to crawl insidiously within my own consciousness, stirring into life a formless, unknown dread. Then one evening, we were sitting in the vaulted studio, while the first shadows of night began to flow together into pools of darkness. Roderick had been unusually troubled during the day, and had been trying to find some solace by playing on the violin. Of a sudden, there came a knock upon the door. Stop it! Stop that infernal pounding! Do you hear? Do you wish to drive me completely mad? Open the door and come in, come in! It's the doctor. Well, what is it? What do you want? Master Usher, I regret that I must say this, but it is my sad duty to inform you that your sister Madeline is no longer living. Madeline, my sister, then she's dead? She breathes no more. Dead? <laughs> and perhaps, my dear doctor, you can tell me what caused her death. Unfortunately, I can only take refuge in the term heart failure. Heart failure? <laughs> Ah, yes, eh? <laughs> uh, very well, Doctor. If you'll be kind enough to wait, I'll come down directly and discuss the arrangement. At your service. I bid you good afternoon, gentlemen. Roderick, I assure you of my deepest sympathy. You do. Your deepest sympathy. The doctor regrets his sad duty. Are you fools, both of you fools? I, I don't understand. Haven't you seen it yet? Can you not feel it about you? The horrid, monstrous, brooding spirit of this accursed house. Can't you hear its evil laughter as it lurks in the hallways and grows fat upon the soul? 
My dead sister. Roderick. Can't you see that it matters nothing to me that she's dead? But I myself walk but a few steps behind her into the same shadows of hell. Can't you sense those hideous tentacles even now reaching out for me? For me? Who now, the last living, if it be living, the last living descendant of the accursed house of Ush. Such was the passing of Madeline Usher, once living, now dead. And her very death, untimely in its aspects, bore to my trembling soul a portent of events yet more hideous, more horrible, and yet to come. At a later hour of that same sad night, Roderick came into my chamber to voice an intention so morbidly unnatural that for the moment I could only feel that his tottering reason had at last failed him entirely. Then you refuse? But, but Roderick, this is madness. I tell you, before this night is over, the coffin body of my sister shall rest in the vault beneath this house, and if you will not help me, I shall do it myself. But... Why? Why? I could not stand to think of her buried out there in the dark graveyard, alone among the dead. Roderick, she too is dead. It's fantastic how little we know of death or of life. The doctor says she no longer breathes. She is dead. She was so lovely as my sister... Roderick. I must keep Madeline near me. Nothing but evil would come of such an act. I can trust no one. But you, not even physician himself. He hates us because he can't discover what it is that kills us. Even he might steal the body of my beloved sister. And he might learn our secret. You understand, don't you, my friend? Yes, Roderick. Yes. I understand. And so it came about. Near midnight, we two alone made our way to an upper chamber of the house. And taking up the black coffin between us, in the shuddering light of candles, we walked the tortuous passageways slowly descended the curving stairs of stone, passed beneath the moldy level of the earth, forced open a massive and age-rusted door of iron, and stood at last, with our ghastly burden, in a subterranean dank and musty crypt, underneath the house of Usher. Over here, my friend, on these trestles. Now, a trifle higher with the head... There. Oh, may you sleep in peace and dream, sweet sister, from I who tread the same path soft 
behind you. Come, Roderick. The thing is done. Oh, wait. Stay a moment. We've not yet affixed the coffin lid. See? I've left it loose so it can be turned back. No. I beg you. A last farewell. No more. Look. Is she not beautiful? Yes. She was very beautiful. Was? <laughs> yes, of course. The look of her confused me. But do you not see it, too? The warm glow of the cheeks, the eyes shut softly, those lips half-parted. Does it not seem that she may rise up and speak to us at any moment? This gruesome place inspires us morbid fancies. Morbid fancies? But now dead she seems to live, and living seems already dead. Man, you seek out madness. You caught it with your very thoughts. And if I do, what matters? What value can there be in reason without the hope of life? Dead, you say to me, she is dead. With what certainty? Why not with equal reason say instead she lives? And that I, I, the last of Asha, am the one who is already dead. I prevailed upon my friend at last to leave that mournful place. And so with grim finality we secured the ebon lid, took up our flickering candles and departed from the crypt, leaving it alone with its darkness and death. The ponderous portal closed behind us. And then my soul, for one brief instant, felt the dread and awful meaning of eternity. There followed then a week of such dreary gloom and melancholy that my own spirit quavered at the menace of the nameless thing enshadowed in that house. By perceptible degrees, the living soul of Roderick Usher flickered lower. More ghastly grew his pallor, more tremulous the extremity of his terror. The eighth day following the death of Lady Madeline fell upon the last day of grim and gray October and brought with it as the curtains of night descended the fitful breath of a rising tempest, uneasy gusts of sodden rain, and the sound of sullen thunderous rumbles born of the dim flares of sheet lightning somewhere behind the lowering pall. I retired at a late hour, but found sleep impossible. At length, overpowered by some strange presentiment of evil, I found my reposeful inaction no longer endurable. And so I arose, threw on my clothes in haste, and fell to pacing the floor of my darkened chamber. Then in one instant, a soft sound in the blackness froze my steps in paralysis of terror. The latch of my chamber door was being lifted from without. Who is it? Who is it, I say? It is I, Roderick. Oh, Oh, Roderick. What are you doing up and about at this hour, in pitch blackness? Wait, let me light the candles. No, I am quite used to darkness. 
I heard your footsteps and knew that you must be awake, even as I was. But can it be that you've not seen it? I don't understand you. I've seen nothing. Then stay. You shall see it. Even as I've seen it for these past two hours. Wait, wait. I'll throw open the casement window. Indeed, a tempestuous yet sternly beautiful night, and one wildly singular in its terror and in its beauty. The exceeding density of the clouds which hung so low as to press upon the turrets of the house did not prevent our perceiving the velocity with which they flew careening from all points against one another. We had no glimpse of the moon or stars, but terrible to behold the undersurfaces of the huge cloud masses as well as all terrestrial objects immediately around us were glowing in the unnatural light of a faintly luminous and clearly visible phosphorescence which hung like a shroud about the mansion itself. You see, my friend, tonight the thing grows bolder, gathers strength from the storm and from the dead soul it's eaten. No, no, Roderick, you must not look at this. Here, I shall close this window and pull these curtains. And now, candlelight. Such darkness is the very mother of evil fear. There. Now come, sit here. Suppose I read aloud from some book or another. As you wish. I presume it matters little which. Oh. Here. Here is a volume of The Mad Tryst by Canning. Will it serve? As you said, it matters little. I've always found the scene to be quite entertaining, where Nethelred dreams of fighting a dragon. Now, let's see. Oh, yes. Here it is. And so, Ethelred waited no longer to hold parley with the hermit who mocked him from inside the hut. But feeling the rain upon his back and fearing the rising of the tempest, uplifted his axe and quickly made a hole in the plankings of the door for his gauntleted hand. And now pulling sturdily, he so cracked and ripped all asunder that the noise of the dry and hollow-sounding wood alarmed and reverberated throughout the forest. Why do you stop? I, that's, that's strange. I, I fancied I just heard the very sound I read about. Let us say it was caused by the storm, pray continue. Oh, yes, the storm. Of course. <clears throat> but, but Ethelred, upon entering the door, was, was amazed to perceive no sign of the evil hermit, but instead a dragon of prodigious and scaly demeanor, which sat on guard before a shield of shining brass. And Ethelred uplifted his axe and struck the head of the dragon, which fell before him with a shriek so horrid and harsh, like whereof was never before. What? what sound is that? Sound? The shriek of a dragon, my friend, read on. I oh, yeah. Very well. And now the champion, bethinking himself of the shield of brass, approached across the silver floor to where the shield hung upon the wall. But the shield, not waiting for his coming, loosed and fell upon the silver floor with a mighty great... And... <laughs> 
Roderick, I tell you something moves within this house. Uh, that sound, it reverberated through the very walls. Can you tell me now you did not hear it? Hear it now? Oh, yes, I hear it and have heard it long moments, hours, many days have I heard it. Yet I dare not speak. But why? Do you not know we put her living in the tomb? I tell you now, I heard her first feeble movements in the coffin many, many days ago. And I felt then it mattered little. But now she comes to upbraid me for my haste. And that last dread sound, yes, I heard it, the opening of a metal door to the crypt beneath the house. Now she comes here. Have I not heard her footsteps on the stair? Do I not distinguish the heavy and horrible beating of her heart? Madman that I am, I tell you that she now stands without that door. But even now she opens it. There in the flickering light of candles... In the gloom and curtain doorway stood the shrouded body of Lady Madeline. For one shuddering instant she swayed there. Then as Roderick uttered a single piteous cry, she fell upon him in violent and now final death agonies and bore him to the floor, a corpse. From that chamber and from that mansion, I fled aghast out the massive portal over the causeway into the night. Suddenly there shot along the path a wild light, and I looked back in heightened terror, for the vast house and its shadows were alone behind me. The baleful gleam came from the setting full and blood-red moon, which now shone vividly through a widening crack in the walls of the house itself, and even as I gazed, its fissure opened rapidly. There came a fierce breath of the tempest. The entire lunar orb burst at once upon my sight. My brain reeled as I saw the mighty walls rushing asunder. There came a long, tumultuous, shouting sound like the voice of thousand waters. And, and the dark, deep tarn at my feet closed sullenly and silently forever over the pitiful ruins of the ancient house of Usher. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and tonight brought you The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe. Adapted for radio by Les Crutchfield, with Paul Fries as the narrator, Ramsey Hill as Roderick Usher, and Sheridan Hall as the physician. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhrer. Next week... You are the victim of a poorer man. Pursued from the west coast of Africa to the west end of London by a dead man's head which grins at you upside down. Next week, Escape.
with H.G. Wells' gripping story, Pollock and the Poorer Man. Good night, then, until this same time next week when CBS again offers you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Tonight, Autolite brings you Mr. John Lund in The Man in the Room. A suspense play produced and edited by William Spear. Carlo, what's the best bait to use for bass? Mm, I don't know, Hap. Better ask an ichthyologist. An ichthyologist? An ichthyologist, an expert on fish. When I need information, I believe in going to an expert. That go for spark plug information, too? Sure. And who knows more about the best spark plugs for your car than Autolite ignition engineers, the men who design and build complete ignition systems. Used as original equipment on many makes of America's finest cars. You mean they know how to build into spark plugs the best in quick-starting, smooth performance and gas mileage, eh, Harlow? Of course, Hap. That's what's made Autolite the world's largest independent manufacturer of automotive electrical equipment. And it was Autolite engineering know-how that made possible the development of the Autolite resistor spark plug, one of the greatest advances in spark plug design for automotive use in the past 20 years. So, friends, see your friendly Autolite spark plug dealer tomorrow. Have him replace worn-out spark plugs with world-famous ignition-engineered Autolite spark plugs. Whether you choose the resistor type or the regular type, you'll be right, because you're always right with Autolite. And now, with the man in the room and the performance of John Lund, Autolite hopes once again to keep you in... Suspense! When I was ten... I first read Edgar Allan Poe's story of the miraculous room. The room whose terrible walls closed slowly in upon their prisoners. Made a deep impression upon me. My most persistent nightmare was that I was the poor devil in the story. I didn't know then that he had been impressed by it too. And that someday I would actually be the man in the room. Excuse me, can you tell me what floor Miss Markham is on? Miss Markham? What do you want with her? Well, I, I want her to do some work for me. She does typing, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. Third floor, stepping. Thank you. You're a writer? Yes. How do you write? Stories, mostly. Mm-hmm. Tom? Occasionally. Mm-hmm. She's down at the end of the hall, where you see the door open. Thank you very much. Oh, come in, please. Thank you. Miss Markham? That's right. What can I do for you? I saw your ad in the paper. I thought perhaps you could do some work for me. Oh, yes, yes, of course. What is it? Typing? Mimeographing? Typing. Manuscript. You're right. Yes. Oh. Would you shut the door, please? Oh, yes, yes, of course. Thank you. You'll find that I do absolutely perfect work, and at the most reasonable rate. I've had many years of experience, although not in this city. I've just recently moved here. Will you have much for me to do? Well, 
That depends. Frankly, Miss Markham, the price is a factor with me. You see, I'm a freelance writer, and at best, that's a precarious occupation. I see. Well, is 30 cents a page too much? Why? 25. <laughs> I was about to say that 30 seems extremely reasonable. Well, I've already said 25, so we'll leave it at that. You're very kind. Not at all. Excuse me, please. Was... Was that the elevator man running down the hall? Well, no. I didn't see anyone. It's been a lovely day, hasn't it? Yes. Yes, it has. I think the weather is so perfect here. I know I'm going to love this city. It's so difficult coming to a new place and trying to establish oneself. Especially so late in life. But I think things are going to work out fine. I hope so. Would you like to leave your manuscript now? Yes, here it is. Oh, thank you. Uh, yes, 40 pages. I'll have that ready for you day after tomorrow. Oh, that'll be fine. I'll come back and pick it up then. I left the office and rang for the elevator. The old man who ran it didn't speak to me on the way down, but I stood in the back of the car and looked him over carefully. He was a funny little old duck, almost dwarf-sized, with shoulders so rounded he was nearly humpbacked. I was sure he was the one who had been listening at the door upstairs. But, after all, it was none of my affair. Two days later, I returned to the old office building to pick up my manuscript. You come to pick up your typing? Yes. Here it is. She left it for you. Oh. Well, uh, I've got to go off anyway. I have some more work for Miss Markham. I'll take it. She don't want to be disturbed. Well, I... Uh... Just give it here. All right. I gave him the manuscript and left. Several days later, when I returned, he had the completed work ready for me, down on the first floor. That's the way it went on on the other occasions when I had typing for Miss Markham to do. The old man took it from me downstairs and had it ready for me when I returned. There was always a reason for me not to go upstairs. Miss Markham was working didn't want to be disturbed. Or she just left for lunch. Or she wasn't down that day because of illness. One day, when I came to pick up some material, the elevator was not down on the first floor. And my curiosity got the better of me. Instead of ringing, I took the stairs and walked up to the third floor. Oh, it's you. Where's Miss Markham? She ain't here. You can see she ain't. Yes. Are you typing? Sure. I help her out sometimes. She's sick today. Oh, I see. I just finished your story. That's that's fine. <laughs> it won't sell, though. What? I say it won't sell. It's clumsy. Oh, you think so? Yes. It's all hodgepodge. You write too fast. Well, I'm sorry you don't like it, but uh, if you'll just put it together, I'll send it off anyway. All right, but it won't sell. That night at home, I'd been working for hours on a plot for a mystery story. I was having absolutely no luck. I simply couldn't concentrate. Then I had a thought. How would it be to use Miss Markham and the elevator man as the basis for a story? Just take the situation as it stood now and fabricate the rest of the plot from there. Let's see. 
The old man could have murdered her and hidden the body. Possibly he'd done it immediately after I'd seen her last, and she'd been dead all this time. I even made up a fine name for the elevator man. I called him Dracklin. But for the life of me, I couldn't build a story. Why had he killed her? What had he done with the body? The plot wouldn't move. And yet somehow I couldn't discard it and try another. I knew that I was stuck with it until I worked it out. Well, how about the reality? What had happened to Miss Markham? Why hadn't I seen her for over two weeks? The only thing to do, I decided, was to find out more about the real situation. Perhaps I could evolve something from that. Hello? Hello, George. Bert. Oh, how are you, Bertie, old boy? Fine. Listen, George, who does your typing? My typing? Why, uh, Harrison Lewis. Oh, yes, at 50 cents a page. I forgot you were rich. <laughs> Why? Well, I thought perhaps you'd seen the same ad in the paper that I did. A Miss Markham. She's been doing some work for me. Markham? Oh, I, I didn't see it. Well, why? Is she any good? Oh, yes. She's very good. Well, uh, what, what does she charge? 30 cents a page. Hey, that is cheap. <laughs> Maybe I'll switch. Where's she located? 202 West Olive. Why don't you go up and see her anyway? Let me know what she says. All right. I'll go in the morning. Fine. Goodbye, George. The next morning, I called information and got Miss Markham's office number. It was not yet listed in the directory. I called the number, somehow knowing there would be no answer. Hello? Oh, hello. Miss Markham? Yes? Well, this is, uh, this is Mr. Freeland. I, uh, heard you were ill yesterday. Just thought I'd call and see how you were. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you very much. I'm feeling much better today. Oh, I'm glad. I, uh, I expect to have some more work for you at the end of the week. All right. Just bring it in. I will. And, oh, yes, Miss Markham, I haven't received a bill from you yet. Uh, would you send one soon? Yes, I will. Thank you. Goodbye, Miss Markham. Goodbye. I hung up thinking, well, there goes my plot into a cocked hat. I realized then that I had begun to believe something had happened to Miss Markham. Talked myself into it, I guess. Confused the fiction with the reality. But just because she was alive and well, that was no reason why I couldn't still build a good story from the same idea. Now, let's see. Gracklin had killed Miss Markham and hidden the body. But when I called up, she answered. No, I couldn't use that. But wait a minute. Why couldn't I? Why, certainly, there was the twist. Sure. Gracklin gets another woman to impersonate Miss Markham. The only ones he'd have to worry about would be the people who had seen the first Miss Markham. Well, that's the way my story would go anyway. I sat down at my typewriter and made it sing for a couple of hours. The story was coming along fine. Only thing I needed was some background on Dracula. Well, nothing like the source. At about 4.30 that afternoon, I was down on West Olive Street near the 202 building. At about 5, Dracklin came out and started up the street. He got on a bus, so I looked around for a cab. Cabby, you taken? Yeah, hop in. Good. Listen, follow that bus, but not too close. I'll tell you when to stop. Okay. He stayed on that bus all the way to the end of the line. I got out of the cab about a block before the final bus stop and saw the old man get off. It was almost prairie here. 
Large vacant lots and only a few scattered houses. He entered one of them. After about 20 minutes, when it was getting dark, I walked slowly up to the place. There was a light around in back. I went quietly along the side of the house to the window. I looked in. There sat Dracklin, bent over a table, writing with a quill pen. But it was the room that surprised me. The walls were filled from floor to ceiling with books. Heavy, scholarly books. And then I saw it. On a smaller table against the wall stood her picture. She was younger in the photo and prettier, but it was unmistakably she. Miss Markham. Autolite is bringing you Mr. John Lund in The Man in the Room. Tonight's production in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Carlo, do ichthyologists and zoologists have anything in common? Well, in a way, half. You see, any kind of an ologist is an expert in his field. Well, I guess that makes you a spark plugologist, eh, Wilcox? <laughs> well, not exactly. I'm more of a gabologist. The real experts are the Autolite ignition engineers. They design and build complete ignition systems for use as original equipment on many makes of America's finest cars. So naturally, they've built spark plugs that will work as a team with the ignition systems. Spark plugs that are unexcelled for quick starting, smooth performance, and gas mileage. Sounds logical. Of course. And these same Autolite engineers developed the famous Autolite resistor spark plug. One of the greatest advances in spark plug design for automotive use in the past 20 years. They're experts, all right, Harlow. So, friends, see your friendly Autolite spark plug dealer tomorrow. Have him replace worn-out spark plugs with ignition-engineered Autolite spark plugs. Whether you choose the resistor type or the regular type, you can't buy a better spark plug for your car because you're always right with Autolite. And now Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage our star, John Lund, in The Man in the Room, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. And the next morning's mail was her bill. But there was a mistake. She charged me 40 cents a page. So I put on my coat and started downtown. As I walked up Olive Street, I wondered if Draxman would let me up to see Miss Markham. If it were in my story, he couldn't, because I'd immediately recognize her as another woman. Three, please. Watch your step. Miss Markham is in today? Yep. You know, I haven't seen her for some time. She's always been out or sick or something. That's so? That certainly is so. You were the one who kept telling me. Oh, well, I can't remember everybody who comes in here. Oh, I shouldn't think it would be too hard. I'll bet not over ten people a day come in here. This is the most deserted office building I've ever seen. <laughs> well, sometimes it is a little quiet. You know where it is? Yes. Come in. Miss Markham. You are Miss Markham. Yes, of course. Why? Oh, no reason. I'm a little confused. Been writing too much lately, I guess. Oh, 
Well, uh, the reason I came down is because of your bill. There's a mistake. But don't you remember you said you were going to charge me 25 cents a page? But your bill says 40. Oh, oh, yes, I do remember now. That's right, 25. <laughs> the error is mine. I'll change it. I'm terribly sorry. Oh, that's all right. I wasn't worried about it. If you'd like to refigure it, I, I can leave you a check right now. Uh, do you possibly have the cash? Well, let's see. Yes? Yes, I think I do. Would you prefer that? If you don't mind. I paid the bill and went home. Back to my story. My story that had turned out to be pure fiction after all. Miss Markham was alive and well and back in her office, looking just as she had the first time I saw her. Well, I had used all of the real situation I could, and from now on I was operating on pure imagination. Let's see. Hey, wait a minute. Just because she looks the same doesn't mean she's the same woman. She was a twin, see? The first Miss Markham's twin sister. And Gracklin was, uh, their brother. Why had he killed the first Miss Markham? Well, for money, her life savings. That was always a good motive. And the twin sister was in on it and would split with him. Fine. I rattled off the story and the next morning brought it in to be tight. Good morning, Mr. Greenland. Good morning, Miss Markham. Got another story for you. Oh? Well, I'm not sure that I can start on anything right now. I'm closing up the office, you know. Oh? Oh, yes. This climate doesn't agree with me at all. As a matter of fact, I never did like city life. You've evidently changed your mind about things. I beg your pardon? Remember the first day you came up here? You, you were telling me how well you liked our city and the weather? Oh, yes. Well, you can always depend on a woman, can't you? Yeah, I guess so. I really wish you could finish this story for me. It's not very long. Oh? Only about 28 pages. I see. Well, perhaps I can rush it out. I sort of feel that I owe you something anyway. Why? Uh, for being so nice about that mistake I made on your bill. Oh, that was nothing. Well, leave the manuscript here and I'll try to have it done by tomorrow afternoon. Tomorrow's my last day. Come in about 2 o'clock. Right. Thanks a lot, Miss Markham. The next day was Saturday, and if the building had seemed deserted on other days, it had really been a beehive compared to two o'clock on Saturday afternoon. Now it was a morgue. When I entered Miss Markham's office, she was standing there holding a sheaf of papers. Mr. Freeland, where did you ever get the idea for that story? Oh, well, I, I hope it didn't disturb you, but I was desperate for a plot, and I guess I just let my imagination run wild. I see well, I'll just put it in an envelope. Thank you. And I'll pay you now because I probably won't see you again. That's right. You probably won't. Well, I guess I'll just say goodbye. Goodbye, Miss Markham. And good luck. Thank you. And the same to you. Dracklin was waiting for me there on the third floor. He had probably just stayed there while I was in the office. I got in the elevator and he closed the door. Get your story, Mr. Freeland? Huh? Oh, yes. Yes, I did. Hmm. Not a bad story. Miss Markham let me read it. Oh? But it needs rewriting. Oh, is that so? Yes. Like I told you before, Mr. Freeland, you write too fast. You aren't careful enough with reality. I'm afraid I don't understand. Well, uh, now that part about hiding the body in the elevator shaft, for instance. You almost had a good thing there, but I could tell you've never been in an elevator shaft. 
Have you? I know. You've passed the first floor. Hey, let's go down a bit. I'd like to show you something. This is the basement. Yes. Yes, I see. You notice how the air gets closer as you go down? It's little touches like that that make a story real. Yeah. Sub-basement. Mr. Freeland, would you like to see what an elevator shaft looks like? Well, I... Come on, it's very interesting. Especially for a writer. All right. Fine, follow me. Now, we'll just go down these stairs on your left. Uh, there's only a few of them, but they're kind of dark. Be careful. I will. Wouldn't want you to fall. Now, we go through this little steel door. Thank you. I see. This is what the bottom of an elevator shaft looks like. Yes, yes, it, it, it is interesting. You can make all kinds of noise down here and no one would know. Well. <laughs> now, about the story. You had me, I mean Grackman, bury the woman in the floor of the shaft. Now, that would never do. No? No. If you dug a grave down here, the inspector would find it in a minute. Oh. Ah, uh, yes. The inspector's very sharp. Very sharp. But in the wall. The wall? Yes. See those bricks? Now, if I go to exactly the right place, look, I can pull several of them right out. And after I've got all the loose ones out... There's a regular cavity been dug out behind them. Come here. Look for yourself. Huh? Miss Burke! Yeah. See how snugly she fits in there? I spent a long time digging that hole. She's dead. You, you killed her? Yes. Didn't you really know? Uh, I just put these bricks back now. You had some of the things quite right. The woman upstairs is Millie, her twin sister. This one's name is Dorothy. I married Dorothy, but I should have married Millie. You see, Mr. Freeland, I am a writer, too. More than a writer, a poet. But I didn't sell anything, and Dorothy lost faith in me. She typed stories for hats like yourself. While I had to turn to running an elevator, she caused me to lose faith in myself. Finally, Dorothy left me and came here. I followed her and got a job in the same building. At last, I did what I'd wanted to do for years. I killed her. When I told Millie, she said I'd done quite right, and she came here to help me. You're insane. No, Mr. Freeland. I am a poet. I'm getting out of here. No, I don't think you are, Mr. Freeland. Are you surprised how strong I am? I've done many things in my time, even if it waits in a circus. You... You madman. No, don't try to get up, Mr. Freeland, or I'll just have to knock you down again. You see, I've got something quite interesting in store for you. You remember Edgar Allan Poe's wonderful story about the man in the room that got smaller and smaller until it would crush the life out of him? What, what are you talking about? Well, Mr. Freeland, I have such a room. You're in it now. The walls won't move, but the ceiling will. Look above you. Most elevators won't go all the way to the bottom of the shaft. But this one will. 
I think the get out of my way, you lunatic. I warned you, Mr. Field. He hit me a crushing blow and I dropped to the ground, stunned. And you were wrong on my name. It's Al Jones. Then he jumped out of the door and slammed it shut. I staggered to it, but there was no knob or latch of any kind on the inside. It was smooth and flush with the wall. I heard his footsteps running up the stairs. Then I heard them above me, in the elevator. Then came a sound that drove me to panic. Rathlin, stop! You'll never get away with two murders. You'll go to the electric chair. Rathlin! Listen, listen. I won't tell anybody about Miss Parkham. I'll tear up the story. Rathlin! I sank to my knees till it came on. Then I fell flat on my face. And still it came closer and closer. Only inches away now. Desperately, I flung out my arms to flatten myself close to the ground. And my hand touched the bricks of the wall. Found one of the loose ones. Without knowing what I was doing, I, I clawed at the loose brick and pulled it out a little. Then, miraculously, the elevator hung suspended. The side of it caught on the brick. I knew it wouldn't be stopped for long. Already, the side of the elevator was grinding into the brick. And in a moment, it would break it and come pressing down upon me like an ant. But then, I heard a new sound. The elevator stopped crushing into the brick now and hung motionless. He definitely shut off the power. He was trying to make up his mind what to do. Suddenly, the elevator lifted. I saw it going up and up, away from me. And then, I don't remember. I must have fainted. The next thing I knew, two policemen were holding me up, asking me questions. I told them something of what had happened, and then I asked them about the elevator man. Oh, him? Well, we sent him off in the wagon. It was a funny thing. You see, there was this guy from some publisher, I think he was, came here to tell this elevator guy they'd won some big poetry contest. Well, this fellow from the publisher waited around upstairs and finally started pressing the buzzer. When the elevator came up, the old man jumped out, knocked the publisher guy down, and then went running out into the street. That's when we got him. <laughs> After we sent him off, we came back to investigate. We found you. Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> well, that's about all there was to it. Except that old Drackman really was a pretty good writer, I guess. Because I made the changes he suggested. And you know what? I sold the story. Suspense. Presented by Autolite. Tonight's star, Mr. John Lund. Hello. Got another poem for you. Okay. Harlow Wilcox, the car owner's delight, awoke one night from a deep dream of Autolite. But let's be more specific, Hap. I dreamed that every car in America was equipped with world-famous ignition-engineered Autolite spark plugs. And you know, spark plugs are only one of more than 400 products made by Autolite for cars, trucks, planes, and boats in 28 plants coast to coast. These include complete electrical systems used as original equipment on many makes of America's finest cars. Spark plugs, batteries, generators, coils, distributors, electric windshield wipers, starting motors, bullseye sealed beam headlights. 
All engineered to fit together perfectly, work together perfectly, because they're a perfect team. So, friends, don't accept electrical parts supposed to be as good. Ask for and insist on Autolite original factory parts at your neighborhood service station, car dealer, garage, or repair shop. Remember, you're always right with Autolite. Next Thursday for Suspense, our star will be Miss Claire Trevor. The play is called Angel Face, and it is, as we say, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Tonight's suspense play was produced and edited by William Spear and directed by Norman MacDonald. Music for suspense is composed by Lucian Morawieck and conducted by Lud Gluskin. The Man in the Room is an original play written for radio by William Idelson and Mary Castle. John Lund is currently being co-starred with Barbara Stanwyck in the Paramount picture No Man of Her Own. In the coming weeks, you will hear such stars as Charles Boyer, Edward G. Robinson, Jack Carson, and Dennis O'Keefe. And don't forget, next Thursday, same time, Autolay will present Suspense, starring Claire Trevor. In spite of better food supplies, millions are still starving in Europe and Japan. The need is particularly acute in free Berlin. Send your contributions to CARE, C-A-R-E, New York. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. tonight to endeavor to stun you with my superior knowledge of crime and criminals, I've asked you here only to prove to you that the murders in the Rue Morgue present no great insoluble mystery. Monsieur Dupin, if you think the case is so obvious, tell me, who is the murderer? He will be here shortly, Monsieur le Prefect of Police. Here? Who is it? The murderer here. Gentlemen, I give you my word as a man of honor 
that he will be here in my apartment at precisely 10 o'clock this evening. How can you be so sure? I have asked him to come. It is exactly 9 o'clock now, gentlemen. And in the hour remaining to us before we meet the murderer, I shall explain to you as simply as I can how I managed to arrive at my conclusion. Yes, you, Monsieur Dupin. I'm always interested in guesswork. Guesswork, my dear fellow? This is not guesswork. No. Now, gentlemen, let us retrace the case. The story begins, if I'm not mistaken, with Madame Lespanay and her daughter Camille on the afternoon of December 16th, 1841. Uh, well, of course, you're correct so far anyway, Dupin. I bow, Monsieur le Prefect. Madame Lespanay and her daughter Camille entered the Bank of France at precisely 2.45 in the afternoon to transact important business. Ah, Madame Lespanay, I've been waiting for you. So good of you, Monsieur Le Bon. Have you met my daughter, Camille? I don't think I've had the pleasure. How do you do, mademoiselle? How do you do, Monsieur Le Bon? Are you quite sure, Madame Lespinay, that you wish to withdraw all this money at this time? Quite positive. But 4,000 francs is a great deal to keep about one's household, madame. I'm quite aware of the danger involved, Monsieur Le Bon. But if the bank keeps this withdrawal quiet, nobody else need know that I have a sum of money in the house. Well, things do get about, madame. There's no use inviting unnecessary danger. The danger is my problem, Monsieur Le Bon. I think we'd better let the matter drop at that. Have you, uh, any protection against possible thievery at home, madame? Ah, uh, no, monsieur, but mamma and I have protection enough. We bolt and lock our doors. It's absolutely impossible for anybody to enter the house unless he should break the door down. But does any male protector live in the house? My husband died many years ago. Madame misunderstands me. I'm only asking these questions for your own good. Two unprotected women living alone in a large house can invite trouble... That is our problem. If Madame insists. And I do insist. Very well, Madame. I have the money here. I myself will see you both home to ensure safe delivery. But let me warn you now. The minute you arrive in your home on the Rue Morgue, the Bank of France resigns all future responsibility. We understand, Monsieur Le Bon. We understand perfectly. So, gentlemen, the first step in this little tragedy was completed. Madame Espanay and her daughter insisted on taking the money home from the bank. Monsieur Le Bon drove them in his carriage to their house, the large, bleak house, number 12, Rue Nord. When they arrived there, Monsieur Le Bon looked about for the gendarme who was in charge of that particular block. You are, Mademoiselle Camille. Oh, thank you, Monsieur Le Bon. Madame? Thank you. Thank you. Is that the gendarme on the corner, the gendarme usually on this block? Not having had any reason to talk to the gendarme, Monsieur Le Bon, I wouldn't know. Yes, I think it is, Monsieur. Gendarme! Gendarme! All this fuss over a little money. Really, you'd think we were incapable of taking care of ourselves. Well, I think Monsieur Le Bon is very thoughtful, Maman. Gendarme! Coming, Monsieur, coming. Do you live on the first floor, Madame Lespinay? On the fourth floor, in the back of the house. I own this house, and I've shut up all the other rooms. You mean this entire house is unoccupied you except for... You called me, monsieur. Yes, I did. I want you to keep a special watch on this house for the next week or so. Madame Lespinay and her daughter will have a considerable amount of money in the house. I will watch the house like a watchdog. You would be better off if you did it like a man. Then you'd use your head instead of your feet. Monsieur! What is your name, gendarme? Gendarme is a Very well. 
Gendarme, Monsieur Lormuzet. I leave these ladies in your care. You needn't worry about a thing, Mademoiselle. And Madame. I'm sure we won't. That is, as long as you don't spread the news around the neighborhood that we've got 4,000 francs hidden here in the house. Who, me, madame? I am the law, and your secret is safe with me. <laughs> Come along, Mama. I'm getting hungry. Yes, dear. Thank you so much for all you've done, Monsieur Le Bon. It is nothing, mademoiselle, nothing at all. Just a courtesy extended by the Bank of France. I'll keep good watch. Be assured of that. I'll keep very good watch. Gentlemen, gentlemen. Let us proceed to the next event. Gendarme Isidore Musée kept a very good watch on number 12 Rue Morgue. At 11 o'clock the evening of the tragedy, he strolled into the shop two doors away from number 12 to buy a pouch of tobacco and to chat with his very good friend Pierre Moreau, a tiny man known as the neighborhood gossip. Uh, good evening, uh, good evening, good evening, friend Isidore, good evening. Good uh, evening. I've been waiting for you, yes, I've been waiting for you. You usually drop in at nine o'clock. And I said to myself, as I sat here waiting for you, I said, uh, where's my good friend Isidore? It's been a busy evening this evening. That's what I said to myself. If Isidore doesn't drop in to buy his usual box of tobacco, he's busy. There must be big news abroad, but then how, how could there be big news abroad on this block? That's what I said. You were wrong, Pierre. Very wrong. Wrong, eh? Uh, there is big news. Thievery? No. Uh, murder? No. Well, then, <laughs> I give up. It's a secret. Secret? What could be a secret? Somebody got married. That's no secret. Somebody died. That's no secret either. A child is ill, a contagious disease, an epidemic, or Paris will be infected? No. Well, I can't guess. If you promise not to tell a soul... No, not a soul. Well, Madame Lespinier yes? and her daughter Camille have withdrawn 4,000 francs from the bank today and have it hidden in the house somewhere. No. And I must stand on guard. Uh, uh, naturally, naturally. But don't tell a soul. No, not a soul. On my honor, not a single soul is it. My word of honor, I swear it now. And so, by midnight, gentlemen, the entire neighborhood in the Rue Morgue was buzzing. 4,000 francs in the Lespinay household. I hear it was 10,000. Two women all alone. Imagine it. 20,000 francs. I wonder where... And all that jewelry must be a veritable fortune hidden away. Do you know that they say she's got money hidden in every corner of the house? Imagine almost a million francs in that house. I always knew there was something strange about those two women living all alone in a house like that. And in the rear... Fourth floor. Yes, sitting in the bedroom of the fourth floor rear. But while the neighborhood was busy gossiping and chattering, Mademoiselle Camille and her mother were completely unaware of the commotion they had caused. It was almost three in the morning. Camille had just finished undressing, and her mother was sitting in front of the mirror, brushing her hair so that they didn't notice the window opening in back of them. I'm so tired, Mama. Poor Camille. It's been a very busy day. You know, I thought that Monsieur Le Bon was very nice. He seems fairly affable. Oh, Mama, fairly affable. I thought he was perfectly charming. 
so concerned over us. No man ever gets that concerned over me. Must have been you, darling. <laughs> All men sit. Stay calm, Camille. Don't Lamar, move. he's got a razor in his hand. Don't move, Camille. Lamar, quick. The tide is coming closer. Where, Camille? Where shall we go? Into the closet, Mamma. Quickly, Mamma, into the closet. Close the door. Mamma, he'll break the door down. He'll break the door down, Mamma. Watch out for him breaking it down. gentlemen, simply ghastly. We fully realize that this is a horrible atrocity, but we must remain factual. While all this was going on on the fourth floor of number 12 Rue Morgue, the gendarme Isidore Musée, the little tobacconist Pierre Moreau, Monsieur Lebon, who, strangely enough, was in the neighborhood at that very moment, and a passerby, a sailor, all four were attracted by the screams of the two women. And immediately tried to break into number 12, uh -huh. Morgue. Now stand back, everybody, while I break the door down. Stand back. This is the gendarme's job. Break it down, Isidore. Break it down. Look up. Follow me, everybody. Up these stairs to the fourth floor. Stand right behind you, Isidore. Right behind you. Now on the next slide. He's gone. Wait a minute. Wait. I'm sure of it, sailor. I've warned you about the gendarme. Well, let's let's break the door down. One, two, three. Look, look. What? Oh, the entire room is wrecked. Just exactly as if a maniac had torn up the place. The bed's torn apart. Yes. I sailed the seven seas, but I've never seen a place look like this in my entire life. Monsieur Le Bon, where are Mademoiselle Camille and and her mother? I don't know. They're not in here. Look. Where? They're in the fireplace. Oh. It's Mademoiselle Camille. Dead. Yes. Dead. Dead. Poor girl. Here, help me, somebody. Help me lift her up. Look. Look out this window. Huh? The old woman is lying in the courtyard below. The sailor's right. Absolutely right. She's lying in the courtyard below, dead as a dead fish. Oh, probably twice as dead. Somebody is guilty of this. Somebody. And as a member of the Paris police, I mean to find out who that guilty person is. 
Yes, gentlemen. Isidore Musée gendarme swore up and down that he would find the murderer. Well, at four o'clock that morning, I was awakened from a sound sleep and called to number 12 Rue Morgue to examine the evidence. Monsieur le gendarme Musée was running around the room destroying the evidence, or at least what little evidence there was, as fast as he unearthed it. The three gentlemen who had been there with him were still waiting round out of a combined feeling of horror and curiosity. The sailor, whose name escaped me, was sitting on what was left of a bed, staring blankly around the room. Monsieur Pierre Moreau, the tobacconist, was watching Isidore Musée, the gendarme, play detective. He played it badly. And Monsieur Le Bon was the picture of dejection. I entered the room and gazed about while Isidore well, supplied well, me with all the facts well, in the case, the only at least from his point of view. Below. And that is exactly what happened, Monsieur Dupin. Very interesting, Monsieur Isidore Musée. And uh, now, gentlemen, I wish to ask just a few questions. Uh, no, go ahead, go ahead. Now, all of you seem to think you heard the voice of the murderer. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, we did definitely. No doubt about it. And uh, you, Monsieur Isidore Musée, you are... Positive that the murderer is an Italian? Positive, Monsieur Dupin. Absolutely positive. I could tell by his uh, his intonation. Hmm? Do you speak Italian? Oh, no. Definitely not. Have you ever heard Italian spoken? No, Monsieur, never. But I imagine... Yes? You imagine what? Oh, I imagine it would sound like that. I see. And uh, you, Monsieur Le Bon... You said it was Polish. Definitely Polish, without a doubt. I judge you have lived in Poland a long time, yet? No, no, but I heard Polish spoken once. Once? Yes. That makes you an excellent judge of the Polish language. Uh, how about you, Monsieur Pierre Moreau? What language did you say it was? Uh, Russian, I thought, uh, but that's only a guess, since I admit, and I admit it very freely, I'm not a man to hedge. Uh, I've never heard a word of Russian in my life. Mm, uh, I thought so. And how about you, sir? I, I thought it was Dutch. I don't speak the Dutch language, but I've heard a considerable amount of Dutch spoken when I was in Holland eight years ago. Eight years ago. Hmm? I, uh, I don't mean to make a suggestion, Monsieur Dupin, but Monsieur Lavant was the only man beside myself who knew about the money being kept in this house. What are you insinuating, Monsieur Musée? Insinuating? <laughs> I'm an officer of the law, and I think it was very peculiar that you should just happen to be in this neighborhood at three o'clock in the morning. Don't you live in this neighborhood, Monsieur Le Bon? No, but I have good reason to be here. Oh, so? Suppose you tell us. Well, I was worried about Mademoiselle Camille. I was rather attracted to the young lady. And, well, I had a feeling that there would be trouble over the money... Well, I was in the corner cafe having some tea until about ten minutes before the murder occurred. And then you strolled by the house on your way home, correct? Quite correct. Now, my tobacco store is open all night. All tobacco stores are open all night, Monsieur Pierre Moreau. I was just walking by. I didn't steal the money. But naturally, nobody stole the money. It's in the safe behind this wall. Huh? Are you positive, Monsieur Dupin? Perfectly obvious that the money hasn't been touched. These murders were far too cruel to be instigated by man's greedy desire for financial reward. Here, let me open the safe and show you. I uh, happen to know an interesting combination that will open any safe. <laughs> I should have been a thief. So, there. I ought to open it. 
Oh, it did. Natural. Now, look. There's the 4,000 francs, safe and snug as a 4,000 franc group of notes should be. Well, perhaps Monsieur Lebon was interrupted in the midst of his thievery. Perhaps he, he, he didn't have time to finish. Well, nonsense. Monsieur Lebon was with you when you walked up the stairs. Well, an accomplice, perhaps. No, 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 Monsieur Isidore Musée. Let me show you something. Look at the fingerprints on this girl's neck. Very strong, heavy prints. And very large, too. Why, yes. The murderer must have been a giant. His hand must have been twice as large as mine, and I have a large hand as hands. Yes, yes. The murderer was a giant. A giant with extraordinary strength. Gentlemen, I think now I have sufficient clues. Uh, look at this window. It's, it's just a window. Yes, just a window with a cord on it. A broken piece of cord. Clue number one. Clue number two. Look. Look at the dead girl's hand. Huh? Why? She has some hair clutched in her hand. Quite correct. And with this cord and this hair, I can find the murderer. Gentlemen, go home. Go home, get a good night's sleep, and I'll hand the murderer over to the prefect of police very soon. Monsieur Dupin, don't forget to mention that I helped you. I'm, I'm due for promotion soon. And so, messieurs, that is the story. And you have the facts. A piece of cord and some hair. The condition of the room, the strength of the murderer, the passion of the deed, the lack of motivation, should all suggest to you the very same thing it suggested to me. Monsieur Dupin, you are talking in circles. Circles? So? You mean to say you still don't know who the murderer is? No, of course I don't know. And frankly, Monsieur Dupin, I don't think you know either. <laughs> really, gentlemen. Really, gentlemen, you, you amaze me. Here. Here, Monsieur le Prefect. Examine this piece of cord, if you will. What do you make out of it? A uh, piece of cord, yes. Uh, well, let me see. Well, it's a piece of... Well, nothing, except that... Uh, well, it's it's been torn. Yes, it's been torn. Now, yes. try to tear it yourself. Well, tried to... Well, I couldn't. It, it, it's a very, very strong cord. Ah. Notice anything else? Yes, now that I look at it, it's got a very unusual knot in it. Uh, but what does an unusual knot prove? You will see what I mean presently. It's the first stroke of ten o'clock. Any minute now, gentlemen, the murderer will enter this room. Uh, may I please ask you to extinguish all the candles in the room, all... Except one. Oh, uh, why, if, if Monsieur Dupin, we'll all be murdered. Which would be no great tragedy, but I, I wouldn't worry if I were you. Well, as you say, Monsieur Dupin, uh, extinguish the candles, gentlemen. Yes. Now we are in semi-darkness. That is fine. Listen, gentlemen... The downstairs door to my pension has opened and closed. The murderer is now downstairs. He is walking up the stairs. Now listen. Yes, listen. For the love of heaven. Quiet, quiet. He is coming closer. Gentlemen, are you ready to grab him when he enters? Yes, monsieur. That is good. Good. 
is standing outside my door now, Monsieur le Prefect. Ready, gentlemen? Yes. Come in. Grab him. Let me go. Let me go. There you go. So it is you, sailor. Uh, help the sailor to sit down. Uh, it was a trap, huh? Yeah, but this sailor doesn't look strong enough to commit these murders. Let me go! Let me go! Don't Let struggle. me go, I say! Please, please, please don't struggle. You see, sailor, uh, Monsieur le Prefect cannot arrest you for the murder because although you are responsible for the crimes, you are not guilty. I am not guilty. I, I'm not. I, I couldn't help. Of course you couldn't. Gentlemen... It must be obvious to you now that no man murdered these two women. The only creature able to do it would be a Bornese orangutan. Orangutan? I matched these hairs I found in the dead woman's hand, and of course they belong to just such a creature. An orangutan? Yes. Yes, Monsieur Dupin is right. But tell me, how is uh, this sailor involved? I own the animal. Dupin put an ad in the paper saying my orangutan was captured. Oh, that's why I'm here, to claim it. But didn't you realize that Monsieur Dupin knew that the murder was an orangutan? No. No, I... I didn't think anyone could solve the murders. But I did know that whoever put the ad in the paper knew that I was the owner of the animal and that he was keeping what he thought was a perfectly innocent animal. You see, I addressed my ad personally to this sailor. This piece of cord told me a sailor owned it. There was a sailor's knot in the cord... And the knot was peculiar to those tied on Maltese vessels. Therefore, when I put the ad in the paper, I asked the sailor from the Maltese vessel, uh, I checked on the name of the vessel from the sailing data in the paper, to come and get the beast. Well, naturally, I I came to pick him up. Ah, now I see. Uh, one question I must ask, sailor. How did the orangutan get hold of a razor, and uh, how did he manage to escape? I... I had the animal locked in my quarters. I... I captured him in Malta and brought him to this country to sell to the zoo. They're, they're very smart, you know. For last night, when I entered my room, he was trying to shave with my razor. When I tried to chain him up, he escaped. He ran out into the streets, saw the light in number 12, Rue Log, climbed up the lightning rod to the ladies' apartments. Well, you know the rest. Indeed we do. Well, gentlemen... Do you have any other problems you wish settled? Call on me. Just call on Monsieur Auguste Dupin. Incidentally, if you'd like to see the orangutan, you'll find it safely locked up in the zoo. From the time-worn pages of the past, we have brought you the immortal tale Murders in the Rue Mall. Bell Keeper. Hold the bell. Be 
here in this lonely cave by the restless sea once again next time for another immortal tale in The Weird Circle. Family Theater presents Maureen O'Hara, Stephen McNally, and Howard McNear. Network in cooperation with Family Theater Incorporated brings you Stephen McNally and Howard McNear in Edgar Allan Poe's classic, The Gold Bug. To introduce the drama, your hostess, Maureen O'Hara. Thank you, Jean. This week, Americans are honoring the 100th anniversary of the death of one whose contributions to American letters seem destined to live forever. For in Baltimore, 100 years ago, Edgar Allan Poe died after a short and stormy span of 40 years. In tonight's tale, we bring you one of the analytical stories of Poe, which started a whole new era of modern writing, for his logical step-by-step recreation and solution of a problem is the basis of the present-day mystery with which we are all familiar. It is a story that reflects the earlier and possibly the happier years of Poe's life. Based upon his years in the Army, when he was stationed at Fort Moultrie, South Carolina, and where he often wandered the shores of Sullivan Island, it is this island that serves as the setting for our story, and it is my pleasure to present Stephen McNally as our narrator, Edgar, with Howard McNear as William Legrand... In the gold bug. Often in our work, we lawyers see the end product that results when man's senses suddenly desert him, leaving his body prey to the lashes of his emotions and his soul to an even greater scourge. And once, once it seemed I saw the beginning of this awful force, a force that turns man into beast, that erases from his consciousness all but the galling prods that drive him ever faster to his dreadful doom. It started that day when I returned to Sullivan's Island. It's a lonely island in the fall of the year, and never before had I experienced the chill winds as I did that October day when I returned after months spent in Charleston. My law practice being somewhat slack during the preceding week, I had decided to come down to visit once more with the master of Sullivan's Island, my friend William Legrand. Legrand I had known in older days, when he could still welcome the sight of people's faces before he made his decision to abandon the city life that had brought him only successive disasters. Disasters provoked by the tragic strain of insanity in his family. We had been closer in those days, for he was then of more open mind. But of late I remembered only how volatile were his expressions and how capricious his moods. 
As I neared the hut, the sight of the smoke coming from the chimney prompted me to run, and I was soon at the door. There was no one there save me. And wherever my astonished glance fell, it encountered a riot of disorder among the usually meticulous furnishings. As I stood there, wondering whether it were the defections of Legrand or Jupiter that could have caused this neglect, I heard a welcoming voice outside and turned Edgar! to awake Legrand. <laughs> Edgar! Edgar! Oh, Edgar, what good luck for me. Jupiter! Come, see who's here. It has been a long time, hasn't it, William? Oh. <laughs> it's good to see you again, Mr. Edgar. This island has need of company. Come, do sit down. We have much to talk about since all these months have passed between us. I'll set the pot to boiling. Some hot tea will take the chill off this weather. That, Jupiter, is an excellent idea. Edgar, I would rather see you than anyone I can name. I have most extraordinary news. I found a truly rare treasure. <laughs> Some of the Captain Kidd treasure chest that every charlatan swears is buried hereabouts or... A, a new species of bird life, my friend. You are much closer with your second guess, Edgar. In fact, I found a most amazing specimen today. You must look at it tomorrow. Why must you keep me in suspense until then? Come, show me this wonder of yours. I wish that I could, but not knowing you'll be here, I let one of the officers from the fort have it overnight. He is a naturalist, too. Oh, but I must really return to Charleston tonight. I have a case coming up tomorrow. Why not tell me about it, and I'll come down again next week to see it for myself. Ah, I see it. You must for you will not believe me when I tell you. Today I wandered over near the West Beach, and suddenly I thought I saw a golden glint in the sand there. I found it to be a scarabius, the like of which no man has ever seen. <laughs> I confess I'll never understand your fascination with these weird insects. You naturalists must all be insane. I'll never say that word insane again, do you hear? It has an evil sound. It makes me... Well, no. You don't need to be upset, Mr. Legrand. Uh, Forgive me, William. I, I'd forgotten about your family. Believe me, I meant no harm. Well, I, I'm sorry, but you know how distasteful my memories are to me. Please, uh, continue about the beetle. I don't know yet what it looked like. I tell you, there was never one like it. Pure gold in color and heavy as a stone. And only about as big as a hickory nut. But even I have seen yellow beetles. Oh, not like this, I can assure you. It has two strange jet black spots near its head and another near the tail. Oh, but here, I'll sketch it for you. Let me see. Ah, let's see now. I know I have some blank paper here somewhere. Well, there's a piece sticking out of your pocket. Perhaps that would do. Oh, is that? Oh, yes, yes. Oh, this is the paper I used to wrap this scarabius in. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It looks as though it were real parchment. Uh, Jupiter found it for me. And I'll tell you again, neither of them will bring good luck. Mark my word. (laughs) Ah, poor Jupiter. Seems to see specters at every hand these days. He would have had me leave the scarabaeus at the beach. It's bad luck. You'll see it too, Mr. Edgar. Watch a look at that beetle. Uh, Come, will you? Make your drawing and let me judge myself. Yes, I will, officer. I must confess I've never seen Jupiter so overwrought. Ah, yes. Now I'll draw this and you'll see. And the dots. Here. And here. Now, Edgar, look at this. Ah, This is a strange one. I never saw anything like it before, unless... uh, that's possibly a skull or a death's head. A death's head, yes. Possibly the markings on it would give that appearance, but it does not really resemble one. 
Perhaps so, but I feel, Legrand, you are no artist. Edgar, I draw very well. I should, at least. I've had good training, and I'm not exactly a blockhead. Then you must be joking, for, for this is a very good skull. And where are the beetles intended? Oh, very well. I should not have drawn it, after all. Mm. Then we wouldn't have gotten into this argument. Argument, William? You know very well what I mean. Here, I'll toss the accursed thing in the fire. What? Well, what's oh. the matter? What on earth is this? Well, upon my word. Well, this cannot be. Uh, uh, you must forgive me, Edgar, but I have work to do. Uh, uh, Jupiter, see Mr. Edgar back to Charleston. Uh, I'm sorry, but right now I... Uh, I must be alone. And leave I did. For from that moment when he first glanced at the parchment he snatched from my hands, he was lost in concentration. To be honest, I was in no good humor that night, as with Jupiter I picked my way through the darkened island to the boat landing. But by the morning I was absorbed in my work and so was greatly surprised when an excited Jupiter arrived at my office with an urgent request from Legrand that I return immediately to Sullivan's Island. can be the matter with Legrand, Jupiter. He was in good health last night. He hasn't complained of any pain, but he's sick just the same. Is he confined to bed, then? No. He won't sleep or rest at all. Just works at his desk, and then rushes out of the house and starts measuring things. Measuring things? What things? Practically anything. He just walks this way and that way, counting his footsteps and making all kinds of figures on the slate he carries. What can he... It's the bug, if you ask me. That's what it is. That old gold bug bit him. Oh, now, really, such nonsense, Jupiter. It's probably only a fever he has contracted. You'll see. Here, you go in alone, Mr. Edgar. I'll wait outside. Very well, Jupiter. Jupiter! Did you bring Edgar? Jupiter's waiting outside, William. Oh, oh. I think the poor man fears for his life. What's happened? Ah, Edgar, come in, come in, come in. I thought you would never get here. You, Jupiter, come in. You will be quite safe. Oh, Edgar, I need you here, especially if I am to further the views of fate and the gold bug. Well, then, when am I to see this fabulous... In good time, my friend, but first we have work to do. Oh, here, now, William, William. Uh, you mustn't excite yourself. Uh, Sit down and begin from the beginning. Yes, Remember last night when I handed you the paper with my drawing on it? Well, of course. <laughs> and now, look what happened to it. Well, nothing has happened to it that I can see. It's the same skull-like drawing you made for me last night. Oh, well, now, turn it over. Oh, but this is the drawing of the beetle. I can see the antenna. Precisely. And on the other side is the skull, brought out from the old parchment by the fire last night. But where did it come from? It's witchcraft, I tell you. That gold bug has an evil spell. Remember I told you I used it to pick up the gold bug? We found it in the sand near the beetle. Well, then the drawing must be a very old one. The parchment looks well worn. Yes, that's true. Now, last night after you left, I heated the whole thing over the fire, and I found the message upon it. Oh, William, there's no message here. Oh, yes, well, wait, you should see here. Let me put the paper in this pan of water, and we'll place it over the fire again. Yes, you shall see. You mean the heat will bring out... Many of these old parchments can be restored through the use of heat. 
Now, when you handled it last night, the heat from your hands combined the temperature of the room uh, to bring out the message. Well, look. It's beginning to show up now. There's, there's a picture on it. Why, it's an animal. <laughs> Precisely. And what do you think it is? Well, it, it, it looks like a goat, I believe. Yeah, so I thought. But if you will look closer, you will see it is a kid. So? Oh, come, 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 come. First the skull, then the picture of a kid. Now, surely you need no further clues. So we have pirates and a goat. I fail to see any reason for your excitement. <laughs> Unless you're trying to conjure up a plot worthy of a two-penny thriller. Oh, not a goat. I have just said it was a kid. Surely you heard of Captain Kidd? Oh, why, yes, the, oh, the pirate, of course. Why, see, the, 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 the picture's where the signature should be. Ah, yes, and now look at the paper. Between the signature and the skull at the top. Ah, yes, what are you seeing? Uh, nothing yet. Now, wait a minute. Uh, wait a bit, there are, there are lines coming up. It, why, it is a message. Look. I know, I know, I know, but wait until you can read them. No, I, I can see something. It, it's a number. And there are some more. Oh, but the whole thing is not. <laughs> of course, come. You must read them to me. Begin from the top and read across. Well, 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 begin, begin, begin. This may be worth a fortune. Hurry, hurry, hurry. One, eight, eight, semicolon, question mark, semicolon. And that's all. Yeah, that's good, that's good. Now we have it. Have it. Have it. In heaven's name, man, what good is a page of blurred figures? It's a message, don't you see? Well, of course, but what message? I'm as much in the dark now as ever. Calm yourself, Edgar. Let us approach this with logic. Logic? What is logic is there in Goldbergs, pirates, and ciphered messages? I ask you. Obviously, the message must be in English. Obviously. It could be in Hindustani for all these numbers that tell us. Now, the pun on the word kid could only occur in English. So if there is a message here, it must be in that language. Now, let's try a transposition cipher first. Uh, of course, if it's in code, the fat is really in the fire. Well, what difference does it make whether the message is in code or cipher? Can it both be solved in the same manner? Indeed not. A code uses a set of symbols which stand for words, a set already agreed upon by the encoder, while these ciphers, they merely substitute numbers and symbols for letters. Now, come, come, come. First, we must uh, table them according to frequency. Well, I can tell at a glance. The eights are most common. That's good. Then count them. Uh, they must be the E's. Why, how does that hold, William? Well, the E is the most common letter in nearly any given sentence. So the eight must be the E. And after the E comes A, O, I, D, H, etc. Ah, but we'll worry about them later. <laughs> There is the completed message. A good glass in the Bessop's Hostel in the Devil's 21 degrees and 13 minutes northeast. But this makes no more sense than the original. The words are there, but they mean nothing. Ask the Goldberg. It can tell you. Try to break it into sentences. See, in the manuscript, there are often places where the characters are run together. An uneducated man might do that as he was making sentences. Say, that might be it. For example, the first sentence would be, a, a good glass in the Bessop's hostel in the devil's seat. But what does that mean? <laughs> that is but one of the answers we must find, my friend. And I fear we must scour the countryside to do it. 
scour we did. For in the days that followed, Legrand and I talked to each and every soul that lived about us. At every hand, we found the same answer. The same blank stares, the same accusing glances that more than once began to convince me I had lost my sanity. Then Legrand heard of an old crone who had lived in the vicinity for more than 80 years. We found the incredibly old woman, her cracking voice making our hearts race. She strove to recall the facts of the generation past. Men always come to me, and I tell them, <laughs> I tell them what they wish for a price. Oh, yes, I always get a price. Name it then, Grandmother, and let's get on with it. Yes, uh, you must forgive my friends. His impatience is only youth. Now, in the village, they, they said you knew the Bessops. Eh? There's been no Bessops hereabouts for 50 years and more, son. And an unfriendly folk they were, too. Oh, did they live apart from the village then, Grandmother? I've heard tell of Bessops Hostel. Bessops Castle, it is. <laughs> You'll sleep cold tonight if you expect to stay there. Do you mean there is a Bessops Castle? Where is it? I told you before, young man. Meet my price, and I'll tell you how to get to the place you seek. Well, name your price, and it's met, Grandmother. Twenty good silver dollars. Twenty dollars? Of course, Grandmother. Here, hold out your hand. Oh, wonderful. Eighteen, nineteen, and twenty. Now, now for this Bessop's castle. You must first go to Sullivan's Island. Yes. Yes. The island, Grandmother. Where do we go on the island? Up on the western shore of the island, you'll find a lonely pile of rocks. And there, as you go along... What do we do now, William? This country's too barren to leave us a clue. Look down there below us. No, 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 to the right of it. What do you see? What? Why, it looks as though the waves had carved a chair out of the rock. <laughs> Precisely. The devil's seat, my lad. Give me the telescope. Here it is. Now, now what? Uh, read the directions in the note. I'll use them to sight with. It says, uh, 21 degrees and 13 minutes. Uh, that's good. Good. Next. Uh, uh, northeast and by north. Uh, that's right, right. That's it. It brings the glass onto that tall tree. Tree. Well, then it says main branch, seventh limb, east side. What do you see there? Uh, 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 there's a rift in the branches. Uh, what on earth? Quickly, what is it, William? What do you see? I, I don't exactly know, Edgar. But then. Um, I think it's in the death's head. Well, that must be the tree, William. It towers above the other. Yeah, we will soon find out. Jupiter, give me the spade and get ready to climb the tree. Here. Take the gold bug with you. No, sir, no, sir. I don't want to be hexed up there. Oh, what? By the gold bug? Oh, nonsense, man. Nonsense or not, I don't want anything to do with the gold bug. It's a hex. Well, if he's afraid of the beetle, William, why not let him go up without it? Oh, but he can't. We will need it once he reaches the place. Yeah, yes, up the tree with him, now, Jupiter. Here, I'll give you a boost. Ah, it's a good lad. Keep climbing. 
Ah, Jupiter, stop there. Stop there a moment. What's the matter? How many limbs below you now? Count them. There's five. That's good. Uh, go one higher, Jupiter, and sing out. I'm there now. Now work your way out on that limb as far as you can go. What's happened, Jupiter? It's the skull. Nailed into this old wound. But that's good. That's good. Now listen to me carefully. Find the left eye of the skull. Yes. Yes, I've got it. <laughs> that's good. Now, now listen carefully. Take the gold bug and drop it through the left eye. Now drop it. Yes, sir. Ah, see, there it comes, there it comes. Ah, look at it clear. Ah, there it is. Ah, quickly, mark the spot where it landed. Jubilee, get back down here now. We've more work to do. What did the peg fall with you? Wait, wait a minute. Ah, 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 ah. ah, there, yes, now hand me the measuring line, Edgar. And now follow me and bring the spade. And use it with goodwill. For each stroke shall be a golden one. to be here, and my calculations must be correct. Oh, come, Willem. Let us rest now. We can dig again tomorrow when it's light. Oh, yes, that's it. We'll come again tomorrow, then we will find it, I know. Come along, Jupiter. Here, I'll help you up. Reach for my left hand. Yes, sir. Thank you. The left one. Oh, the other one, Jupiter, the other one. Of course. Jupiter, come in. Yes, sir. I'm coming. Now, answer one question. Without fail, or so help me, I'll skin your life. Yes, sir. And answer it immediately. Which is your left eye? Why, it's this one. Oh, oh. yes. <laughs> of course, I forgot. You've always had trouble that way. Come along, come along. Back to the tree, quickly. This game is not up yet. Now, was the skull face outward from the limb or towards it? Uh, it, it was facing out. And which eye did you drop it through? Why, the left... Oh, yes, of course. Ah, the right one. Come, we must try again. Now, quickly, hold the cord. Oh, but it would only make a difference of an inch or two. Let's return tomorrow, will you? Oh, an inch or two, you say? Look what happens when I run the line directly from the tree through the spot where the gold bug should have fallen. Why, it's it's yards to the right of where we were. Indeed it is. And there, our wager, will find our goal. So come, let us dig again. It will not take long this time. There. We found it, will you? Yes, we must have. Here. With the mayhem. We must clear its way. Yes. Now, quickly, quickly slide the bolt. Then we shall see who has been manned. Those jewels. 
William, we're rich. Nor did we sleep that night. For in the firelight of the cabin, we sat amazed as we counted up the pirate treasure. Through it all, Legrand chuckled and would from time to time glance at me as though I were to share in his private chest. At length, goaded by my curiosity and his laughing glance, I asked for the explanation he knew must be forthcoming. And all made excellent sense until I asked him why he had insisted Jupiter carry the gold bug when he climbed the tree to the death's head. He laughed again then. <laughs> A rising laugh that made me catch my breath. (laughs) It was for your benefit, my dear Edgar, to punish you. Punish me? Well, no doubt I deserved it, but the exact cause escapes me now. Oh, come, come, come. Confess. Did you not doubt my sanity again? Well, uh, well, no, no, of course not. I I was only afraid that the excitement might prove too much for you. For my mind, you mean. You need not be tactful. You've doubted me all along. That is why the gold bug helped me. Only I understood its message. It was the gold bug who was our guide. (laughs) Or perhaps you think it was... um... Who can tell? I ask you. Who can tell? Stephen McNally and Howard McNear for your splendid presentation of The Gold Bug. You know, The Gold Bug was the first story of Edgar Allan Poe that I ever read. It holds a special place in my memories, along with Tom Sawyer, Treasure Island, and all the other stories we first learned to love in grammar school days. Hearing it again on family theater calls back those days. The books we read, the songs we sang, the teachers we had... And the boys and girls we all knew so well. It's good that we have such memories. And it's only right that the memories should be happy ones. Especially do we have a right to have happy memories of our home life, our parents, our brothers and sisters. In fact, I'd say that parents owe it to their children to see that their childhood days are something that they will always look back to with gratitude and joy. To make better homes in America, and to furnish parents with a workable, God-given formula for bringing happiness to their home, Family Theater recommends that you begin the practice of daily family prayers in your home, for you'll find it to be true that the family that prays together stays together. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. Hollywood Family Theater has brought you Stephen McNally and Howard McNear in Edgar Allan Poe's The Gold Bug with Maureen O'Hara as your hostess. Emperor Clemmy was heard as Jupiter with Martha Wentworth as the grandmother. 
This adaptation of Poe's classic was written by Arthur Sawyer with music composed and conducted by Harry Zimmerman. It was directed for Family Theater by Jaime Del Valle. These Family Theater broadcasts are made possible by the thousands of you who felt the need for this type of program, by the mutual network which has responded to this need, and by the hundreds of stars of stage, screen, and radio who have so unselfishly given of their time and talent to appear on our Family Theater stage. This is Gene Baker inviting you to be with us next week at this time when your family theater will present Oscar Wilde's fantasy, The Happy Prince, starring Loretta Young and Vincent Price. Join us, won't you? Family Theater salutes the Newspaper Boys of America and reminds you that Saturday, October the 8th is National Newspaper Boys Week. Successful boys make successful men. This program came from Hollywood. This is the World Series Network, the mutual broadcasting system. Welcome to the Black Mass. Tonight, a story about a tower and an old favorite about a heart. Both tales by Edgar Allan Poe. First, here is Pat Franklin to tell you about a predicament. Quiet and still afternoon when I strolled forth in the goodly city of Edina. The confusion and bustle in the city streets were terrible. Men were talking, women were screaming, children choking, pigs whistling, carts rattling, bulls bellowing, horses neighing, dogs danced. Danced! Could it then be possible? Danced! Alas, thought I, my dancing days are over. Thus it is ever. What a host of gloomy recollections will ever and anon be awakened in the midst of genius and imaginative contemplation. 
especially of a genius, doomed to the everlasting and eternal and continue and, as one may say, the continued, yes, the continued and continuous, bitter, harassing, disturbing and, if I may be allowed the expression, the very disturbing influence of the serene and godlike and heavenly and exalting and elevated and purifying effect of what may rightly be termed the most enviable, the most truly enviable, nay, the most benignly beautiful, the most the most deliciously ethereal, and as it were, the most pretty thing in the world. Oh, but I am always led away by my feelings. In such a mind, I repeat, what a host of recollections are stirred up by a trifle. The dogs danced. I, I could not. They frisked. I wept. They capered. I sobbed. In my solitary walk through the city, I had two humble but faithful companions. Diana, my poodle, sweetest of creatures, and Pompey, my negro. Sweet Pompey, how shall I ever forget thee? I had taken Pompey's arm. He was three feet in height and about seventy or perhaps eighty years of age. He had bow legs and was corpulent. Nature had endowed him with no neck. I am Signora Psyche Zenobia. I formed the third of the party. On a sudden, there presented itself to view a church, a Gothic cathedral, vast, venerable, with a tall steeple which towered into the sky. What madness now possessed me? Why did I rush upon my fate? I was seized with an uncontrollable desire to ascend the giddy pinnacle. The door of the cathedral stood invitingly open. My destiny prevailed. I entered the ominous archway. I thought the staircase would never have an end. Round? Yes, they went round and up, and round and up, and round and up. Until I could not help surmising that the upper end of the spiral ladder had been removed. We climbed until only one step remained. One step. Oh, one little step. Upon one such little step in the great staircase of human life. How vast a sum of human happiness or misery depends. <sighs> I abandoned the arm of Pompey and surmounted the one remaining step, followed immediately by Diana. Pompey alone remained behind, stretching forth his hand to me. Then, in helping him up, he stumbled and fell forward, his accursed head striking me full in the breast. 
precipitating me headlong, together with himself, upon the hard, filthy, detestable floor of the belfry. My revenge was sure, sudden and complete. Seizing him furiously by the wool with both hands, I tore out vast quantities of black, crisp, curling material. Oh, 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 that sigh, it, it sunk into my heart. And our quarrel was quickly made up. We, we looked about the room for an aperture through which we could survey the city. Windows, there were none. The sole light admitted into the gloomy chamber proceeded from a, a square opening about a foot in diameter and about seven feet from the floor. I called Pompey to my side. Pompey? Pompey! I wish to look through that aperture. Here, stand here, just beneath it. Good. Now, now, hold out one of your hands. Good. I, I, I step up. Oh, oh. <laughs> now, now, now the other hand, so I can get on your shoulder. Good. Good. Now, I, I can easily pass my head through the... The classic Edina. Oh, just look. The aperture through which I thrust my head was an opening in the dial plate of a gigantic clock. The hands of the clock were immense. The longest could not have been less than ten feet in length. They were of solid steel, apparently, and their edges appeared to be sharp. But what a view! Lovely! Lovely! It might have been half an hour that I was absorbed in the heavenly scenery beneath me when... Suddenly, I was startled by something very cold, which pressed with a gentle pressure upon the back of my neck. I felt alarmed. What could it be? Not Pompey. He was beneath my feet. Not Diana. She was sitting, according to my explicit directions, in the farthest corner of the room. What could it be? Alas. I but too soon discovered the huge glittering scimitar-like minute hand of the clock had, in the course of its hourly revolution, descended upon my neck. I pulled back at once, but it was too late. I couldn't get my head back through the mouth of that terrible trap, which grew narrower and, and narrower. I threw up my hands and endeavoured with all my strength to force upward the ponderous iron bar. I might as well have tried to lift the cathedral itself. Down, down, down it came. 
closer. Pompey! Pompey, Pompey, help me! The, the ponderous scythe of time, for I now discovered the literal import of that classical phrase, continued down, down. It had already buried its sharp edge of full inch in my flesh. My sensations were growing indistinct and confused. The, the ticking of the machinery began to amuse me. Amused me. My sensations soon bordered on perfect happiness. When the bar buried itself two inches in my neck, I was aroused to a sense of exquisite pain. <gasps> But a new horror presented itself. My eyes, from the cruel pressure of the machine, were absolutely starting from their sockets. One actually tumbled out of my head, and rolling down the steep side of the steeple, lodged in the rain gutter which ran along the eaves of the building. There it lay, just under my nose, and the airs it gave itself, disgusting. And inconvenient. On account of the sympathy which always exists between two eyes of the same head, however far apart, my other eye was forced to act in concert with the scoundrel one below. Oh! What relief when the other eye dropped out. Both rolled out of the gutter together. Down. 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 The bar, now four inches and a half deep, only a little skin left to cut through. Sensations of entire happiness. Relief in a matter of minutes. Five in the afternoon, precisely, the huge minute hand had proceeded sufficiently far on its terrible revolution to sever the small remainder of my neck. Ah. I was not sorry to see the head, which had occasioned me so much embarrassment, at length make a final separation from my body. It first rolled down the side of the steeple, then, then lodged for a few seconds in the gutter, and then made its way with a plunge into the middle of the street. There was nothing now to prevent my getting down from my elevation, and I did so. Well, hello there, Pompey. Pompey, Pompey, watch the stairs. Oh, oh. oh Pompey, dear Pompey. What it was that Pompey saw so very peculiar in my appearance, I have never yet been able to find out. Then I turned to Diana, the darling of my heart. <gasps> Alas, 
What a horrible vision affronted me. Was that a rat sulking in his hole? Are these the picked bones of the little angel? Cruelly devoured by the monster. Ye gods. Sweet creature. She too has sacrificed herself in my behalf. Ah. Dogless. Niggerless. Headless. What now remains for the unhappy Signora Psyche Zenobia? Alas, nothing. Nothing. I have done. That was Pat Franklin in A Predicament by Edgar Allan Poe. And now, a story that most of our listeners know by heart. True. Nervous. Very... Very dreadfully nervous. I had been. And am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Harken and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain. But once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. One of his eyes resembled that of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man. And thus rid myself of the eye forever. <laughs> Madmen know nothing, but you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then...
then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed. Closed, so that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly. Very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. <laughs> Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously. Oh, so cautiously. <laughs> cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture. And this I did for seven long nights. Every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone, and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have had to be a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night just at twelve I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watcher's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph to think that there I was opening the door. Little by little, and he not even a dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea. And perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled. Now, now you may think that I drew back. But no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness. The shutters were close-fastened for fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door. And I kept pushing it on, steadily. Steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening and the old man sprang up in the bed crying out, Who's there? did not move a muscle. And in the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening, just as I have done night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently, I heard a slight groan. And I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief. Oh, no, it was the slow, stifled sound that rises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up in my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him. Though I chuckled at heart. <laughs> I knew he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but he could not. It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. 
It is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he has been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain, all in vain, because death in approaching him had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, though he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a single dim ray like the thread of the spider shot out from the crevice and full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue, with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow of my bones. I could see nothing else, nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And now have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the senses? Now I say there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet, I refrained and kept still. the lantern motionless. I tried to see how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meanwhile, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder. I say louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am a nervous man. So I am. Now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me into uncontrollable terror. For some moments longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. Now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. Ah, ah, the old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once. Ah! Once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. For many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard to the walls. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. 
If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the boards. Oh, cleverly. So cunningly that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. Uh, <laughs> that tub had caught all. <laughs> When I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock. Still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. <laughs> I went down to open it with a light heart. For what had I now to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves with perfect suavity, as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. Uh, the old man, I mentioned, was uh, absent in the country. Uh, I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search. Search well, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasure, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues. While I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. <laughs> the officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat, and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definitiveness. Until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased. And what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound. Much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. <laughs> I gasped for breath. And yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and, and argued about trifles in a high key, with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observation of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards. But the noise rose over all and gradually increased. It grew louder, louder, louder. And still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no. They heard. They suspected. They knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought. And this I think. But anything was better than this agony. 
Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now again, hark. Louder, 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 louder. Ah, villains. Villains dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear the planks here, here, here! Oh, it is the feeling of his hideous That was A Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. Technical production was by Fred Seiden, and the story was performed by your host of the Black Mass, Eric Bowersfeld. The technical production for our first story this evening, A Predicament, was by John Whiting. And now, good night. Radio 59, WROW, first on the dial. And now, another tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. Mary Cecilia Rogers was murdered in the vicinity of New York City in the summer of 1842. It was still an unsolved crime in November when the mystery of Marie Roger was published. The author, Edgar Allan Poe. It paralleled in every essential detail the murder of Mary Rogers. Poe wrote it far from the scene of the atrocity, with only the newspaper reports of the day. Nevertheless, the subsequent confession connected with the murder of Mary Rogers confirmed not only the killer named by Poe, but all the chief details by which he arrived at his identification. <laughs> Good evening. My name is Dupin. I should like to extend an invitation. Regard first a certain event which truly occurred in New York City on a warm summer night in 1842. Secondly, I invite you to employ your imagination and displace that same event, intact with all of the essential facts, to a cobbled old world Paris on an identical warm and fragrant summer night in the same year. Lastly, and most interesting, I should like to invite you to attend that event. It is a murder. <laughs> the general design and mental character of the atrocity, indeed the first knowledge of its occurrence, came to my attention on Wednesday night, the 25th day of June. Who is the prefect of police? I am, monsieur. Uh, Dupin? Yes, monsieur. Oh, thank you for coming, monsieur. I wasn't certain my messenger would find you. No, this way, monsieur. Please. André, the lantern for monsieur Dupin. 
Oh, she died harshly. Yes, yes, yes. Beaten, choked, drowned out. Yes, quite harshly, yes. She was beautiful, monsieur. Once, perhaps, yes. Still. But Mademoiselle what? In life she had a name. In death she must also have a name. Any of you? Monsieur, none of them know her, I have asked. But her clothes and jewels say she was known, Dupin. Good clothes, torn and disordered in her terrible struggle, but good. And the jewelry, not expensive, but tasteful. This woman, in my opinion, Dupin, was known. And loved, Monsieur Prefect. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, Dupin... This is why I sent for you. I have been through these things before. The newspapers will write stories. Their reporters will make conjecture. Um, although there is no name for her now, there will eventually be a name. And then, monsieur, I will be called upon to produce her assassins. Uh, there is so little to go on. The eyes of the public will be upon me and my honor is at stake. And my honor too, monsieur prefect, if... I am involved in the investigation. Dupin, listen. There is a fund at the prefecture, a sizable fund which I am authorized to use when circumstances arise. For your services, I am willing to make a direct and liberal proposition. Dupin, you will help me to find the answer to this woman's death. About the mouth, as in the case of the merely drowned monsieur, air bruises, impressions of fingers. It was a strangulation by hand and by this card, monsieur. Yes. The doctor. The supin? An ingenious knot in that cord, don't you think? This is a slip knot, a sailor's knot. Sailor's knot. She was found in water. Why did she die, monsieur? For her beauty, perhaps, for love, or hate. It was Sunday. Huh? Observe, doctor. There are no marks to prove she was wetted and then shaken loose. Yes, she quit life on Sunday. Murdered in the dark, thrown into the river, unweighted. Monday, Tuesday, she remained as a corpse, will on the bottom. And then on the third day, tonight, as a corpse, will, she rose. She was murdered on the bank, then taken out to her grave in a boat. And there had to be a man who knew how to handle a boat in the tricky current. Who is there? It is I, the prefect. I have someone who thinks he may know her. Come in, monsieur. Ahead of me, please. With your permission, doctor, monsieur Dupin... Monsieur Beauvais. How do you do? How do you do? Monsieur Beauvais has been searching since Monday for news of a Marie Roger. Mademoiselle Roger is an employee of Monsieur Beauvais. Correct, monsieur? Yes. I am a perfumer. I called on her mother, Madame Roger, Monday when Marie did not appear at my shop. Madame informed me that Marie had left Sunday to visit her aunt at Rue de Drôme. She has not yet returned. I see. And what else? Well, I cannot say, monsieur. So far, I have ascertained that she never arrived at Rue de Drôme. And indeed, no one has seen her since Sunday. Not even Jacques Saint-Eustace. Who is Jacques Saint-Eustace, Beauvais? Monsieur Saint-Eustace is the accepted suitor of Marie Roger. He lodges and takes meals at the pension kept by Madame Roger. He was to have gone for his uh, betrothed at dusk Sunday and to have escorted her home. 
In the afternoon it rained heavily, and uh, supposing that she would remain at her aunt's, he did not think it necessary to keep his promise. Uh, she has stayed there under similar circumstances. And where is Jacques Saint-Eustace at this moment? Searching and anxious as I am for Marie Roger. But uh, where he went, I do not know. It is three days since Sunday. Four days, really. But three that Marie Roger has been considered missing. Your search is tardy. Uh, I know, monsieur. Well? I am at your mercy. She has disappeared twice. Ah. The first time she disappeared was about uh, three years ago. Her mother or friends were unable to account for her disappearance. I was distracted with anxiety and terror. Mm, did you notify the police? In that case, immediately, sir. But suddenly, Marie reappeared one fine morning after being absent a whole week. So you did not call the police this second time she disappeared? Well, what has happened once can happen again, monsieur. What did happen that week she was away? I do not know. I do not honestly know. But you doubt the story of visiting a relative? I will not say. Show him what we have, doctor. If you will kindly step over here, monsieur Beauvais. Now, monsieur Beauvais, if you please. You know this woman, sir. It is her. It is Marie Roger. Oh, it is her. Poor little Marie. Poor Marie. Why does Beauvais cry, Dupin? The girl only worked for him. Ah, he has not told us all. He is suspect, Dupin, and I will have a word with him. Huh? Stay. But Dupin, why does he weep for a shop girl, a grisette who is promised to another? He weeps for youth and beauty. In just a moment, we will return for the second act of... Suspense. Welcome, recording star Mel Torme. It's terrible trying to sing with a bad cold. So I always take four-way cold tablets to relieve cold miseries fast. Good idea. Tests of all the leading cold tablets proved four-way fastest acting. Four-way starts in minutes to relieve muscular pains, headache, reduce fever, calm, upset stomach, also overcomes irregularity. When you catch cold, try my way. Take four-way cold tablets. The fast way to relieve cold distress and feel better quickly. Four-way, only 29 cents. Our program will continue in a moment after a word about another fine product of Grove Laboratories. Does dandruff dull your hair, leave scalp itchy? Get Fitch Dandruff Remover Shampoo and get rid of unsightly dandruff in three minutes. Three minutes with Fitch regularly is guaranteed to keep embarrassing dandruff away forever. Apply Fitch before wetting hair, rub in one minute. Add water, lather one minute. Rinse one minute. Every trace of dandruff goes down the drain. Three minutes with Fitch, unsightly dandruff's gone. Fitch can also leave your hair up to 35% brighter. Fitch, dandruff remover, shampoo. Dupin again. You will recall the event we have been attending in Paris. I invite you now to keep in mind this solemn fact that Marie Roger died violently. That her lover, Jacques Saint-Eustace, is missing. Where she died, who administered her death, for what reason, remained to be known. Attend at this point another event, if you will. 
which was arranged by that zealous and righteous man, the prefect of police. Ah, thank you for coming, Dupin. You have located the lover, Saint-Eustace? Saint-Eustace? Oh, no, no, he's unimportant, I assure you. Somewhere right now he drinks and tries to forget. <laughs> but what I have here is important, most important. Uh, Madame Dulac, if you please. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening. This is Madame Dulac. She has something of interest to tell you, and I have something of interest to show you. Good evening, madame. I have maintained this tavern many years, right here, close to the bank of the river. No fear with me, madame. I have no authority to do anything but respect your person and your thoughts. What is this information? I saw a young woman here Sunday. Monsieur says it was Marie Roger. It was, definitely. Just a moment. Sunday? Yes, mid-afternoon, and later, perhaps. Where? Right here in my tavern. She arrived accompanied by a young man of dark, swarthy complexion. The two remained here for some time. On their departures, they took the road through some thick woods, that way. Toward the river, Dupin. And this is a secluded neighborhood. Oh, go on, madame, go on, go on. Soon after they left... A gang of miscreants made their appearance here. They behaved boisterously. They ate and drank without payment. Then left and followed the route of the young girl and the young man. That same way. I see. About dusk, the same gang reappeared and recrossed the river in great haste. I see. And you are certain it was Marie Roger? Never fear. My men spoke with an omnibus driver, a man named Valence, who knew Marie Roger. He claims he saw her cross the Seine on the Sunday afternoon in question with a swarthy man who fits the exact description of Madame. What else, monsieur? I will show you. Come on. I followed him through the back of the tavern into the thick woods which lined the Seine at that point. He stopped when we had come to a cross thicket, within which were three or four large stones, forming a kind of seat with a back and a footstool. Note, Dupin, a white petticoat here, and here a silk scarf, parasol, gloves, pocket handkerchief. Inspect the handkerchief, Dupin. Thank you. You know the name Marie Roger embroidered there? Yes. So this is the place she met her death. Now, of course it is, and I have found it. Look, the earth is trampled where she struggled, and over here, bushes still broken. Every evidence of a terrible struggle. And here, the fence has been taken down, and the ground shows that some heavy burden was dragged along in, eh? Toward the river. Come, look for yourself. What do you say now? I am wondering. Wonder? We have facts now, sir. Important facts. Do you recall a strip of one of the unfortunate girl's petticoats had been tied about her mouth, probably to prevent her screams? I do. This was done by fellows who had no pocket handkerchiefs. Miscreants, Dupin. Miscreants such as those who visited Madame Dulac's tavern and later went the same way as Marie Roger and her companion. There are many such gangs about here. <laughs> now, all we have to do is locate them, and I know how to do that.
just a moment. We will return for the concluding act of... Suspense. Pepsi-Cola refreshes without filling. Why? Because it's truly light. Charlie, you're forgetting something. Wait, Kay, there's more. Yes, ice-cold Pepsi is the delicious refreshment that goes great at a picnic or a party. But, Charlie... And Pepsi goes fast. People like it, so keep plenty handy. There. Oh, you did fine, except for one thing. Well, I mentioned lightness and how Pepsi refreshes and how fast it goes. You left out Pepsi sociability. You know the be sociable song. But, Kay, I can't sing. I can. Listen. Well, at least I can say this. Pick up an extra carton of Pepsi today. Please do. Tonight, the shrill cries of the Paris newsboys proclaimed the prefect's resolve. He offered a reward of 20,000 francs and a full pardon for any king's evidence. It was an accepted conclusion that Marie Roger had been waylaid and slain by a gang of miscreants in the vicinity of Madame du Lac's tavern. <laughs> well, now you defeated Monsieur Dupin, now that I have solved the mystery of Marie Roger? No, monsieur. <laughs> I have doubled the reward. Soon one of the miscreants will come forward. Then you will see. 40,000 francs should be temptation enough. <laughs> 20,000 was temptation enough. What? No one will come forward, sir. A gang such as he is hoped for would be composed of men who have never seen more than a 100 francs at one time. 20,000 would bring all of them, if. They had any knowledge of Marie Roger's murder. They are just waiting, you know that? Waiting? When each is in jeopardy because of the other? Oh, we shall see, Dupin. Wait. It was one man. Huh? A man who dragged the body of Mademoiselle to the river's edge. A gang, even two men, could have carried it. <laughs> A gang would have lifted it over the fence easily instead of taking a fence down as it was taken down. One man labored hard. My conjecture is as good as yours. Are you talking of Saint Eustace? No. He is quite unguilty. Monsieur, allow me to point out that the newspapers, the police, all have identified themselves with what apparently happened. We must consider what did not happen. First, a gang did not set upon her and murder her. Secondly, Marie Roger had no intention of visiting her aunt at Rue des Drômes when she left her mother and lover last Sunday morning. Dupin, if you have confidential information, explain yourself. I have the same information as you, nothing else. You said she had no intention of visiting her aunt that day. Why do you say that? Monsieur, consider what might have happened if her intended Jacques Saint-Eustace had called for her at her aunt's and discovered she was not there, that she had not been there all day. He would have been chagrined, suspicious, angry. Saint-Eustace would have been all of these. Something for Marie Roger to worry about when she returned home. But nothing to worry about if Marie did not intend to return home. A point to consider, perhaps. Go on. Consider that she kept a rendezvous instead. This we know. A rendezvous with a swarthy man. We have been told by two witnesses who saw him. Now, monsieur, I ask you, as I have asked myself, did this swarthy companion allow Marie to be slain before his eyes? Or was he himself slain trying to help her? If so, 
Where is his body? He left her before. She was set upon, obviously. Did he leave her alone in such a dark district? They quarreled. Indeed, they did. Another question. Marie Roger's death is known everywhere in France. Why has he not come forward to help us clear up the mystery? For many reasons. Uh, perhaps he's married. Uh, he has left. He's uninformed. He's... He has a swarthy complexion. A sea complexion. A well-attested fact. Now accumulate that with the cord that was tied about her neck in a sailor's knot. Monsieur Dupin, I and cannot... the need of a skilled boatsman to handle a boat on the river to dispose of the body. But it could be anyone. No, it could not. Huh? Mary Roger was a gay, not an abject girl. And no common seaman for her. An officer. A naval officer, monsieur. Like the one who might have led her into a false elopement the first time she disappeared. Three years pass. The approved time for a French man of war to consume encircling the globe. The officer returns, thinking of the same coquette Marie Roger, the same bargain. What he has managed to do once, he can do again. Marie meets him Sunday for this purpose. Then she thinks the better of an elopement and refuses to accompany him. St. Eustace has captured her love. Her former lover slays her in quick anger, and he drags her body to the river, commandeers a boat and... Where do I find him? And whatever ship has arrived from the world cruise. His name? What is his name, Dupin? Inquire for the name of the young officer who has applied for leave to get married. But there must be many such among a ship's complement returning after a long cruise. Agreed. But, Monsieur Prefect, there is only one naval officer who has returned to his ship without a bride. André! André! We leave at once for the naval yards. It has been an interesting evening. And now I issue a last invitation, my friends. I invite you to retain all that you have heard and employ this time, instead of your imagination, your uh, sense of reality. For Marie Roger of Paris was truthfully Marie Rogers of New York. Let your reality move you back to New York City on a winter day some months after the event described in the darkening afternoon inside a gray stone building. I invite you to attend another event. I think you will find it significant. Ensign Robert Bryant Wilson. You have been found guilty of the murder of Mary Cecilia Rogers. It is the judgment of this court that you be hanged by the neck until you are dead. Suspense. You've been listening to The Mystery of Marie Roger, a story by Edgar Allan Poe, written for Suspense by E. Jack Newman. In a moment, the names of our players and a word about next week's story of Suspense. 
Are you out of tune due to irregularity? Then help yourself get back in tune with Kellogg's All Brand. Pleasant, isn't it? The feeling of well-being you get when constipation from lack of bulk is no longer a worry. When harsh, irritating drug laxatives can be thrown away. Because Kellogg's All Brand is the normal, natural way to regularity. Its whole brand content gentles away constipation, supplies your system with the bulk-forming food you need for youthful regularity. And it tastes good, too. Fact is, Kellogg's All Brand is the one and only whole brand cereal that combines proved effectiveness with appetizing taste and crispness. So if you're out of tune, help yourself get back in tune as millions do with Kellogg's All Brand. A-double-L hyphen B-R-A-N. Kellogg's All Brand. Heard in tonight's story were Jackson Beck as Dupin, Bob Dryden as the Prefect, and Guy Rapp as Beauvais. Others in our cast included Abby Lewis, Jim Bowles, Ethel Everett, and Ronald Dawson. Listen again next week when we return with the Radio Classic, first broadcast on Suspense, May 25th, 1943. Sorry, Wrong Number, starring Agnes Moorhead. Another tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. On CBS Radio. looking for the old whaling vessel, Grampus. Captain Bernard was in charge, and though I hadn't seen the old captain in more than ten years, I still felt he was a pretty good friend of mine. I could remember him telling Dad and myself some pretty wild tales. I drank it all in, main rig, compass, and anchor. Maybe I never would have seen the old captain and his son, Weston, if I hadn't been visiting some friends in Boston. I was reading the shipping news one morning, and there it was. Benjamin Bernard. Experienced whalers wanted to man vessel Grampus, sailing July 13th, 1 a.m., 1881. Well, I packed my digs, slung them over my shoulder, took a lungful of salt air, and, well, six hours before sailing time, I was looking for the ship. It was dark as I walked down the waterfront, and I stopped the stranger. Yeah, bud? What do you want? I'm looking for a whaler known as the Grampus, and I think I'm lost. There it is, right in front of you. What's the matter? Can't you read? Yeah, it seems that way. Thanks, fella. Uh, do you happen to know if Captain Bernard's on board? Yeah, he's there. You shipping out on her? I'm looking for a job. I'm pretty green, but I'm an old friend of his. So... I'm an old friend of his, too. I was out on his last voyage. I wouldn't ship out again under that yellow curve. I was to stop first. And Dirk Peters says, don't go, don't go. What's the matter? Is the ship haunted or something? Nothing's the matter with the ship. The captain's nuts. Are you sure you're talking about the same man I am? There's only one Captain Bernard, and that's him. He and his son both. Two of a kind. Don't take my word for it. Ask any man that was aboard the Grampus last trip. Ask Sanford Allen, our second mate. 
Talk to the cook, little Tony Mazzeo and Sale. Ask him. Captain got playful and cut little Tony's arm off. Look, I'll take you aboard. I've been trying to collect my scratch ever since we landed two weeks ago, and I get word tonight it's ready. Now, watch out for the loose boards on the gang. Yeah, I see what you mean. I'm right behind you. I don't think this ship's sailing tonight, Mr. Peters. Look at that sky. Ah, little squall don't bother Bernard. Human life's cheap. Climb over the gunnel. It's fastest. All right. Yeah, it's a dirty-looking ship. Captain Bernard! Captain Bernard! I guess he's in the cabin, eh? Follow me. Uh, that doesn't sound like a little squall, does it, Mr. Peters? Yeah? Oh, incidentally, my name's Gordon Pym. Everybody's got a name. Life is like that, I guess. Now we get on the passageway here. Captain Bernard, I... All right, men. Take Mr. Peters and his friend and put them in iron. What's this? You dirty swine, you double-crosser. Yeah, the gap, Peters. Take them down to the hold. Until we sail. Then we'll see what you have to say, Mr. Peters. Why then, Shanghai, Mr. Pym? Shanghai! Three hours, Mr. Pym. Your friend, the captain, ought to come below any minute with a pep talk. Now that we're too far at sea to swim back. Wenham. Allen. Sanford Allen. Is that you in the corner? Yeah. Kind of cozy, ain't it? All of us together here like this, huh? What'd they do? Slug you too? Yeah, with the old payroll gag. Come up and get your pay. Then they slug you. Guess who else is here? Tony? Yeah. Tony, how's it going, Tony? I stick of the knife in his belly someday. That's what the Tony Monteo do someday. Stick of the knife. Yeah, you better not stick of the knife or you get swinging the head on the gallows. They call that mutiny, Tony. Oh, uh, meet Mr. Allen, Tony. This is Pim, Gordon Pim. Hello, Pim. Hello. How long are we out for, do you know, Allen? Sure. Six months. Oh, listen to the Tony Peters. Listen to Tony. We stick together this time, you know? He cut off my arm. Someday I cut off his head. Ah, shut up. It's a lot of gab. Ah, that's life, I guess. The, the captain says for you to go on deck. Well, 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 if it ain't the kid. What you doing aboard ship, Weston? Playing sailor? Mr. Peters, I, I didn't know that... I, I'm sorry. He's sorry. He's sorry. You didn't know that we was going to get shanghaied when you come down and tell us the pays rolls made out. You lying, sniveling yellow pig. Well, honestly, I... Forget it. You're in the same boat. Oh, uh, here's a friend of yours, Weston. At least, that's what he says. Friend of mine? I have no friends. No friends at all. I... Watch out, Mr. Monteo. Don't touch me. Not in our touch, you. I don't want to get my hands dirty. We don't want no dirt in our food, huh, Tony? I I can't help what Father does. I never wanted to be a sailor anyway. You know that, Mr. Peters. You know that. I hate the sea. Hate the doggone sea. I'll leave the kid alone. Come on, Alan, before the captain begins to howl like a bull. Hello, Weston. You don't remember me, do you? I... No. No, I... I don't. The name's Gordon Pym. I used to live next door to you in Nantucket ten years ago. You remember? Gordon. 
How did you get here? I came aboard looking for a job, and I got one, but not the kind I'm looking for. Oh, I hadn't any idea, Gordon. Gordon, wait till you see Father. Wait. He's so changed. All of us are so changed. You'll see. We walked slowly up to the deck, and we lined up. Two lines, ten men. Ten of the toughest, dirtiest-looking men I've ever seen. Captain Bernard kept moving his hand back and forth, sort of a nervous habit, and then started to stand muster. He didn't recognize me, and I didn't mention our old friendship. As the days went by, he seemed to take a kind of joy in making a fool out of me. But then he didn't treat his own son any better. As for Peters, he hated him and wanted to get something on him. But Peters was smart and stayed out of trouble. He was the only man who wasn't flogged during those first 40 days at sea. One night, we called the ten-man crew to a secret meeting and advised them never to try and talk to the captain. Well, a storm was brewing on the 42nd day of the journey, and I was called into the captain's cabin. I opened the door. You call for me, Captain? Thanks, Mr. Pam. I called for you. Shut the door behind you. You're just standing there like an idiot. My son tells me that you're giving out free advice these days. Gordon, I didn't. I didn't. I, I swear. Shut up. Sniveling swine. Calling you my son makes me ill. Father. <laughs> now, Mr. Pim. I heard you've been advising the men to obey me blindly because you think I'm an idiot mind. Captain Bernard, I said nothing of the kind. Don't lie to me, Mr. Pim. I've known you for many years. Oh, so you do remember. I couldn't very well forget, could I? Despite my idiot mind. I tried to treat you as I treated the other men. You've taken advantage of me. Whispering behind my back. Trying to turn my son against me. Plotting with Mr. Peters. I'd have none of this on board my ship. Gordon, he's making it up. I, I never said it. Are I, you I never calling said it. me a liar, Weston? No. No. You I... see, Mr. Pimp? I son denies it now. But I checked the story through our cook. I don't admit it, Mr. Pam. I thought I was helping. That's what I told him, Gordon. Shut up. Since when have I asked for your help? Answer me, Mr. Pam. Answer me. Well, you didn't, sir, but... But what? How did Mr. Peter say to you about my idiot mind? He said nothing at all, sir. Nothing, idiot? No, sir. Tell me the truth. It is the truth, Captain Bernard. Liar! I'll cut your lying tongue out with my own hands. What did Peter say? Nothing, sir. Nothing. Leave him alone, no. Father. He's telling the truth. Don't hurt him. He's my friend. My only friend. The only one I ever had. I leave him alone. Since you love this friend, my son, I'll allow him the pleasure of trying to make a man out of you. Mr. Pim, you'll take this sniveling son of mine and tie him securely to the mainmast. No, Father. What no. do you No. Then when he's securely no. tied, you will report to deck for 40 lashings until I get the truth about Peters out of you. Yeah, but it's suicide for a man to be tied to the mainmast in this weather. If anything Captain... happens to him, Mr. Gordon, you'll pay for it with your life. So be sure he's tied securely. Do 
Those were the captain's orders, and we obeyed him. The wind was screaming through the sails like an insane witch on a broomstick, but Weston and I climbed to the cross trees of the mainmast. It was a tough climb, and I think he knew then it was the end for him, but he was afraid to disobey. When we reached the cross trees, I lashed Weston's arms and legs firmly, hoping he could survive the storm. By the time he was made fast, I patted his hair and tried to soothe that poor lost boy. The last I remember of him was his tear-streaked face and the look in his eye. I waved goodbye to him and climbed slowly and carefully below to report for 40 lashes. Captain Bernard, Mr. Pym reporting, sir. Take off your shirt. Yes, sir. Place your hands behind the whipping post and hang out securely, Mr. Pym. And think carefully. Try to remember the words Mr. Peters said about my idiot mind. Yes, sir. The mainmast, Captain Bernard. It's the mainmast. Let's go for the mainmast. It's ready. It's all Do they know, Gordon? I thought we'd tell them when they got here. Well, we got to work fast. This calm ain't going to last, and we won't be able to steer no course at all with the mainmast gone. Hey, what's this special meeting about? Oh, look, Alan. Look at the captain. Peter. Did you? Yes, Mr. Allen. It's a mutiny. Are you with me? I copy the head off. No. Shut up, Tony. I ain't getting mixed up in no mutiny. Is this your idea, Gordon? Yeah, that's my idea, all of it. If any man swings around here, it'll be me, so listen to me. You should have asked us, Gordon. We don't like getting dragged into something like this. Now listen to me, men. Nobody will swing for this if you use your heads. Nobody has to know this is mutiny. Sure, he's right. We'll kill the captain. Tell him himself, copies the head off. And then we say he chose to die. No. no, Tony. We can make this look like a shipwreck. The captain gets put in a lifeboat and set adrift. No, no, Tony, Tommy, get it off. Shut up, Tony. Go on, Gordon. Now, we all know the captain's nuts. In two or three days alone on the ocean, he'll be a babbling idiot. Idiots don't talk sense even if they're found. And even if he is found, he'll look like a shipwreck victim. What about the boat? We're going to scuttle it. Get off on lifeboats when we're near land. Within two days, we'll be ten miles off Cape True. We can row to safety, and it'll be up to you men to keep quiet. Now, are you with me, men? No. Yeah, with you. We're with you. All right. All right, let's go. And work fast, you monkeys, because we're in for a whale of a blow tonight. I was so smart, 
Smarter than anybody. You could see it then. I had the whole thing planned perfectly from beginning to end. We lowered the captain in a lifeboat, gave him some biscuits, a compass, and a jug of water. But I didn't figure on the storm that was to come. But the storm broke soon after in all its mad, screaming fury. We couldn't control the Grampus. She was like a wounded animal, and I thought for a minute she'd sink by herself that night. There were eight men left then, being the kid and the captain was gone. We had to lash ourselves to the deck to keep from being swept overboard. But during the night, four of the men were lost. It seemed to me that the ocean was fighting back the mutiny. Water poured into the ship. The entire belly of the ship was waterlogged, and only the top deck was riding above the ocean. There were three lifeboats on the Grampus before the storm, but we lost them during the night. And then, toward morning, Alan screamed out, You blasted fool, Gordon! We can't scuttle this ship even if we want to now! What do you mean, we can't scuttle it? It didn't sink, did it, Mr. Peters? Ah, shut up. The hold of this boat is filled with empty oil casks, isn't it, Mr. Peters? Yes, Alan. I forgot about that. Well, what's the difference? Difference? You land lover, them empty oil casks is full of air. They'll act like a balloon keep this rotten whaler from sinking. Is that true, Mr. Peters? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Oh, we can set the ship on fire. What good will that do? We're burned alive. Don't even say you don't set the ship on fire. There's no life about Yes, Trey. Ah, shut up, Wally, and let me think. Just going to have to set tight and wait. Wait for what, Peter? Wait and pray we get saved. Maybe a ship will pass. You'll hang, Peters, if we're saved. You and Gordon will hang. I had nothing to do with the mutiny. Me and Tony's free and clear. Ain't we, Tony? Yeah. Yeah, nothing to do with the non-mutiny. Just wait. Wait. Wait and pray. We did wait and pray. Waited for 13 horrible days without food or water. 13 days. And then one morning... Alan began to complain as you. So thirsty. So thirsty. How many of us are left, Gordon? It's not light yet, Peters. I don't know. How do you feel, Gordon? I'm not sure. Take it easy, kid. The sun will come up shortly. Alan. Yeah. Where's little Tony? Tony! He isn't around. Listen, we both of you. There's just three of us left. None of us can last very long floating around on a on a derelict ship. None of us. But there's a chance. There's always a chance we can be saved. If we can last. What are you getting at, Alan? One of us will have to die so the so the others can live. One of us must. No. No, Alan, if we all die here first. Maybe you won't, but I will. You're the ringleader, Gordon. You started this thing. You'd hang if we got the land, so would you, Peters. But I'd be free. I got a knife. Put that knife down. Alan's right, Gordon. If any of us is going to live, one of us has got to die. No, Peters, no. It's better to die than... Gordon. I don't know what I'm saying. Alan's right. It's two against one. Yeah, two against one. We're going to choose for the privilege. Here are three pieces of wood. Take them, Gordon. 
Hold them in your hand. The man who gets the shortest stick is the victim. Is that level with you, Alan? Sure. All right. Put your knife right here in the middle. Okay. There it is. Okay. Choose, Alan. This one. It's short. My turn now. There. Yours is the long one. Put in the shortest miter, Gordon. I'd say. Gordon? Yeah. It's you, Alan. No. No. No, I won't. I'm the one that should live. I'm innocent. Give me that. Let's go of it, Alan. Oh. You double-cross. Take that, Peters. And that. You... Uh, now I get the knife. And no, Peters, you. you... Oh. Dead, Peters? Yeah. I just... I... What's the matter with you? Are you all right? Oh, I'll be all right. I'll always double-cross. Alan, wounded you badly, Peters. Oh. I'll get some salt water and wash the blood off you. That'll keep the wound clean. That's too deep, Gordon. Look. Look ahead. Look, Gordon. I see the outline of land ahead. Land! Uh, it's the mirage, Peter. You think it's land? No. Look. Look. Straight ahead. You're right. Land. Land ahead. We'll be saved, Peter. Peter. Peters was dead. Peters and Alan lay side by side. They climbed over the gunwale of that ship and started to land. I don't know how I ever made it. I couldn't swim four miles in good condition, yet I swam four miles after 13 days of no food or water. I climbed out of the water, wet and tired, and fell exhausted on the beach. I don't remember what happened after that. I was in a native village of some sort, I knew, and some native women had taken me in and cared for me until I was well. They thought I'd been shipwrecked. They would have kept on taking it, too, if it hadn't been for the first day I was well enough to walk around. I stopped in at the settlement's only inn to figure things out. As I opened the door... What do you mean there's a derelict ship out there, huh? I mean what I say. All the grabbing. This old loon keeps saying he was once the captain of that ship. Oh, loon. I'm crazy, huh? You men think I'm crazy. But I'll prove I'm sane. There was no shipwreck. It was mutiny. Mutiny. My son was killed. He did it. Yes, he did it. Mutiny. And he did it. There he is. Right there. Standing at the door. Look at him. Don't let him get away. Don't let me get away. Hey, Mister! You mustn't get away. Yes, sir. Come over here. Talking to me? Yeah. Come on over here to this table, stranger. This old loon claims he knows you. Yes, I know you. Don't I? Well, answer me. You were hired on board the Krampus and led a mutiny against me in your swing for it. 
I was picked up three days after you put me in that rowboat. I stayed alive for one reason and one reason only. To watch your body swing from the gallows. Tell these men the truth. Speak up, man. Speak up. Are you a Gordon Pym? I demand an answer. Are you a Gordon Pym? Well, Mr. Arias, it's your word against his. Tell the truth. Are you a Gordon Pym? Frankly, I don't know who I am. I guess I'm just something washed up out of the sea. Yeah, I'm just somebody washed up out of the sea. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service.